Greetings and good afternoon, everyone. This is Cheryl, and I'm so pleased to be here to welcome you to Taran Rama's Saturday afternoon program, The True Planetary and Galactic History Herstory, and True History Herstory of Nasara. So I want to wish everyone a happy new moon that is exact at 12.37 a.m., so 37 minutes after midnight in Eastern Time tomorrow morning, and happy Father's Day to all as well as uh, we go ahead and focus on the energies of the Divine Masculine and call forth the Divine Masculine in every man, woman, and child, focusing on divine will and divine order, and as always, divine justice and divine government. So blessed be everyone. Let's go into our heart center now as we call forth at this time our full and complete emergence with our soul, with our higher self, with our monad, with our mighty I am presence, and all of our multidimensional being through to our God presence, God is presence integrating within our being as we attain our full mastery, as we recommit ourselves to being the bridge between heaven and earth, the anchor for the new golden age and the open door that no one can shut. So please see yourself in your pillar of light and your divine masculine energy. In the sapphire blue, pillar of light, and we ask for the activation for ourselves and every man, woman, and child as they join us for the rod of divine will that was placed in each and every person's pillar in their spinal column on 12-12-12 at one of my ascension calls. And that was the first time that was activated. We're going to ask for it to be reactivated and magnified in divine order as we call on everyone to join us. Please say with me, I am my I am presence. As my I am presence, I am one with the I am presence of all humanity. I am one with every man, woman, and child. I am one with all of my family members and loved ones. I am one with all that is. And thus, we see everyone joining us in their pillar of blue light with their rod of divine will activated. And we invite in for one and all, all of our soul extensions, planetary and galactic, all of our ancestors, all of our genetic lineage, our ancestral lineage, all the generations past, all the generations forward, our spiritual lineage, our soul family and soul pods, we welcome for one and all, all of our guides and teachers, our healing teams, our beloved guardian angel, our beloved twin flame, our ascension council and mission council. We welcome all of the kingdoms, <clears throat> the plant kingdom, the tree kingdom, the mineral kingdom, the animal kingdom, the data kingdom, the elemental kingdom, the fairy kingdom, all of the kingdoms of nature, the whales, the dolphins, and unicorns, and all magical kingdoms. 
We welcome all of the realms of the angels, from the angels and archangels through to the cherubim and seraphim and all angelic healers and healing teams. We welcome the ascended masters, the brotherhood of light, the sisterhood of the rays and rose, the order of Melchizedek, the radiant ones, all of the enlightened masters, all divine mother emissaries and divine father emissaries, all of the planetary and cosmic hierarchy of light, and all ascended master healers and healing teams. We welcome as well our friends in the Galactic Federation of Light and their healing teams, especially those that we work most closely with, from Arcturus and Pleiades and Sirius and Andromeda, from Chiron, from Venus, and from Lyra. And we welcome all cosmic galactic universal healers that can be of service and the entire company of heaven. As we ask Mother, Father, God to magnify, magnify, magnify all that we receive 999 billion times 999 billion times in alignment with divine will and divine law. So we call forth all of the rays, all of the flames, all of the universal laws and ascension waves. And with every energy and frequency, every prayer and invocation, every blessing, every grace, every dispensation, every activation, we ask that it be received through every cell, chakra, meridian, layer of our auric field multidimensionally on a conscious, subconscious, superconscious level for ourselves, for all humanity, multidimensionally. And we ask to easily and effortlessly digest and assimilate, ground and anchor, integrate and embody all that we receive with the greatest of ease and grace and joy and peace and bliss and ecstasy serenity and tranquility, balance and equilibrium, without resistance on any level, without discomfort on any level, without fear on any level, in love and light and laughter. Take a nice deep breath as we invite in everyone in our circle of support, every man from the very first name that created it, to every man, woman, and child, every family member and loved one, every friend and member of our communities, every pet, every animal, every group, every organization, every business and corporation, every institution, each and every nation, its military and its government, including the legislative aspect of each government and each nation, our lawmakers, our Congress, our Senate, our House of Representatives, all the parliaments across the world, each and every lawmaking body, including every city council. And we ask the goddess of justice and the goddess of liberty to overlight each legislative aspect of government and ensure that only the highest takes place when it comes to lawmaking. We ask the same for the executive aspect of each government, each president, each uh, head of state, each um, governmental official that is in, in um, making decisions in leadership roles, each prime minister, each and every cabinet post, and everyone making decisions in that, in that line of government. And again, we ask that the goddess of liberty and the goddess of justice ensure that only the highest and best takes place for all. 
we ask the same for the judicial aspect of each government. From our Supreme Court to every federal, state, local judge, every provincial judge in other nations, every uh, court, every attorney, every uh, court of law and all decisions, every jury and grand jury, and um, everyone, again, making judicial decisions. We ask that the goddess of liberty and the goddess of justice ensure that only the highest and best decisions take place. From there, we call in everything that's been in our circle from all aspects of climate and weather, uh, all of the concerns across the nation, all of the violence, all of the um, inequality, all of the issues that may still exist that do not reflect heaven on earth. We call them into our circle of support. And we call for the energies of this time, especially this new moon, and all of the things going on in the month of June, especially Father's Day as well, to utilize that energy where people are paying attention to put in our collective cup of consciousness for the transformation of this planet and the creation of heaven on earth. We ask Gaia to receive all that we receive through her chakras and meridians and layers of her auric field, multidimensionally, on a conscious, subconscious, and superconscious level, through every ley line and song line, through every uh, set of the grid systems, the love grids, the light grids, the unity grids, all the multidimensional grid systems, through every portal and vortex and monument and sacred site, every place of power, every stargate, every city of light, as we... Uh, continue up this amazing spiral of evolution along with Gaia, and she takes her rightful place as Freedom Star. With that, again, we will be working with the Blue Ray, and we say, All hail to thee, the almighty, all-pervading light of the universe, the supreme source of all life, I am. I kneel within my heart in recognition of the light of the cosmos as I draw forth these flames representing the threefold activity of life as exemplified by the Holy Trinity. The Father, the blue flame of power and will and strength and perfection and divine order. The Mother and Holy Spirit and the pink flame of love and the reverence for all life and the transfiguration of divine love, of comprehensive divine love and the son and daughter of God, the Christ and the divine wisdom that yellow golden flame of divine wisdom, and we see them burning brightly within each one of us and all humanity, and Gaia as well. Beloved cosmic, I am presence, all that is, come now and assert your rightful authority in the four earthly bodies of all of your children. Show us how to reverently and humbly express the perfectly balanced activity of power, love, and wisdom, which you are. O light supreme, I acknowledge you in all life. 
and I give gratitude to the glorious cosmic and ascended beings as I invoke them and the great angelic host to amplify the energy, vibration, and consciousness which I release as sacred and holy day. May this light expand and expand as it travels through the universe, increasing with every breath I take, ever widening the borders of the kingdom of heaven on earth. I accept this God, God is victoriously accomplished through the will of God, I am. And so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. So we call forth God's will and the divine plan. As we say, beloved presence of God, God as I am, within me and within all humanity. Beloved ascended masters, mighty cosmic beings, legions of light throughout infinity, and the great cosmic momentum of God's will for all life evolving on this planet. Come into action now. Blaze the full gathered cosmic momentum of God's will and God's divine plan for every man, woman, and child on this planet through the hearts and minds of every soul. Manifest now, manifest now, manifest now the full power of God's will in and through and around the physical, etheric, mental, and emotional bodies of every person on earth. Blaze the power of God's will directly into all that opposes the dignity of women, of men, of children, and of family life. Transmute and dissolve forever the cause, core, effect, record, and memory of all behavior that is not reflecting God's will and oneness and reverence for life. Replace every destructive behavior pattern with goodness, honor, reverence, and respect for the divinity within every man, woman, and child until the full expression of the I Am Presence is manifest within every soul. Great Ascended Host of Light, I thank you for the fulfillment of this divine fiat, which I decree in the name of God, I Am. So be it, and so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We call forth God's will for the new earth. In the full power and authority, the beloved presence of God, Goddess I am, I invoke the legions of light associated with the patterns of perfection for the new earth. Beloved ones, come forth now and blaze, blaze, blaze the cosmic flame of God's will through me and clear away any destructive activity of my own free will, which might rush in to impede my conscious desire to do God's will in manifesting the patterns for the new earth. Help me to become and remain obedient to the law of harmony and to be God in action at all times. I accept this call fulfilled as God's most holy name I am. And we decree, beloved ones, come forth now and blaze, blaze, blaze the cosmic flame of God's will through all governments and governmental leaders and clear away any destructive activity of their own free will, which might rush in to impede their conscious desire to do God's will in manifesting the patterns for the new earth. Help all governments and governmental leaders 
to become and remain obedient to the law of harmony and to be God in action at all times. I accept this call fulfilled as God's most holy name I am. Beloved ones, come forth now and blaze, blaze, blaze the cosmic flame of God's will through all religions and religious leaders. and clear away any destructive activity of their own free will, which might rush to impede their conscious desire to do God's will in manifesting the patterns for the new earth. Help all religions and religious leaders to become and remain obedient to the law of harmony and to be God in action at all times. I accept this call fulfilled as God's most holy name I am. Beloved ones, come forth now and blaze, blaze, blaze the cosmic flame of God's will through all military and military leaders and clear away any destructive activity of their own free will, which might rush in to impede their conscious desire to do God's will in manifesting the patterns for the new earth. Help all military and military leaders to become and remain obedient to the law of harmony and to be God in action at all times. I accept this call fulfilled as God's most holy name I am. Beloved ones, come forth now and blaze, blaze, blaze the cosmic flame of God's will through all children and young people and clear away any destructive activity of their own free will which might rush in to impede their conscious desire to do God's will in manifesting the patterns for the new earth. Help all children and young people become and remain obedient to the law of harmony and to be God in action at all times. I accept this call fulfilled as God's most holy name I am. Beloved ones, come forth now and blaze, blaze, blaze the cosmic flame of God's will through all students of the light and clear away any destructive activity of their own free will, which might rush in to impede their conscious desire to do God's will in manifesting the patterns for the new earth. Help all students of the light to become and remain obedient to the law of harmony and to be God in action at all times. I accept this call fulfilled as God's most holy name I am. Beloved ones, come forth now and blaze, blaze, blaze the cosmic flame of God's will through all humanity and clear away any destructive activities of humanity's own free will, which might rush in to impede their conscious desire to do God's will in manifesting the patterns for the new earth. Help all humanity to become and remain obedient to the law of harmony and to be God in action at all times. I accept this call fulfilled as God's most holy name I am. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. And we are reminded the will of God is light. The will of God is love. The will of God is good. The will of God is grace. 
The will of God is peace. The will of God is purity. The will of God is balance. The will of God is health. The will of God is abundance. The will of God is kindness. The will of God is unity. The will of God is happiness. The will of God is harmony. The will of God is perfection. And we give thanks for the will of God. Take a nice deep breath. See that energy of the sapphire blue flame, the cosmic flame of God's will working in and around everyone. Know that automatically each time that we use the blue ray or blue flame, it automatically brings in the violet ray and flame. And so working with them together, we say, Beloved Mother, Father, God, and beloved legions of light throughout infinity who have come to assist me during this sacred moment, I love you. And I am eternally grateful for your presence in the universe. Blessed flames, blessed rays, universal laws, ascension waves, all the divine substance of the cosmic I am, the omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, all that is. I thank you for your obedient service to the children of Earth. Clothed in the gratitude from my heart, expand now within every heart flame. Perpetually lift each soul into the embrace of his or her I am presence and permanently unite every person with the divine heart and mind of God Goddess. Allow each one to be the physical manifestation of his or her solar light body here and now as I expand the borders of the kingdom of heaven on earth. I realize the oneness of all life and in deep humility, I bow before the light of the cosmos as I serve as a pulsation of light in the body of the supreme source I am. So be it and so it is. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Blessed flame, expressions of the light essence of the supreme source I am, I thank you for your obedience service to the children of God. Clothed in the gratitude of my heart, Expand, expand, expand daily and hourly in, through, and around every electron of precious life energy belonging to or serving the earth at this time. Through this activity of sacred fire, the patterns of the new earth will be permanently secured in the physical world of form. I realize the oneness of all life, and in great humility, I bow 
as I serve as a pulsation of light in the body of the Supreme Source, I am. And so it is. And thus we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. Take a nice deep breath as we ask Sandalphon and Gaia to anchor all that we've received, all the blessings of the blue ray, all the blessings of all of the frequencies that we have anchored in order to create heaven on earth and divine will and divine order for all, divine justice for all and divine government for all here in every, in every nation. And so I thank each and every one of you for joining me today in this divine service. And I would invite you to join us for further service each and every Sunday and Monday evening for the Ascension Meditation and Activation Calls that we've been going every um, every Sunday and Monday. Uh, we started February 1st, 2010. And so we've been going strong. And we are doing our part to fully anchor heaven on earth, and we want you to be a part of it. This is a teleconference call. We begin at 8.45 p.m. Eastern Time, 5.45 p.m. Pacific Time. We have greetings for about 25 minutes. We have an update from Tarnarama at 9.30. We begin our work of creating heaven on earth in earnest with our meditations, our invocations, our visualizations, our activations. The best phone number that we recommend is area code 480-660-2224. That's area code 480-660-2224. The access code is 946-7441-POUND. Now, there are also local numbers. There's plenty of other national numbers. There's international numbers. There's a way to get on through the website, freeconference.com, and also an app. If you need that additional information, please contact me at Cheryl Croce, C-H-E-R-Y-L-C-R-O-C-I, at AOL.com. I'd love to share that with you and make sure that you have the updates and um, all that we share on a regular basis. So infinite blessings to you at this new moon. May it be uh, wondrous and prosperous and bring blessings in every way. And happy Father's Day to everyone as well. And um, it's time to ensure that divine will is fully manifest right here and right now on the planet. And so with this, we are going to give a special thank you to Tarn Rama for their, all of their divine service for so very, very long. And a special thank you to Rainbird for her divine service, including on my call. So thank you, Rainbird. And to each and every one of you, have a glorious week. May it be filled with magic and miracles in each moment. 
And with that, I'm going to pass this blazing cosmic blue light ray talking stick, of course, with the violet and all of the other rays as well, but sparkling with new change. The freshness of, of new life as we approach our summer solstice going to be a powerful, powerful week. So with that, I'm going to pass this talking stick to you, Rainbird. Thank you, Jim. Blessed be. Thank you, Cheryl, and thank you for your divine service as well, and enjoy your visit to North Carolina. (laughs) And I'm here to do the housekeeping as we're listening to support radio program. And it's all of us that make it happen. So each week we need uh, 300 and some dollars, according to what month it is, uh, for our, our shows. And this week we need, um, well, this month we need $326.25 each week. And uh, for last week we need $142.32 is remaining for that bill to be paid. And then for this week, we need the $362.25. That's a grand total of $458.57. It's less than it was yesterday, so let's keep pecking on it. And lots of gratitude for your contributions. Here's how we make that contribution. Go into your heart space. See what is yours to give. And then go to bbsradio.com. And there on the homepage, you'll see a schedule listed. And there's one for BBS Radio 1 and another for BBS Radio 2. So this program's on BBS Radio 2. It's at the 3.30 hour, and these are central times. And so it's listed at 3.30, and as you see that listing, click on the icon that's there, and it takes you directly to our account with BBS Radio, where you can make a contribution in any amount. And then for BBS Radio 1, our programs are on Thursday and Friday at the 8 o'clock hour central. On Thursday, it's the night at the round table with the panel. You click on that icon. That takes you to our account. And on Fridays, the hard news on Friday nights with Tara and Roma. And there's an icon there. <laughs> so as you click on that icon, you can make that donation using your bank card. Thank you for taking that action. We're so grateful for your participation in this way. And we have lots of gratitude for all that BBS Radio does for us and their services, including archives and just showing up all the time. So lots of gratitude to them. And um, so thank you for participating and for all the ways you show up in your life. And we are also assisting Tara and Rama with their needs. So this week, they don't need any help with bills. That's a good thing. So they just need uh, $200 for their living expenses. And then I also would like to mention, uh, but let's mention how we, we can access Rama's PayPal account for that $200 that they need this week. You need to go to the rainbowroundtable.net, the website. And there, if you click on the menu grid, you'll see all the things on that site drop down by title. And near the bottom of that list is a donate link. So as you click on that, that takes you directly to Rama's 
or the Rainbow Roundtable PayPal account where you can make that donation in any amount. And as you wish to connect with the friends option, you just need to click on the little heart. As you scroll down there, you'll see a heart. And you need to put in this email address. And it is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 9999 at hotmail.com as the people you're gifting to. And there you go. I'll say it again. Koran, 9999 at hotmail.com. And that's how we access the friends option on PayPal. So lots of gratitude. Either way is perfect. We're grateful for all your contributions. We also have a GoFundMe account that is active, and you need to you can access that through the same website, RainbowRoundtable.net, and you'll see the GoFundMe <clears throat> listed. And it's for um, Tar and Rama to get a new car or used car, uh, new to them, and <laughs> so we're looking for that for Tar and Rama. And thank you for your contributions for that. Um, and we're also, we're involved in the, uh, NFT rewards. NFT rewards is, um, a network based, um, petty auction where you buy bid packages and you invite other people. That's where it's all happening is launching soon. So we're at the ground level with this. And I want to give you the place to register if you want to sign up under and Rama's account that address to join NFT rewards, non-fungible tokens reward. So I will spell that out. N as a non, F as a fungible, and T as in token, and rewards spelled out, R-E-W-A-R-D-S, dot biz. And then forward slash register, R-E-G-S-I-S-E-R, forward slash, and this is the username there, Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 999. Okay, so that's the username, Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 999, and biz forward slash register, forward slash their username, Koran, 999. Okay, I'm going to back up just a minute because I forgot to tell you when you're sending something through PayPal, let Rama know and that email address to contact Rama when you've made a donation to Tara Rama through PayPal is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 999 at Comcast.net. And just send them an email and let them know what you sent and when you sent it so that you can plan a day. <laughs> so lots of gratitude, and we're grateful. There are no all the bills are caught up this week, so it's a good thing. Um, and as you need it, their uh, mailing address for donations: Rom D Berkowitz, R A M D Berkowitz, B E R K O W I T Z, Post Office Box two eighty two eight zero. And that's in Santa Cruz, New Mexico, where the zip code is 87567. I'll say it again. Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567. 
So there you have it, all kinds of information. And uh, just getting caught up with BBS and staying that way is an important thing this week. And, and check out that GoFundMe account as well. So 13 thank yous and honey in the heart. I'm sending this beautiful talking stick with that blue sapphire flame and the violet fire and all the other flames and and rays and there's lots of uh, fairy and activity and uh, I see a few magical beasts as well. So greetings, Tara and Rama. Here comes the talking stick. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Greetings. Thank you. Thank you, Rainbird. Thank, Thank you, Cheryl. Rainbird. Thank you, Cheryl. And we're going to get started right quick. What's the story, Rama, what we're going to play there? Oh, this is Dr. Greer last week on June 12th where he did the uh, National Press Club disclosure had all kinds of whistleblowers that came forward and saw things and had to do things, let's say, against the, you know, their better angels, to put it nicely. When you got somebody with, you know, <laughs> automatic weapons in your face and other kinds of stuff, it ain't so cool, so you kind of do what you're told, and these people are coming forward, and some of the things they saw are back-engineered ET technology that our empire, that's what I gotta call it until it becomes the democratic republic, did things where they captured ETs and back engineered technology. Go look up the word, the name Bob Lazar. And I mean, he was at Area 51 and so many stories. Oh my God. Okay. Well, let's just get started. Here we go. This is three hours and one minute. <laughs> Welcome, everyone. I'm Dr. Stephen Greer. I'm the founder of the Disclosure Project. I'm an emergency doctor, retired now, emergency medicine and trauma. Uh, I have been working in this area for about 33 years as a volunteer and as a provider of information to people in the United States government. If you're seeing behind me a moment ago, this event 22 years ago, uh, on May 9th, 2001. At that event, there were 22 folks who came forward, and that information is all on our website and on YouTube, and those were folks who actually, some of them, who handled extraterrestrial bodies called EVENS, extraterrestrial biological entities, handled craft, were on retrieval teams, all kinds of witnesses. Now, that got a certain amount of attention in Congress, but they weren't ready at that time to do hearings, which they're preparing for. Um, I understand from people on the House Government Reform and Oversight Committee. And so over the last 16 months, I've been asked to provide as much intelligence as I can to folks who have been working to get to the bottom of this since the Congress passed a law requiring the Director of National Intelligence to come forward 
um, with information to the extent that he had it. Now, one of the problems with that process is that, and I discovered this in 1993, in December 13th of that year, when I briefed the director of the CIA at the time, R. James Woolsey, for then-President Clinton. He and the president had been waved off and not given information on this subject. That's when, as a young doctor, I realized that this was being run outside appropriate oversight and supervision by the office of the president and the Congress. And that is just a fact. So at that point, of course, it sort of upended my life in many ways. But we began to try to get information to the executive branch further, do research, provide whistleblower testimony. But it was all done very quietly. Uh, I then started providing information to folks in the Congress, such as Representative Dan Burton, who was chairman of the Government House Reform and Oversight Committee, uh, Senator Dick Bryan of Nevada, ironically, home of Area 51, um, on the Senate Intelligence Committee and many others. Those proceedings went forward as a volunteer effort, and all of this is still a volunteer effort. We are unfunded volunteers. And I do want to thank every one of the people here who made this happen, all these military whistleblowers coming forward and our staff, and most of all my wife, Emily. I'll tell you, if, if my wife, Emily, hadn't been a rock, we wouldn't be here. She's amazing. So, um, <laughs> and we got married 44 years ago in August. This coming August. So <laughs> we have four kids, 12 grandkids. So ironically, <laughs> the, the, my grandkids are the ages of my daughters when I started this process. <laughs> so it's, it's beautiful, but I really, why is this taking so long? So in my young years, I thought, okay, the, we'll get this information to the president and key people in the Congress. I'll go back to my normal life, taking care of shootings and stabbings and what have you, and off we go. Well, that didn't happen, as you all know, or you would have known. And I think the media has played a very key role recently uh, in covering this, uh, and there are whistleblowers beginning to come out in other settings besides this, and I applaud them, and I think more should do so. Uh, now, the history of this uh, is important because if you look at the, the testimony we have already, it's something like 70 to 80 people that we have debriefed, videotaped, have their transcripts, and it's available to the media and the public through our website and our YouTube channel. We've very transparently put out everything we can. Uh, to an extent, a not-for-profit uh, entity can do it with volunteers and no office and no staff. So I don't want people to not get too grand here. This has been a volunteer effort for 33 years, and those people are heroes, as are these men up on the stage with me today. Now, and just a quick trip through some of the previous witnesses. We had uh, Sergeant Clifford Stone. He was on an NBC team, nuclear biological chemical back in the 60s, was actively involved in retrieving extraterrestrial vehicle and bodies, what have you. They were called EBENs, extraterrestrial biological entities. We have his testimony. It's there for anyone to see. We have people like John Callahan, who was the top accident investigator at the FAA when the Japan Airlines event happened uh, in, in the 1980s. 
during the Reagan years, and they tried to cover it up. He took the original FAA tracking tapes. The Disclosure Project have the originals. You're welcome to see them. Those of you in the media, we can try to get those to you. So all of these sort of testimonies and witnesses have come forward already. But now we're at the stage where there's real utility because the official law now is that the government has mandated the Pentagon, the intelligence community, to research this and report back to Congress. Now, there's a problem we'll get into a moment with that whole process, which is important that you understand and particularly the media understand. But first, I want to tell you what we've handed off this week to the Congress and to the White House and to the Pentagon Aero Office, the AARO office that's tasked with investigating this. So we can go through the list of the um, material in the archive. It has government documents in the tens of thousands from the, all those countries, United States, Canada, Australia, Russia, Soviet Union, United Kingdom, and others. We have 145 top-secret facilities, some of which are black sites, that are named and on a map, and you'll see them in a moment. The supporting documentation of it are in the archive, meaning the witness's testimony, who they were, when they were there, where the location is, sometimes up to where the gate is. And that's been handed over to the United States government this week. There are 752 and counting whistleblowers who come forward over the years. Some of them are now deceased. But what's important, even the ones who are deceased, if you go to their history and their command and what they provided, there is an investigative thread to follow back in. Very important. There are also files uh, with all these witness testimonies that have been provided up to date. In the archive are 121. We learned of another one last night from a very high-level whistleblower who is not ready to come forward. So there's actually 122 crash retrieval cases of these UAPs. And those are documented. Uh, Michael Schratt, who is an aerospace historian and is working full-time with us beginning in November, had worked for Lockheed, but not the Skunk Works, uh, on conventional operations. And he is doing those investigations for us and also the beautiful um, illustrations of what these witnesses have had to share. And you will see those. Then we also have um, the documents that include includes names of witnesses. In other words, government documents that are not declassified that we have. Now, we'll get into this in a minute. And there are many uh, so-called deep throws who provide intel in the background who are working with us, uh, some of whom are very senior in these operations. Others are people who have just incidentally been involved. Okay, next. So this is just a thumb. Pictures of all these guys that we already have come forward. They're there for you to see. They run from NASA folks and, and all that. It's in the YouTube channel. It's in the archive. Those were done. Uh, all these were up to 2001. So we're talking a long time ago, but that exists. It's perhaps a tree that fell in the woods a lot of you didn't know about. Next. And I want to go through this very quickly. This is just a scrolling list of the, the witness list. Each one of these witnesses has a file where they have either been interviewed or provide intelligence and corresponded with me and that I have debriefed personally over the last 30 years. So 
you're going to see this goes on for about a hundred named persons and then it becomes a black list. It just has to be blacked out. Why? I'm not holding anything back except what I've been requested to by people whose confidence I have told them I will keep. So I'm a medical doctor. We understand patient, you know, doctor confidentiality, like an attorney understands that. But until these guys want to be unmasked and come forward, we will not disclose their names except the redacted list uh, is something available to the media and to the public now. In addition to that, and it's very important, the unredacted list and the full files, including all my correspondence files, are in the unredacted archive. It's about, let's see, uh, isn't it cool that you can put a, terabytes on something like this? <laughs> this is all it is, but it's about a terabyte. We have about eight terabytes of information. We're in the process of scanning it and trying to put it into a searchable database. This has been provided to the intelligence community, as I mentioned, Pentagon, Congress, and the White House. It is also the redacted version would be available to the media if you can help us get it on a hard drive. We're really not funded properly, and each of these costs several hundred dollars. So we gave out a thousand of them. It's more than we've ever had. But nevertheless, it is an open archive. Eventually, we want to have it on an Internet site. But the names that you're seeing now, you're going to see all their information is blacked out. And it's because they've asked not to be named. Now, they can be known by people who are working in a skiff and have a vault and who have the ability to then pursue it in the interest of national security. That has been provided to these key offices. So I just wanted to give you that as sort of an overview of how the list was constructed. It is by no means complete. We have a new whistleblower coming forward every week or two now at this point. And uh, Michael Schratzer nodding his head. Yeah, this has become a torrent. And so we want to set up a mechanism. We're recommending that you'll hear what our recommendations are for the president and Congress to resolve this crisis. Next. So I wanted to mention that these bases, if you look at them, let's go to this is where all these illegal operations have happened. I'm saying illegal because we can prove that this information, as Senator Inouye said, you'll hear his statement in a moment, has been run by a very shadowy, deep black operation. And we're not talking the legal black budget of the United States. We're talking about projects that presidents and CI directors and secretaries of defense, members of the Congress who have a need to know and are cleared TSSCI in SCIFs, secure compartmented information facilities, have been blatantly either gaslit Denied access. That is the foundation of everything we've done, is that these projects are a priori illegal and therefore unconstitutional and have to be reined in because not doing so is a threat to the national security. So here is your list. I'm not going to go through 145 sites. Some of them are black sites. Some of them are bases you know about, like Wright Patterson, Edwards, Nellis, Area 51, so called. But all of them are based on witness testimony and intelligence we've gathered over the last 30 years. And it's time for it to be disclosed. And so now you have it. Next. I was down to talk to my doctor about Rebelsis. 
Ask your health care provider about Rebelsis today. Here's one. And people go, this go out in the Hobby Desert. Michael Schrapp took this picture when it was uh, okay to fly near it in a small private plane. It is the a site for the Lockheed Range underground entrance. What's in there? Well, there are man-made, and this is the big story. No one's telling you. A large number of the UAPs are, in fact, deep black budget, electrogravitic, electromagnetic field propulsion devices based on the study of extraterrestrial vehicles that began in the 1940s. That is a fact. We can prove it. So when you see these sort of places, just remember many of them, I want to be careful what I'm saying here. Someone who is in charge of the black budget in the United States in 2022 went out to the Lockheed Skunk Works based on some information he had. He was shown a bunch of old jet aircraft. He knew he was being gaslit. And they reached out to me and I said, what do you want? I'll give you everything we have. And that's what's happened over the last 16 months. So I cannot name this person, but they're a wonderful person of enormous integrity and a hero of our country. Um, so I want to just go through quickly some of the new ones who aren't here. Now, the reason these have initials, they're waiting to be cleared for coming forward publicly. They're afraid. Let me explain to you why they are. This man, here's just his incoming letter. We get these every day. Now, uh, he's afraid he'll lose his pension. He signed an 80-year non-disclosure agreement. He has been threatened, and some of these have seriously had their lives threatened. It's a very thuggish situation going on that the Department of Justice and FBI need to drill down on very quickly. Next. Here's an illustration of one event that he was involved in uh, back when there was a extraterrestrial vehicle that crashed and then ultimately ended up at Lawton, uh, Oklahoma, near Fort Sill. Uh, this man has been in a skiff with these objects. These illustrations are based on his direct testimony and hours of discussions since 2016. Here is a small extraterrestrial body, about 39 inches long, that was retrieved in that operation. There are extraterrestrials of various sizes, the last known count I had of different civilizations involved with this, about 60 to 70 in that range, and I think there could be more next. This is one of the underground command centers that uh, he was assigned to in the from the Pentagon. Uh, he was with technical management office and then some other offices and investigated some criminal activities that occurred with a three-star general uh, related to this subject that the Department of Justice was basically unable to prosecute because they were denied access to the operations. Next. Here's one that was uh, also in this another facility as an extraterrestrial vehicle. Uh, he actually was there very close to it. This gentleman wants to come forward. He needs to be protected. And that's why we're calling for explicit witness protection and explicit pension and asset protection for these whistleblowers. Next. And this is just an indication of a type of electromagnetic system that actually can uh, cloak any tank or any object that we've developed over the years. And he was read into this as well. Next. So there's another gentleman. I'm going to run through these very quickly. We'd be here for 30 hours if I didn't. I'm just giving you a tip of the iceberg, right? This is a guy who is at the Dugway Proving Grounds, very key facility, MS we call him. He was a worked for C. Martin Corporation contractor. 
And uh, he was in a facility that had an extraterrestrial vehicle that had, was being studied by scientists. He knows the chief scientist involved. He has named that individual to us, and they can all be subpoenaed now. So this object was there in 2009. He didn't know the date of acquisition, but he thought it was fairly recent. Next. He also was read into and had a, the chief scientist show him the location, which we now have, of a dumb, deep underground military base that is in the Dugway sector, so-called Avery sector, A-V-E-R-Y, and it has huge capacity for parking. You go in, and there's a vast underground complex in that location. That location has been handed off to investigators with the U.S. government. Next. This gives an illustration of the size of this. You could put easily on the platform that goes down the Air Force One. It's a very large elevator goes down underground. Next. And then we have this gentleman. He was not long ago in the Nellis Range in the Nevada test site north of, of Nellis Air Force Base. And he, uh, next slide, was on a retrieval team. Now, let me explain how this guy got involved. He was on, recruited out of Fort Campbell to be somebody to be on a retrieval team with a top secret clearance to pick up when we have an accident with a, a helo helicopter or jet because uh, there's classified technology on those often. And this, our YouTube pilot here will explain that perhaps. But the point is he went from there and that was preparatory to him being on a retrieval team for this. So he was involved with this operation. It was a man-made, so-called alien reproduction vehicle. It's called by some people, or AT. A lot of people just call them advanced technology. It's a euphemism. But it's based on studying the electrogravitics and magnetic field propulsion systems of the interstellar vehicles that involve the science of quantum entanglement and, you know, going, you know, basically you want to go from one point in space and to another. Say this is one point, this is another you're not going through a straight line. You're folding space-time. That's how you're doing. And we're not going to do a physics <laughs> lesson here. You know, had enough of that in pre-med. But anyway, so this is an object. <laughs> and I'm not a physicist. We have a physicist here. Uh, but this object was retrieved because it became disabled. Some of these retrieval operations are not extraterrestrial, but they would like sometimes the public to think maybe it was because the bigger secret, I'll tell you right now, is not the extraterrestrial issue. It's these technologies, which an unsupervised and frankly illegal operation have, which is a threat to the national security, period. This we will prove. And this is a bigger threat, the existence of these in the hands of unsupervised operations that have escaped the oversight of the president of the office of the president and the Congress for since 1956 to 1960. Hence Eisenhower's speech for where the military industrial complex. This is actually what he was talking about. I know people who have since passed away, like our witness, Stephen Lovkin, who was at the White House with Eisenhower, who said point blank, the president lost control of these projects and that he was very upset and angry about it. But these projects became so compartmentalized that he no longer could control them. So this is one. You can see there are rivets and what have you. Uh, and it, it we'll go through this later after our fine gentleman and whistleblower speak. But I want to give you this overview really quickly. Next, 
So this is actually an extraterrestrial vehicle, a very large one that was at the uh, Nellis North Range. We have the location of the helipad. It's Delta Force manned. Uh, this occurred uh, back in that same era around 2009, about 65 feet across. It's seamless, but it has sort of a clamshell uh, part of it. There was a, uh, a, a ramp that rolled out, like he said, like a fruit roll-up that came out of it. And there was a, 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 a RV above it that was headed in lock. It was an electromagnetic lock on this object. I think it was stunned, and that's how it was brought down. Um, this is not infrequent. Uh, not every day, but not infrequent. I've said over the last 80 years, at least 122 have come down. So there are helicopters. He was on the team to pick up debris. This one was, of course, intact. It began to pulse and operate and came back to life, as it were. And uh, the entire uh, group that was there basically were put in some kind of a stasis electromagnetically. Sounds like science fiction. Teleported back to the helipad instantly. But before that happened, he had this meeting with two of these extraterrestrial biological entities, a male and a female. And this is a very accurate, according to the whistleblower, uh, who needs to come forward uh, when there's adult protection. Uh, and they had no uh, penna, the ears outside, and had no hair. And there was a male and a female. And it was made very clear to him by these beings that they were completely non-hostile. All extraterrestrial civilizations are non-hostile. If they were hostile, the technologies they have would have been made quite clear to us in August of 1945. We'll get to this in a moment. So this, uh, later he had an event when he tried to leave that command where there was a fake, what's called a program life form alien. These have been used in what you hear in the fabled lore of abductions and stuff in the UFO lore. Uh, this is actually a man-made creature, but it's not living per se. It has a, a covering the skin like it tried to take him with one of these ARVs in command and some people camouflaged in the ground near his truck after he got out of this command. He was disgusted with what was happening. He no longer wanted to be part of that project, but they weren't happy he left. I told him it's a miracle that you live to tell this tale. And so what happened is that his pickup truck went into sort of complete lock, motor died, because of this man-made UFO, UAP, he opened the door because he saw this creature, which he thought was an alien. It's not. And he hit it. It fell. He kicked it. And it split open this outer. And he saw the integrated circuits and fiber optics and what have you. This man I've dealt with quite a bit. He was ready to come to the Aero Skiff. He had a nasty encounter with people who threatened him directly. This is recent. Uh, and so we have not been able to bring him to the Aero Pentagon briefing. Next. And this is one that came in um, 2009. We had a, a witness SL. We call him Coast Guard. And he was, this is his incoming letter to me, redacted information. And then he told us about an event off of Guam where his Coast Guard ship, which is a buoy servicing vehicle out there, was called in on a mutual assist and got there. And you'll see on the next picture, there was an extraterrestrial vehicle that we had downed but got lost in the deep waters there in the Marianas Trench. And uh, it had gotten caught and tangled up in 
oddly, a fisherman net from Japan, a, a trawler, big one, big trawler. And so they were called in to retrieve this. He went and did retrieve it. He was part of the crew that most of them went down quarters, but uh, with blacked out windows, he was there above crew, above ground, took a very sharp object to try to scratch it, impenetrable, could not scratch it, could not penetrate it. These are very advanced metallurgy, nanomolecular material, interstellar vehicles. Next. So what's going on with this? <laughs> All of you have seen over the last four or five years, these uh, footage, the footage come out and the Pentagon's confirmed are three-dimensional objects with sensors and what have you, the so-called Tic Tac and others. Now, I've spoken to one of the pilots who chased these objects you've seen on CNN, 60 Minutes, all these places. Uh, what hasn't been told when this event happened over the, or in the early 2000s is that these objects, which you'll see in a moment, particularly one of them, we have matching top secret witness testimony of them being a man-made object that our jet pilots and military don't know exists. This is dangerous in terms of uh, deconflicting operations. So let's go to the next and play this. that have been building these are deep black illegal and they are not disclosing it properly to the authorities in our constitutional democracy and republic. This is a, based on a sighting of a group of people. It's basically the same object uh, in the 1960s, 1967. Let's go to the next slide. And it's sort of a sketch here, the so-called vintage steam boiler. These have been seen in multiple places. Uh, around since the 1950s and 60s. Next, here's one that's a very good color illustration of it. Notice the uh, probes on it. Extraterrestrial vehicles do not have those, these, these electrostatic discharge objects. We're not going to get into all the physics of this. Our team understands it, and we're welcome to share that in a longer brief with media folks. And here's the 2004 off the coast of San Diego Tic Tac. It's fundamentally the same object. Next. And here it is. We have a top secret whistleblower came forward a few months ago in 1991. So now we're talking quite some time ago, way before the 2004 event, uh, that is offloading off a C-130, uh, one of these uh, UAPs, but it's actually a man-made one. And here you have the color illustration. 
This man is very afraid to come forward. He was warned not to. And at one point was told he would be, quote, executed next. So here's what we need to go through very quickly. It's a lot to unpack. This is not intended to be, you know, we just did a two-day conference right next door. The media are welcome to get that entire event with all the details uh, for you if you wish to have it or people get it to you. But basically, there are two types of these so-called UAPs, and I've said this. Some are extraterrestrial vehicles, ETVs, and some are ATs or ARVs, advanced reproduction vehicles or uh, alien reproduction vehicles. People use different terms. Uh, the extraterrestrial groups are absolutely not hostile. However, screaming caps, they are increasingly concerned about human hostility and our weapon systems, which include nuclear and scalar, the so-called, uh, with Dr. Zahari shared this this weekend, uh, about what scalar electromagnetic fields are. But just to give you a sense of it, you all know what an electromagnetic pulse is. That's at the speed of light. The scalar systems are instead of a wave, it's a point that goes out longitudinally. Some call them longitudinal waves. These have been studied. Tesla talked about scalar systems. They have been weaponized. And those are the primary systems used to target and hit these electromagnetic field propulsion craft that cause them to fall like a rock out of the sky. You do not travel from another star system and cannot navigate a thunderstorm in New Mexico. Mm. That ain't going to happen. So even at that point, these had been early uh, systems. We have a FBI memo from a field agent that we released. It's now one of the most watched, viewed documents on the FBI website of the fact that a field agent at the Roswell, after Roswell, said to J. Edgar Hoover that a disk was downed because we had switched on a new radar system. So let me explain the euphemisms that are used in, in this field. Radar can track an aircraft by bouncing a wave off of the fuselage, but it also can have piggybacked an active system to not to hit it. So you can have an active weapon system embedded in a radar system. So that's what began to be experimented with, and this is why from the mid-40s forward, there were a number of these downed objects that we've been able to document. If we've documented 122 of them, I suspect there have been multiple numbers of that. Um, so the this what's very important about this, these technologies are unsanctioned. They are illegal operations, and this can be proven in any court of law, and we're about to launch a massive civilian RICO action, racketeer influence, corrupt organization action against the corporations and the individuals involved. These technologies would immediately solve the world's energy, environmental, and poverty problems. Why? These are what people call senior executive with a big Fortune 100 company contacted us. They're called, some people say free energy, but they're zero point in quantum vacuum energy systems pulling energy out of, let's call it the fabric of space-time. These begin to be developed. Tesla knew about this. So I think Elon Musk doesn't have a Tesla. He has a Musk, a real Tesla. We didn't have to plug in. I'd have one little battery in it. But the point is, is that these technologies would have a huge revolutionary effect. Macroeconomically, there would be some losers, oil industry, public utilities, nuclear power, now wind, solar, 
surface roads eventually would be obsolete. So it's a very significant technological advance. And for near enough century, they have all been withheld. We just released an educational documentary film you can all see called The Lost Century and How to Reclaim It. It's a two-hour expose of this. I suggest everyone look at it if you have a chance tonight. So these organizations have also been targeting and successfully down the ET vehicles. The covert group has technologies to launch a convincing false flag operation detrimental to the national security. This was the chief topic of my briefing for three-star general Patrick Hughes uh, at the Pentagon during the Clinton years because he was not read into this. There were some events that had happened where you could trigger a world war because your top folks in the Congress, the White House, the Pentagon, and CIA, many of them, if they're not part of this covert group, this deep black group illegally, they have no idea what's going on because of the nature of TSSCI, the hyper compartmentalization that happened in the 50s. So these actions really are a threat to world security and national security, and they have to be reined in immediately. I want to use my words carefully here. A clock, I understand, has been put on this getting resolved through hearings and other means, and by the end of this year, it needs to be resolved. Uh, and that's all I will say at this point. So these actions really are dangerous. They are crimes against humans worldwide. We're going to get into that. And some of these crimes need to be referred to the international court. Uh, some of them involve, as you'll hear from our attorney, uh, crimes against humanity. Uh, we applaud the current actions of the Congress and the president to sign the bill to get to the bottom of this. Uh, they have very courageously stepped forward. We're trying to get them everything they would need to know. And I will tell you, the Disclosure Project Intelligence Archive literally has everything they would need to know to get to the absolute end of this. It's been handed to them. So the chief characteristics of this illegal secret government called ISG projects, they, they're the legal, the CIA folks and Pentagon people and most of the people in the government are victims of this. They're not culpable. When people say, why is the government hiding all this? Well, the government is very complex and it's highly compartmentalized. These operations have been run by a clandestine, unsanctioned group. And therefore, our military and our intelligence community and our political leaders are, in fact, victims of this secrecy. I want to refer very briefly to one of the very first CIA director, Admiral Roscoe Hillenkeeter, who in 1961 wrote to the New York Times and said, the secrecy around UFOs is a threat to the national security, not the UFOs. So what has happened is it's all been turned on its head where they're trying to say UAPs are a threat. Well, the man-made ones are, the extraterrestrial ones are. This has to be made crystal clear to the American people so we don't stumble into a absolute disaster uh, of epic proportions. So these operations that I've been referring to in the United States, we have parallel projects in Australia at Pine Gap. There are projects in the United Kingdom. These are all very sub rosa, uh, off the radar. I have done briefings for the Minister of Defenses of uh, Australia, Canada, and the Great Britain. None of them were read into these projects, and yet we had evidence they were ongoing. So they also act without acknowledging any national boundaries. What do I mean by that? 
So we have an operational uh, facilities in other countries that we move in and out of with alacrity without any knowledge or approval of that government. So this is also not good, obviously, and dangerous, but because of the nature of our operations, which can be cloaked that have these AT, ARV vehicles, they can move off radar, they can go in and out of areas, and we have witnesses who can prove what I just said. Um, Blackmail, bribery, and intimidation is the stock and trade and it's the operational core of this illegal secret government program. Many of our whistleblowers have been threatened and have been blackmailed. And in the case of some of us, attempts at bribery, including myself. Next. So these are the actions we recommend immediately now that this is all coming out by the Congress and the government. Next. And I want to remind everyone who's in office and all military know this, I do solemnly swear to affirm or affirm that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, and that I will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office on which I am about to enter, so help me God. Mm. Next. So this is a, quite a list. I want to go through it very quickly. These have been conveyed over to the government um, in, in various uh, offices. This investigation of the UAP issue, uh, and, and based on the intelligence archive, should happen immediately and be increased in its pace and scope. The presidential executive order needs to occur immediately to stand down all targeting of these extraterrestrial vehicles by these covert uh, projects because it is dangerous and it is an existential threat to security for the entire world, not just our country. The executive order requiring all military intelligence contractors and other agencies of the U.S. government to disclose to Congress and White House all information, materiel, and technologies and locations uh, and related assets. If not com- complied with, within around six months, we think that the offending party should be prosecuted criminally for treason and other crimes against the United States. Mm-hmm. The executive order. <laughs> we need an executive order where the State Department and Pentagon coordinate a global diplomatic as opposed to military response to these extraterrestrial civilizations. Should have happened. Barry Goldwater, Senator Goldwater told me it was a, excuse my language, goddamn mistake then and goddamn mistake now that this Mm -hmm. was ever kept secret like this. He was not allowed in this project. When he tried to get in, General Curtis LeMay told him he could never ask him about it again. We have that whole trail with uh, former Senator Goldwater. So the uh, we also need to have... uh, an executive order so that the U.S. Patent Office that has seized these zero-point and related technologies under bogus application of the national security laws, and we have a copy of, of an inventor had one of these happen to him, those have to be reversed, those patents have to be released, and inventors and scientists around the world that have come across these look, the laws of the universe are universal, and they've been discovered by folks, they get grabbed, they were either put on a black shelf 
or they get this national security order slapped on them. Those have to be reversed and those should be released open source to the public. We also need an executive order to immediately require that the U.S. Space Force and Pentagon coordinate assets with the State Department, the United Nations, and other governments to initiate further open communication with these civilizations. The Space Force could be very useful in this regard if it's deployed properly. All of the military would be very important. And I want to emphasize both the people who work in most of these corporations and in these agencies and the Pentagon have no knowledge excuse me, of these illegal operations. And and we should not paint them all with this brush of being culpable. It's not. These are the rogue elements. Uh, An executive order to immediately disclose advanced energy generating technologies should happen. These are held by some of these corporations and agencies. This would, within 10 to 20 years, end all pollution on Earth and all global poverty. This is not a pipe dream. Those technologies are extant. They have been around for a while, and we need them, and we need them 60 years ago, 70 years ago. Next. Next. So, you know, these are going to continue, and we don't have time to go through all of these. So the reason I'm going through these is that there's a specific action plan that we have. You can read these. They'll be in the press briefing materials if you need them. Uh, and I think it needs to happen very quickly because this is all going to come out and there needs to be an organized response. Uh, next. The congressional recommendations, Congress should immediately pass a $50 billion research bill to develop and bring forward the safe technologies related to zero-point and quantum vacuum energy systems. We pr- provided 50-some billion for the uh, chip industry. This is way more important. And frankly, it needs to come out very, very soon, given what we're facing with the climate and global poverty issues. Uh, that's something that needs to be put on the front burner. It is certainly a more important agenda than the partisan bickering that we see today. Uh, amnesty provisions need to be passed explicitly uh, for people wanting to come forward. I have a major number of folks who are executives, corporate, also whistleblowers, some of whom have been involved in activities that are not legal. If they come forward, they should have immunity so that this can all be unwound in a orderly and peaceful way. That needs to happen very quickly, and it should be included in a bill this year. Uh, the Congress should also convene open hearings on this. I understand from discussions with a member of the House Government Reform and Oversight Committee, that this has been discussed by the chairman and the speaker of the House. I think that should be put on the front burner and move forward very quickly. We will provide all information and have already provided all information they will need. There are, I'm sure, other archives that can be brought to bear and other whistleblowers are now going to be coming forward probably several a week at this point. Uh, Congress uh, should also pass legislation to explicitly protect the personal safety, like a witness protection program. It is not an exaggeration to say that in the 30-some years I've been dealing with this, 
I have dealt with multiple people who have been flat out threatened with execution. Uh, one of them is sitting here at this table. Perhaps more. Next. So this, next slide. One of the things I just want to mention is the lost century was crowdfunded. And look at the subtitle, how to reclaim it. <laughs> because there's a century of technological and scientific progress that would greatly benefit all of humanity, not just United States. We all live on this beautiful sphere floating through space together. It needs to very much come forward. It's a hundred years is long enough for secrecy. Mm-hmm. Next. So I want to introduce someone I've gotten to know. Um, we, you know, we first met some uh, last year. Uh, by the way, all of these military guys uh, have been and corporate folks have been to the Aero Skiff, the Secure Compartment Information Facility. Uh, the Disclosure Project um, has funded all of this for, for their personal needs and travel. That's why we appreciate your donations and contributions. But Colonel Heckert, uh, he is a retired and very decorated United States Air Force Command pilot. During his extensive career, Colonel Heckert flew over 100 combat reconnaissance mission including 11 years in high-altitude aircraft developed by the Lockheed Skunk Works. These were not the alien reproduction vehicles, such as the U-2 and the TR-1, and flew alongside the famed SR-71 Blackbird. In the late 70s and early 1980s, Colonel Heckert commanded the nation's largest nuclear monitoring facilities and radiological processing lab and was responsible for the airborne collection of debris from nuclear explosions worldwide, Later, he was commander of classified operations in the Middle East and subsequently served as a special project director at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio, where he was involved with countless classified development operations. Colonel Hecker also spent time working out of Groom Lake, Area 51, where he conducted flight operations and project management, evaluation, and research. Please welcome my friend and hero of our country, Colonel Hecker. Thank you for being here and listening. I need to establish just a couple facts. I've been involved with SCI vaults and code words since 1964. And my last access with the Air Force and other agencies was 1967. For the last eight months, I've been involved again in SCI Discussions, thanks to this gentleman and all of these people sitting next to you and all of those volunteers. The things I want to share are first just a little bit of historical information quickly. You know the name Kelly Johnson. Kelly Johnson and the gentleman, Ben Rich, who succeeded him, I, I got to know very well. I've got a 1953 UFO report signed by Kelly Johnson and his engineers. And in that same UFO thing, about four hours later, it appears over his house. And Dr. Greer has a letter that Kelly Johnson sent to the National Director of Intelligence 
saying this is real, this needs to be investigated. I am a very fortunate to have been a pilot. I've got over 7,000 hours of time. I currently live in Alaska with my wife, Alice, and a whole bunch of grandchildren, and that's a real blessing. The uh, two documented encounters, and I'm sorry that, uh, do they have that up on the screen, or are they just showing that on? Uh, I'll make sure it's available, but these are the two airplanes that I flew that uh, had UFO encounters. The first one was during the latter stages of the Vietnam War. I was flying an operation called Linebacker 3 going into Laos. I was in an orbit at 14,500 feet just south of the Laotian border, and my two armed escorts, because the RF is unarmed, and they're there to protect me, were delayed on takeoff. So I'm doing just a racetrack type of orbit. There are things that monitor in warfare called GCI sites. These are radar sites that vector in the fighters to the, the people that are intercepting you. What happens next is that I get an alert from three GCI sites and the early foreman AWACS that I've got traffic that is a fast mover near Mach 1 coming out of North Vietnam, Laos, heading for me in orbit. That concerns me because my armed escort isn't there. Now I'm completing about halfway down this next pathway and they tell me, oh, don't worry, that target is above 70,000 feet, and you know it can't get at you at this point. So I'm a little relieved, but then I finally get to see it, and it's on a wavelength of light that I've only seen one other place, and that is in a nuclear pile on an active nuclear power generation, and it's called Teller Light. It is very unique, very white, very, very bright. So we look up, and it's an 11 o'clock, and over here off my left shoulder about 10 o'clock. My backseater is stumbling to make their emergency detection systems and our defensive systems active. We watch this thing, and it's way above there, and I'm a little relieved until all of a sudden through the midterm, mid-term uh, of the uh, the uh, orbit, it comes from 70,000 feet down to 12,500 feet in two seconds. And now it's tracking off my nose and staying at five nautical miles away. It sets off everything in my aircraft, the three GCIs and the AWACs are really concerned about me at this point. And as we go on parallel with this thing flying at five miles an hour, I'm really concerned. And then they ask me, will you intercept this if you can? Well, the airplane, the RF-4C, is a Mach 2 plus airplane. 
I've been in flight for a little while, and so I probably, if I go to Afterburner, only have about 15 minutes of fuel left, but I agreed to intercept. The reason I did was I have a new one-of-the-kind IR infrared sensor, but it's on the bottom of the airplane. So my backseater and I agree, hey, this is important. We can see this. We need to document it. I go to Afterburner, and we accept accelerate very quickly through Mach 1, go up to about Mach 1.2, and I close to within three nautical miles of this UFO. And we've got it now on our radar. We've got it pegged. The guy in the back seat can't see it on his display because that sensor's pointing down. So I pitch up, do a supersonic climb up, and he says, we got it, we got it, we got it. That white light at three miles goes out of sight within less than two seconds. And they say, don't worry about it. It's above 80,000 feet in those two seconds. I go back to the home base because I'm out of fuel. Land, all that material, all the mission material is confiscated. And I'm told, don't talk about it. Well, what happens next is I'm not happy with that answer because I've seen something very, very real. I call the GCI site on what's called the Audubon or telephone system. I talk, I say, hey, I'd like to talk to the senior controller that was on duty, tell him I was a UFO pilot that they were just controlling. And he comes on the phone and says, hey, we're all really excited about this. And then I hear him say, yes, sir. Okay, says bye, click. I couldn't talk to the other two GCI sites, and that goes away, and I never know anything about it until later. The next one is on a U2R, and that's a blackbird. I'm at 70,000 feet above that on the DMZ of Korea. This has been a combo mission, which means I'm taking photo intelligence during the daylight, and then I'm doing what is called an e-lent comment mission in a butterfly track three miles off the DMZ. We have a sunshade that protects you during the daytime in the U-2 because the sunlight's so intense. You're about above uh, 98% of the atmosphere at that point. Anyway, I have that slidden back. Everything's looking good. And all of a sudden, I am blinded by that same frequency light from above. It turns my black airplane white. And the U-2, as the last-ditch saving method to avoid a missile, can do a turn at less than seven nautical miles at the same altitude the SR-71 is at. SR-71 takes 160 miles to do that same U-turn. There is nothing to my knowledge in the world that it is man-made that can stay with the U-2 at that altitude, turning the max turn, unless it's another U-2. This light tracks me from above. Now, I can show you later missiles that come between me and my other RF-4, My airplane's got holes in it. They never made me abort 
a reconnaissance operational mission. This scared me so bad that I had to abort. But when I land, normal debrief does not take place. They just say, go shower and go to your room. Okay. So what happens next in my career is that uh, because of my wife's concern, she says, hey, we got to take a respite of this. By the way, she worked uh, at uh, Air America at Ludorn Air Force Base in Thailand for the CIA. Anyway, she says, we got to get out of this. You know, you're, you're getting a little two cents, and now we have two children, and I'm worried. So I take an assignment to what's called AVTAC, and AVTAC was established in its predecessor in 1945 due to the development and the concern of little boy and fat man, the two nuclear bombs. Those are important because we have a detailed history of air sampling, pollution sampling, and it was primary pollution that they were concerned about radiologically from 1945 on. At at that point, I'm assigned as a base commander level. I have sites all over, and I'm sorry I can't show you a slide of that, but we're involved in things like the raising of K129, it's a video that's been uh, put out about five years ago that shows my site at ADTU detected the breakup of that submarine. That same site at ADTU and my seismic site will, de- will sense a nuclear underwater, deep underwater test out of South Africa, and that's called the VELA, V-E-L-A incident. And my boss at headquarters is fired over that incident. But two years later, because the administration denied that that test ever took place, the vice chief staff, the Air Force, General Mathis, the chief scientist for the White House, and the secretary of the interior come to my vault. And they want a briefing on our data and if we really think that that happened. They left believing it really happened. And as a result, South Africa destroys four nuclear warheads they had. Israel will never admit that they were part of that joint venture. From there, I go to Europe as the first, one of the first four in the TR1 program. And through just accidental events again, because of the sickness that our intel officer goes through, I'm the only one that has a code word clearance. And so I'm assigned to do his duties while he recovers. And I'm exposed to all of the peacetime aerial reconnaissance data in Europe and Africa. I'm in charge of scheduling those events and trying to get us integrated with the TR-1 into the peacetime aerial program in the European theater. From there, uh, this is supposed to be a four-year assignment. At the 14th month of my tour in Europe, 
I am required to, or I was asked, do I want to fly a high flyer again? And of course I said yes. You do a process when you go to a classified site called sheep dipping. And so they put fictitious orders in your official files. I go overseas and work in the Middle East and actually work with Delta Force on a hijacking in uh, June of 1985 during that tour. And uh, we lost a soldier on the ramp. But this is in direct coordination with MI6 because it's a British base, and that's now declassified. But uh, it was quite an experience. The only problem is that uh, there was a conflict in the chain of command. I was supposed to be the chief test pilot for the U-2 program back at Edwards. That's a follow-on assignment they promised me. Instead, that assignment's canceled. I'm held in that remote location for 10 days. My wife was about to disown me, and I am told I'm going to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. The new job for the first six months is director of high-altitude test for the Air Force. The next job, and this is through the end of my career, is the program director uh, for the U-2, TR-1, SR-71, and other advanced classified programs. I need to transfer to this and tell you about a recovery that we did called Project Morning Light. It is a reconnaissance satellite that comes down and eventually parts of it end up in Grave Slate Lake and there, there's radioactivity that's cleaned up from that. That also involves a U-2, or pardon me, a UFO. Uh, the, the other thing I want to just share with you is the three events in Area 51. And those events themselves, uh, our first is security breach. And the reason I'm there is because we, some of my funds in my black programs and I was required to justify those, that blood black budget to the, the House and Senate intelligence, select intelligence committee on a quarterly basis. Some of those funds are not being spent. My projects aren't going forward. I'm there and I overhear two people talking about using Navy sensors to photograph an aerial vehicle that's flying at night and they're going to make a lot of money. Well, I report that immediately. Those people are arrested and I don't know anything more about that event except none of that imagery they took got released. The next one is that uh, I have a number of cost overruns in my projects. I'm back and I look and I'm finding that other programs are using my funds diverted for their use, and that's what's slowing my developments, and I'm very upset about it. The last part, and this is, uh, gosh, I'm sorry I'm having my senior moments, if you'll forgive me, but uh, 
I, I will let you, but I'm available afterwards. I'm sorry I've taken so long. I know this is a tiring briefing. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Lieutenant Colonel Heckert. Uh, there's a lot more. I said each of these uh, witnesses have stories to unpack from, for example, Area 51 and what have you. It would take hours, but I want to give you a sense that this is really the tip of the iceberg. These represent 0.5% of the Disclosure Project witness list. So the next gentleman I'd like to introduce has become a, a, a figure of, of great support for us. Uh, he's a Marine uh, who in 2009 in Indonesia had a direct encounter with one of the man-made operations, and he is Michael Herrera. He has very courageously come forward. The first time he contacted me, because I know of these sort of operations that he came across on, a, on his mission, I told him that every single person I knew who knew about what he had seen had not lived to tell this story. He is enormously courageous. Thank you and welcome to Michael Herrera. Well, thank you all for being here. Um, what I'm about to tell you hasn't been something that I've disclosed until recently in the help of Dr. Greer, among other people, so I appreciate your help with this. In 2009, we were my unit, which was the most degraded infantry battalion in the entire Marine Corps, which was 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines, was called in to do humanitarian assistance operations out in the Philippines, which was Operation Kitsana which we were attached to the 31st Marine Expeditionary Unit, which conducts maritime operations all throughout Southeast Asia in conjunction with the 7th Naval Fleet, which houses one uh, landing helo deck or LHD among LPDs, which is what I was on, called a uh, USS Denver. Ironically, that's where I'm from, so kind of felt like home. Now, um, during that operation in Quetzana in the Philippines, they had actually heard that a tsunami and earthquake hit the western part of Sumatra, which is western Indonesia, uh, Padang City more specifically. Out of all the ships in the 7th Fleet, the ship I was on was the only one that was routed to that location, which was oddly strange, but then again, this is my first humanitarian operation, so I don't know the logistics of it, but the skipper of the ship would probably know that information. So um, this happened September 30th. We end up getting called and dropped anchor around October 8th. We are briefed in the wardroom, which is the officer's mess where they eat um, like their cafeteria per se. We're briefed that there is some of President Obama's family members that are present on either in the city or somewhere near there. They had a SEAL platoon that was ready to go to retrieve those people. Um, us knowing well that uh, Indonesia is also the second largest terrorist capital where they train these guys. And they'll send them up to whatever theater of operation where anybody wants a piece of the United States, they can, they ship them up to go handle it. So we know that well. And, um, we were then briefed that we were going to be armed during this operation just to also provide security 
for the transportation coming to basically drop off uh, medical supplies, sheltering items, food, purified water, things like that. So um, they ended up selecting certain Marines to go ahead and do this. We were only in sticks of uh, six, six Marines, so it had uh, NCOs on top of uh, other Marines to help with that. So they, we again boarded uh, CH-53 Super Stallions, which are gigantic helicopters that are roughly 100 feet long. Uh, I love the design of them. It's my personal favorite. Um, but we ended up boarding this on the ship, and we flew to the southwestern part of the city, which is Padang. Looked a lot uh, different through satellite imagery that I've recently seen. Back then, is a lot different, especially because most of it was decimated on fire, rubble, flooded, you name it. Basically, the worst kind of scenario you could ever see. From then, um, once we touched down on this landing strip, it took probably about two minutes. Um, and then again, the pilots got radio confirmation to go ahead and drop us into certain parts. So we again dropped to a hasty LZ, which took probably about six, seven minutes to fly to from that position. And uh, we dropped to a hasty LZ. We got off the bird. And what we were instructed to do at that point through the briefing was to push to a high ground at least to get better observation. As a Marine, the tactical advantage that you get from having a, um, you know, observation from a top point is you see everything clearly. You could also, you know, coordinate from there. At that time, we had did a tactical column, which we were able to get eyes on pretty much everything, especially with six Marines. So we have the effective uh, communication at that point. If we need to engage, we can properly do it within the amount of ammunition we've got, as well as the weapons that we got, which were only M16A4s. So at that point, we decided to push forward. We trekked up about 300 meters. At this time, I have a Panasonic camera that has the ability to take photographs. It has a, a you know, ability to take videos, obviously. When we got to this high point, I was taking video camera, and I had actually turned to the north, which just kind of slopes down. And right there was something that stuck out like a sore thumb, especially with jungle terrain, things like that, junk, you know, vegetation, very green stuff, was something that stuck out so well. It's always going to be basically imprisoned in my mind for the rest of my life, and it has been for 14 years, was something that was rotating, and it was transitioning between colors like a light uh, matte gray as well as a dark matte black. So in between, that's what it kept. And it was very smooth. We had to, all looked at each other as we got online, and we decided to investigate. The further thing I want to say is that I actually took pictures and video of this before we actually trucked down. We had a dump pouch where we basically, if we expend ammunition, we want to retain our magazines, so we put those there. So I dropped my camera in there. Um, and we decided to go down. We didn't have any communications, which was weird, and that was a very odd thing, and it's something that either could have been good that we didn't, or it could have been something that could have been very bad. Um, and it just how, however you want to look at that. Once we got down this slope, we were approximately 150 meters away from this craft. When I got to the, when we all got to the point where we could see it, just like behind here, again, Mr. Shratt, phenomenal job. You can see that the craft here actually had uh, was roughly about 300 feet. And the reason why I know this is because you can fit three of the helicopters that we flew in on underneath this craft. It was rotating a, a clockwise motion. The panels here that you see, um, the black ones, at least three of them, was like a vanta black, very dark. I have no idea what that was. On the very top, there was like a pyramid structure that you could see the shadowing of it, which would elicit that was a pyramid structure. And it had an audible hum to it. 
um, kind of like a guitar amp if you were to unplug that or like a transformer. It's very audible. If I was to hear that sound again, I could tell you, okay, it's probably this thing or something similar to that. It's very distinct. And the way that it was floating, which was about 10, you know, 15, 20 feet off the ground, it was kind of a very eerie thing to see because I've never seen anything like that in my life. When we got up to that point, we were then intercepted by a team of um, soldiers or um, rogue military force, if you will. The most concerning thing about this is they all had American dialects. They had American gear. They had OTVs, black. They had black camouflage. They had very similar setups to what we have, but more high speed, something what you would see special operation, operation groups these days have. They had no insignias on. They had no ranks. They had nothing that would signify who they were. They had black ball caps. They had M4A4s that were equipped with ACOGs, which was a step up from what we were currently issued, as well as PEC-16 IR illumination devices that you use for night vision and uh, night patrols, things like that. So we were engaged. We had eight of them drop, put the drop on us. You could audibly hear them flow the safety selectors off. They basically started screaming at us, telling that what we were doing, we were not allowed to be there. Who were we with? What were we doing there? Um, threatened that they could kill us right then and there. We could get lost in the jungle. They could throw us out of a helicopter if they needed to. Um, it was very nerve-wracking at that point, especially looking to my fellow Marines and seeing their reactions on their faces, too. We were all freaking scared, uh, to say nonetheless. So with that being said, each Marine was then patted down along with myself. We were had our weapons taken from us. They were basically cleared in condition for, which means they had no round chamber, no magazine in. They dumped our magazines out of our mag pouches as well into the deck. And then again, um, because of Marine Corps order, how things are with that, we were told to keep our military ID in our left breast pocket. So they knew that. They asked for our military identification. We gave it to them, obviously, because they have guns in our face. So provided that to them. They had something that looked like modern-day uh smartphones but this is 2009 so it's not really as high tech compared to obviously today so they took some pictures of our military id and then they had something remind me of a bat system which a biometrics tracking system that we we would use um this is for insurgents or anything like that it would take fingerprints it would take retina scans it would take pictures of them and document them so if there was other militaries that were coming to relieve our post they would actually have this information too to know who they are dealing with that's what it remind me of and i had trouble scanning the ids um, as this is going on, we're going back between these guys as well as what's going on in the background. At that time, there was four of these trucks, which were uh, F-350s. They were up-armored. They were pretty beefy. They had um, weapon cases that I've seen before because of something that we've actually loaded weapons into. And they had two of them that were in the back of each truck. They also had these containers that was illustrated right here which come to find out through recent relevations from yesterday from uh, somebody who came forward to Dr. Greer. I don't know who they are, but what they had told him and what he has told me is that this gentleman knows exactly what these were used for because they had like a cylinder on the front, which is either for oxygen or what I have hypothesized was for vacuum sealing, uh, which lead me to um, suspect that they were smuggling narcotics or drugs. Uh, come to find out it's more disturbing than that. Um, this gentleman has firsthand account with this and says that it was for people. It's very disheartening, especially because that part of the world have already gotten ravaged. And it's something that is very hard to see right now because of what I've witnessed. And it's very disheartening. And this is why I'm up here. Without the ones like you working tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. 
No matter your industry, Granger's here for you with professional grade supplies. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. So they loaded these onto this uh, platform that you can see right there. And as they got up there, um, like I said, I was going back and forth. Uh, these guys are still searching our stuff. They're still, you know, pointing their weapons at us. And uh, after the last two trucks that I saw that actually got onto that platform unloaded, they had four guys in each truck that would unload everything. However they did it, I can't tell you because, again, I was focused on this as well. And um, these trucks drove off. As that happened, this platform actually rose up off the ground itself. The top part of the craft actually met it down in the middle like this and uh, formed into one solid piece. Um, it floated right above the tree line. As soon as it was able to break that tree line, it actually had the on the corners of each of these, which was an octagonal shape uh, craft, by the way. On each corner, it emanated a light. It was either red, yellow, green, or blue. Only those four colors I can distinctly remember. It didn't make any additional high-pitched sounds when it rose up. Once it got past that tree line, it shot over to the left, basically where the ocean was. At a rat, uh, so fast, um, I would estimate probably three, four, five thousand miles an hour instantaneous like that. Uh, there was no rotor wash, no exhaust that would disturb the trees, vegetation, the coconuts that were on these trees were not even touched. It produced no sonic boom. This thing was so fast. So um, as that happened, they basically had told us to turn around. As we turned around, kind of a couple things that went through my head at that point was that we're done. They actually started loading our magazines into our vet, um, back into our vest in a way that would be hard to get them to put them into a weapon and to actually, you know, charge a weapon and actually put it around in a chamber. So um, they put those in. They actually slung our M16s on our back for us. But when they did it, Marine Corps not really issued the best gear, especially at that time. So the slings back then were, I would say, subpar quality, um, cut my neck pretty good, and they you know, kind of went in that motion and made sure they were secured so we couldn't really get them as easy. And um, they escorted us back up this slope. And they one, they told us they were not going to, we were not allowed to look back. Two, that we were not able to talk about this. They were actually, two of the guys um, were actually talking about either, hey, should we smoke these guys right now? You know, that's what they kept saying. It was kind of feeding more into the fear at that point because, again, I don't know who these guys are. I know they had American gear. They had American sidearms as well. Um, if these guys have um, actually taken an oath like we have and then why they're going against people like us and even willing to kill um, servicemen who just even stumbled onto this, it just blows my mind and it's very sick. So as we broke atop this hill, we decided to book him. And we ran back to the LZ. There was a gunnery sergeant that was attached to the ship. I don't know this gentleman personally, but I know he's very ha unhappy with seeing us because we had actually had our weapons slung. We were not combat effective at that point. If we needed to be, they asked. Uh, he asked specifically why we were. We didn't tell him exactly why. We just came up with an excuse. And then um, we waited for the next CH-53 to approach, and we got on board, flew back to the ship. We turned our weapons in back to the armory. We took our gear off back in our berthing, and we went upstairs to be debriefed by an admiral that I've never seen before, and it was kind of somebody who was out of place. I don't know if he has any kind of um, relevance to this at all, but if that's the case, if he does, I hope he comes forward with that information. It would be very helpful. So as uh, we're going to go ahead and fast track to a couple days later, which we end up in Subic Bay, which is like the party town in the Philippines. So um, we had three days there of liberty. 
The first night I come back, because we had to report back to the ship each night, we were not allowed to stay out in town. Um, my rack was on my cam, or my camera was on my rack, and the memory card that was in it was out, and my battery was out of the camera, missing as well. So all of that was missing. The only thing that was there was the camera. Mind you, I had my locker secured. I had other stuff that was basically piled on top of that camera. So whoever did it knew what the hell happened. So um, after that, um, the other thing that was also notable with that was each of the Marines that were with me also had their cell phones taken that they brought. Even though they didn't bring them on the mission, all their stuff was missing. The other stuff, the other people in the actual platoon never had their stuff touched. It was only us six that were affected. So fast-tracking back when we returned back to Okinawa, one day I had got a call from the duty that was in the barracks. Each barracks has like a duty of Marines that are you know, making sure there's still order, uh, things like that. He had been told that I needed to go up to the CP, so he informed me, so I had hightailed it up there. And oddly enough, there was nobody in the building, except for one gentleman who was uh, wearing Air Force dress blues that was missing a name tag, which I understand in Air Force policy or regulations that they were supposed to wear a name tag, and he did not have that. I gave him the proper greeting of the day, gave him the salute. He had pulled me into an office, and he had said, you are not allowed to tell anybody in your chain of command. I don't care if it's a general. I don't care if it's anybody. You are not allowed to talk about what happened. You can go to prison for this or you could be killed. So he slid over a non-disclosure agreement and it had two things that I can recall to this day uh, as I quickly skimmed through it because again, I had thought we we're going to forget about this whole mess. And, uh, one was said TSSCI and the other said Indonesia. There's only two things I can recall out of that. So I was forced to sign that. Um, I signed it, and I had um, got the hell out of there as quick as I could. I, before I did that, I tried to ask him who he was, and he would not tell me who he was. So I hightailed it back, and um, I have not spoken about it ever since I was able to recently because what the law passed. But that is my account for you guys. This is also an urging for anybody in Washington, D.C., who's a political figure, Please get this under control because there are people who are either being hurt or killed by this, and it's something that needs to be addressed. Please. We're picking up where Eli Gemstone left off, America's Jesus Daddy. It's time! These are not people of God! They're charlatans! Thank you, Mr. Heckert. I do want to share that also when we reached out to him, we have the names of the other five people in the platoon. Uh, of course, these will not be disclosed because they have requested their names not be, but there's corroboration. One of them wrote to Mr. Herrera when we asked that Mr. Herrera reach out to the other uh, folks involved in this horrible incident, which now is quite clear from other sources, involves a type of human slave trade used in covert programs, very criminal operations. He said, hey, man, this is asking too much, and it's not worth the risk. My family and military career far exceed anything you are asking of me. It's not worth my life or jeopardizing my family. I know we go back, but this is asking too much. You need to get out of whatever you are in 
and don't get me involved with this mess. My career isn't worth helping you. Don't ever ask me to do this shit, excuse my language, again. This is from a Marine, Marine Platoon member. Now, many of the people in the Disclosure Project Intelligence Archive are folks who have been, had that response because they need protection in their career. Some are still in the military. One I'm dealing with still has a TSSCI clearance who, who contracts with one of our agencies. Uh, uh, here in outside DC. So I think that this has to be dealt with in, in an orderly fashion immediately by the Congress and by the President. Next, I'd like to introduce, uh, Stephen Digna Jr. He's a U.S. Army, uh, uh, veteran, uh, disabled, uh, due to an incident. Uh, he also uh, was a witness to a Raytheon Corporation event at Fort Irwin, California. His story is very involved. He's just going to give you a few of the highlights in the interest of time. But thank you very much. Good afternoon, everyone. <clears throat> I'm going to look down and read this. Uh, I have a brain injury, uh, so it gives me problems. So I apologize. My name is Stephen Michael Digna Jr. Uh, doctor, I'm sorry. These are slipping my hands here. That's okay. <clears throat> my name is Stephen Michael Digna Jr. The following testimony is true and inaccurate as, as it can be at this time to the best of my ability, and I have prepared to swear this to testimony under oath before the Senate and Congress. I'm a former sergeant in the United States Army. I began active duty service in 1999, and I served until 2002. I was assigned to the U.S. Army Training Center, W4J9 Alpha Alpha, Fort Irwin, California, located in the Mojave Desert inside uh, Death Valley near the Barstow, California in 2000. <sighs> I was assigned to Alpha Company Group, Live Fire Combat Engineer Division, uh, Computer Support Systems, and uh, basically for civilians, this management for live fire operations. I acted as a hub between the operations group, intelligence planners, ground team, Air Force, and Star Wars programs. Uh, thank you, Doctor. In July of 2001, I was observing a live fire practice uh, at a live hole from an, uh, an observation deck at approximately three stories high from the desert floor. I saw a craft in the distance at approximately 200 feet off the ground, measuring 107, approximately 172 feet across. Strongly, strongly remembers it, resembling a hovering B2 spirit. Upon first glance, my eyes were adjusting to the darkness. I could see seven lights in a V-shape. <sighs> After that, I closed my eyes for approximately 30 seconds to allow them to adjust the lighting conditions. We were running red lights throughout the bunker due to the current live fire uh, exercise. The range was hot. That means rounds are being fired and lives are at risk at all times. Uh, this was interrupted by a, a very, very ominous call, a net call said cease fire, cease fire, cease fire. Came from one of our observer controllers on the ground. There was about 20, 27 teams out there. Uh, and they, uh, they kept soldiers alive and trained them. <clears throat> Sorry, thank you, doctor. Once my eyes adjusted, I could make out the general shape of the craft. There were two men from Raytheon present. I pulled out my night vision goggles to get a better look. 
at the craft. Uh, it appeared to be generating seven lights along its wings and underbelly. I noticed another smaller craft oriented on the right side at the, and at the same height as the first craft, approximately 75 feet to 100 yards to its right. The second craft was jet black, V-shaped, pointed towards the first craft. This craft had equally joined, spaced, rectangular sections forming the hull. The craft had a gimbal rack on that deployed from the bottom of the craft, uh, approximately five to six holographic uh Lights, uh, holographic emitting, uh, lights were, uh, pointed directly at the first craft. That was my assumption, uh, due to the fact that they were displaying a strange color within my MVG goggles. Anyone that knows the old school, you know, two, circa 2000 MVGs, they don't emit color. They give you green, grays, and blacks. I was seeing colors within my night vision goggles. This was not normal. And, uh, it was my assumption that Perhaps these, this was a hologram being projected from the other craft. Uh, I can't confirm that. However, that was uh, my assessment at the time and my suspicion at the time. I wanted to throw a baseball at it, but I didn't have one, just to see if it was tangible and solid. The second craft was uh, jet black V-shaped. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, I jumped a little space here. Thank you for the bullets, uh, Raven. The craft and the gimbal rack were deployed from the bottom of the craft and approximately five or six lights. Sorry, Dr. Greer. Guys, I, I, I goofed up, and that's a part of the brain injury suffered during the explosion on the live fire range. One of the two men on the observation deck, uh, observation deck from Raytheon noticed the night vision goggles I had. He went from chattering cheerfully. Uh, they were pretty relaxed. They'd seen these before. It wasn't abnormal to them. Uh, uh, he looked at me with a very, very severe uh, look of disapproval and anger uh, that I had. Uh, at that point, we both, uh, they both went calmly inside, probably a little bit angry, and uh, it felt like as though I had crossed the line. I took another uh, look with my night vision goggles. The reason this event was not uh, reported uh, was due to the fact that it was not unidentified. I'm going to repeat this very clearly to the cameras. This craft was not unidentified. This was one of our birds, and... Uh, to the observer controller that called that out on the range, I'm not going to put his call sign out. Uh, Roger up, eyes on, hands on confirmation. That's our bird, but she doesn't need wind to get lift. She was hovering stationary. Uh, this was, uh, I'm going to interject here. Sorry, guys. This was very dangerous. This light, this craft showed up unscheduled. Un, un I got no notification. My job was to maintain command and control and to be the hub and uh, top observer controller for the tactical operation command center for live fire desert warfare. That's the largest live fire warfare center for desert warfare on the planet and uh, in history. So uh, any, any moving objects that are on that, dinner, uh, on that desert uh, floor or in those skies are supposed to be coordinated between myself and another group uh, that I directly worked with with the uh, civilian personnel through Raytheon and the Air, United States Air Force. Uh, so to get back to the statements here, uh, the reason this the event was uh, not re oh, skip. All right, well this is gonna jump in a little. I was the fastest promoted soldier in 25 years on the post, uh, and I was the youngest number one control seat holder uh, at Fort Irwin NTC facility in history. Uh, that held the title the Voice of the Desert. Uh, when I cued my mic at my FM base station, it shut down all radios, and I could shut down the the range for safety reasons or for medevac calls, safety reports, weather reports and any other thing that was commanded by me, by my uh, superiors. Uh, <clears throat> I skipped over that, but I filled it in good. Approximately five to seven uh, days later, the... 
sorry guys, this is personal. Uh, this affected the rest of my marriage, my life, and uh, my relationship with my child. Approximately five to seven days later, the following incident took place on Fordham Road. It's the one road leading uh, into the base. During the weekend pass after the show, uh, my wife and I had uh, taken a pass to go see a movie. Um, and it, this, this took place right after the live fire bunker, about five, seven, five to seven days afterwards. We skipped the second movie or halfway through. Uh, I was really tired, just got back from running the range, uh, 78 hour shifts with no relief. We passed a dry lake bed on the right hand side. I've got that exact information already turned into the proper authorities. Thank you, Dr. Greer and all of his team. Um, people out there, please get ready to come out. Saying they got an old, uh, old friend of mine, well, a new friend, but, uh, he reminded me of an old saying they have at Fort Benning, Georgia. It says, follow me. There's another saying we have at the Signal Corps Academy. It's, uh, it's on the badge. It says, Propatria Vigilanus or Vigilus. That means, watchful of the nation. And there's another group of men that I served with and I tried to keep them alive every day to the best of my ability. Same guys that blew me up. And I still love them today and I ask for amnesty for all of the information I'm going to hear say from here on in is uh, these boys are on the ground on the hottest spots in the planet along with these other soldiers and they're dying out there. They're out there killing people under false pretenses. I've also turned information in that may be able to prove that to the proper authorities, thanks to Dr. Greer and his team. His team so far has been accommodating, polite, honest, respectful, and this man is my new general. He leads the way. So rally up. Rally on me. This man is the way. He speaks the truth. He is sound. Apologize, Dr. Greer. I've been waiting to say that for a long time. Uh... I thought they would laugh at me and look at me like I'm a lunatic. However, I brought my data. I brought the, I brought the information. They stripped my information, said I had a driver's badge and a service ribbon. Uh, I had two accommodation medals, and I had total seven certificates. They put me in for an ARCOM, which is the highest award you can get for, uh, for a non-deployable base. I'm a non-combatant, but I'm as close as you can get to being one. Those boys out there, we receive KIT reports every day. That means killed in training. Had I been in a real tactical operation command center uh, or bunker on the range, like the one that just got hit in Ukraine, then I'd be sending men out to die every day. Those guys hated the voice of the desert because we gave them commands to send their troops into danger and to death, even if we knew that they were just the decoys. For the real mission. So I'm going to have to jump back to this. I apologize, Raven and everyone, for, for going off track. But that had to be said. Uh, <clears throat> back to the story in hand. This isn't a story. It's my story. This is a real story. And uh, don't forget that. This is real. This can't be made up. And uh, I can give you the exact locations. I can drive Dr. Greer and, I, and all of the command, Congress, everyone there to the bunker. So... We passed a dry lake bed on the right-hand side. My driver's side mirror reflected a powerful white light into my eyes. I saw a bright white light pop up of, uh, out of the canyon that I had just come from. I looked over my, my left shoulder and saw a zipping light. 
the zip through the, the, the curves, uh, in that bend mimicking my exact, uh, my exact track and exactly the speed that I had had. <clears throat> Suddenly all I could see was a bright light through all of my windows. And at that exact same time, my car's power steering and, and the engine's electrical system, everything died, completely died. Uh, when, uh, the, when I exited the vehicle, I rushed towards the front end of the car, believing there was someone pointing a floodlight at us. I had some words to say to that man. I stepped through a thick field of white plasma that encompassed, encompassed the spheroid craft. As I turned to go inspect my, uh, the craft, my wife opened the door and she ran out towards the front of the car and she was yelling, Steve, no. She was instantaneously locked in place in a bright white field of plasma. As I looked at her, I thought to myself, it's okay. She's in stasis lock. That, that plasma enveloped her body with about six inches. I heard a female voice calmly state, felt like it was in my head, said she is in stasis lock. It was a confirmation. Thank you, Dr. Greer. Relieved that she was safe, I started approaching the craft for further inspection. The craft and the car, uh, the craft and the car uh, were nose to nose at a 90 degree formation. Uh, if you looked at it from a bird's eye view, it'd be in an L shape, nose to nose. The craft was, uh, there was a plasma field emitting approximately 12 inches off of the craft inside this white plasma field. The craft seemed about Trump, uh, approximately 23 uh, feet long. I stepped forward with my left hand extended and slightly reaching out to it. The craft uh, responded to my movement. Uh, this startled me slightly, but I took it and stood still uh, just in case. But by moving back and pivoting the nose away, from my hand like a cat or a boxer and it felt like a cat to me uh, okay sorry lost my place the exterior looked like uh, polished black onyx as I approached the craft I noticed ambient temperature not hot or cold uh, I kind of leaned down and touched the craft and as I swiped my hand up the craft starboard side uh, also towards the front of the craft. Uh, it was as smooth as glass. However, when I drew my hand back towards me, it felt like shark skin or a cat's tongue. That was followed by a reaction. Um, the reaction followed my hand, and uh, as I... Oh, it, it's slightly off here. Uh, so I'm going to have to do this with my hands just to describe it for you. As you can see here in the uh, the, the picture, I, I put my hand on the craft like this, and I kind of pushed my head forward. I can't do it here because of the mic, but I wanted to swipe my hand up and look at it like I was planing a piece of wood. Uh, as I drew my hand back, that's when I felt that this, this strange texture. It felt like a tiger skin or a tiger, uh, a shark skin, or, or uh, like I said, uh, a cat's tongue. As I drew my hand back, uh, pixels jumped off the craft. Uh, they were like micro shavings. I would call it, it they, they, they resembled graphene or magnetite shavings and uh, nano, nano-sized particles. As I did that, and as I swiped up first, uh, I guess to get back to that, as I swiped up, the craft emitted a tiger stripe pad up the, up the starboard side of the craft. As I drew my hand backwards, the pixels popped up. And as I did, the craft purred. It bellowed through my body. I could feel it resonate in my body cavity. And uh, 
It was very intense. I felt like I was in contact with a living creature. Yes, sir. Uh-huh. The reaction, uh, okay, I'm already done with this. Thank you. As I, uh, as I drew my hand back, a lattice work opened up underneath. There was a very vibrant color, uh, colors coming out of the craft, the underskin. This was a very thin nanolayer. And, uh, there was a mesh work, honeycomb style. Uh, and it was like a lattice work that was like a frame around this. And um, beneath that was, uh, well, there were filaments flowing. They looked like a neural network. Uh, there, I, I tried to see any, 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 uh, universal bus system or any computer systems as the analyst job that I had. I saw none of this. Uh, as I drew the hand closer to myself, uh, trying to peer through all these bright, wicked, beautiful lights that were pinks, blues, and every light color you could think of in the spectrum, uh, I wasn't able to see anything through it. So as I drew my hand this way, I kind of pressed off the vehicle. The vehicle was stable. I mean, this thing was locked in position. It's not like Star Wars when you jump off of something and it moves. This thing was solidly locked in place, solid. I've seen a shape right here under my through my elbow. Uh, as I, as I leaned my face down and I could see up into the sky above my car, a mirage, which was like a silhouette or a heat foil on the road. And, uh, the, the stars shimmered in a straight line and, uh, and at a very long distance, there was a curve. So it looked, seemed to be curved either way, right when that ripple hit in the sky, uh, the stars then refixed back into place. I realized I was looking at a cloaking device on a very, very, very large craft that seemed to encompass the whole desert area that I was under. Uh, at that moment in time, I then, uh, I glanced and panned my view just to try to get the, you know, uh, fathom the dimensions of this craft. And I saw a giant white, bright white light, uh, floating in the sky. And it was a hangar bay door opened, uh, couldn't see doors. It was just a bright white light. And it looked like a window floating through the sky, maybe even a portal. People might from a distance think, hey, that's a portal, but I obviously knew it was a craft. So this is a hangar bay door. And there was a female uh, silhouette standing there. Uh, at that moment in time, I seen that I heard that same voice uh, and it said very clearly, uh, you were not supposed to see that, that you weren't supposed to see it. All of a sudden, I began feeling a thud, thud, thud sound. Uh, this was a resonant frequency being pulsed through my body. Uh, as I felt this, uh, it increased in speed, thud, 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 thud. It was very rapid. You can see the same type of thing in the movie Interstellar, very similar when he falls through the black hole. Uh, too similar, too similar. Uh <clears throat> As these, this thud resonated in my body, I felt my molecular or my cells, uh, maybe the quantum level of my body, feel like it was being resonated. I felt like maybe I'm going to be microwaved uh, or something to that nature. Either way, I seen some bands coming through. I began lifting up off the ground. My vehicle began lifting with me also. As this happened, my body tipped back, and I could see the underbelly of the craft. You're going to see that design right in front of you. Uh, this The rectangular shape right in the center there looked like a docking socket for an electrical port. If you're going to take a, you know, a big, 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 uh, uh, male end, um, this would be the female recepting receiving end, uh, for an electrical charger. Uh, to skip through that, there were some very, very, uh, there's some highlighted, uh, parts here. Um, and as you can read them there, I'm going to let you read that for yourself just for time's uh, sake. Uh, however, uh, as this happened, uh, instantaneously, I cued in and I was flat on my back 
and I was staring up at the ceiling, uh, and my vision cued into a very, very bright white light. My vision panned over, and there was my wife flat on her back on a table. It was smaller than the table I was laying on, slightly lowered, and she still had the same exact expression on her face like she was screaming no. However, however, she was no longer stuck in the running position. She was flat. As I panned a little a little more in front of me to kind of gauge where I was at, and this all happened in milliseconds, guys. This was whole crap on what's happening. So this is a very short encounter here. As I panned over, I saw my vehicle with the right the right uh, passenger tires and uh, lifted up. I saw some people in some white suits, fully fully garmented masks with some breathing apparatuses. Uh, they were working on the vehicle. Slightly next to that was a strange blue rack that looked like it could have been an automotive rack, could have had another purpose. That was my quick assumption. As I, as I, oh, yes, sir. Uh, thank you, sir. Uh, yes, sir. So uh, after that had happened, uh, I saw a female right next to me. She was taking some samples from me. It was a human female. She had red hair. Uh, she had very fair skin. Uh, and uh, after that moment, I also, as I panned over, I could see the window and the desert behind me. I realized we were not in space. I could see the desert floor. I could see the exact two rock formations and one far off in the, in the distance. Uh, so this is pinpointed by, by GPS coordinates. So uh, after that, uh, I panned a little more over, and as I seen this open up, uh, and the bay, the bay door behind her open, or maybe just transparent, and I could see out. Uh, I, I also seen that craft right here docked in the ship, and that came through me after trying to get these schematics down on paper while talking to Michael Scratch. So thank you, sir. This man went through PTSD <laughs> with me. So thank you, Doctor. Thank you very much. Uh, there are obviously a great deal more to all these accounts. Um, I'm sorry to have to cut that short, but we're sort of at the <laughs> past our time we were going to wrap it up. But I will tell you that this is not a typical, the craft he was referring to are ours. That was Raytheon objects. Those are, and he said, yes, they are. It's key point yes, needs are. to be made. Absolutely. They have been used and simulated quote unquote abductions. In this case, a, a very decorated and heroic man was essentially tortured by this. This is a crime that must be investigated and brought to justice quickly. The next witness is D.C. Long uh, from Fort Bragg. He was involved in an incidental uh, event. Many of these witnesses at this point were people who saw something they shouldn't, and there were reprisals and things that happened. It's a pattern. The ones that were read in for a number of years, like one man that I shared earlier, 10 years in those operations, those are the ones waiting for greater protection for themselves before they step forward. But we have many of them. So with no further ado, I welcome my friend, D.C. Long. I promise mine's going to be much quicker than some of these other guys, and this is the way I talk. So I apologize for that as well. Everyone that I've met here, 
I would love to go through every name. I would love to go through every situation. While these gentlemen have, we could spend years talking about it, just getting to all the moments and everything that meant the most to us. And unfortunately, I have a very short amount of time to do that. <clears throat> My military service began in 1997 and it stretched to 2013 until I was medically retired, injured, received in a combat jump. Ironically enough, the quick story that I'm going to tell you guys has virtually nothing to do with my military career until it got to the very end of the story. Long story short, my father grew up as a contractor. That was his entire life. He could build anything with his hands. He could tear it down and build it again for you. I say away that, and the only reason I bring him up is because my father is how I got tied into this story. As a government contractor on Fort Bragg, he met some people. He got friends with some people in the upper echelons in the military, the tip of the spear. The guys who didn't need the Army Corps of Engineers permission to build anything that they wanted. These people that I met, I met when I was 13 years old. We would go on hunts together. We would go on fishing trips together, riding their planes. They would take us all over the continental U.S. just to enjoy their time together. People that I thought were my friends, that I didn't know that they were in the military until years after I had been in myself. We meet up at 18th Airborne Headquarters by my father's request from me. He asked me if I could help him assist. We didn't know where the project was. We were told that we were going to be met by an escort from the JFK Warfare Center. He shows up. I recognize him as one of my father's friends. I overheard that the place we're going to be going is range 19. I'd never heard of this place before, hadn't since. They put us in a van, no windows, no protection to the front. So we were joking, what did you say? Because we're taking you to Leavenworth. <laughs> we show up at range 19. The only thing that was directly in front of me looked like a bunker, 45 degree inches uh, from a concrete bunker, covered in trash. Looked like an actual dump. We open up. There's another escort, and they're waiting on us. They take us to a freight elevator. We take the elevator down. At that time, we were instructed, keep your heads down, keep your eyes on the heels of the men in front of you, or you'll be fired upon. I've heard plenty of instances of military jargon. People like to jive each other. I didn't take it as a joke, but I knew enough to just do what he told me to. I didn't want to risk it. As soon as the, the freight elevator opened, the first thing that I could see were a few personnel connexes to the right in a large hangar, maybe twice, three times the size of the area that we're in now. There was a monolithic slab directly in front of me that was being held up by nothing. The closer that I got to this slab, I felt an intense vibration inside of my body. I never felt anything like that before in my life, never anything since, but it left no sound. The loudest thing in that room was the silence and the footfalls of the people in front of and behind me. As I got closer, my natural southern curiosity took over. Oh, my shoes are untied. So I go down just to take a peek. And there's absolutely nothing up underneath this monolithic slab that if I had to estimate would be well over 100 tons. Absolutely nothing holding it up. You can see by the picture, there's another boulder directly behind it. It was flat on the ground. There were two other people beside it. I could only see hills and feet. To the right, you could see what looked like a boulder. And all three of these that I could tell 
had this box on top that was black with spires that came off and I couldn't tell where it was connected, but it obviously had something to do with the levitation. The one to the right was being spun by the personnel that you could see in the picture. At this point, from my knees, the escort kneed me in the back and said, let's go. We follow on, go downstairs to our appointed place to take measurements for an underground fire facility for a live fire range. <clears throat> Excuse me. When it was all said and done, less than 15, 20 minutes later, we make our way back to the surface through the same hangar that we had noticed the monolithic slabs and the boulders. And there was absolutely nothing there. There was no noise for anyone taking anything out. It was one flight down to our appointed place, but you could still hear that there was nothing going on in the facility that we were in. We make our way out. We get back in the van. And they take us back to 18th Airborne Headquarters so we can retrieve our telephones, our IDs. Something was said to my father, and they retrieved all of the notes that were taken. Everything that he had that he recorded from whenever we were downstairs, they took it from him. I didn't think much of it. I go back upstairs, help him wrap up in the G5 war room. And it was at that time there was a gentleman sitting at the desk. Everyone was cleared out. And he had two pieces of paper. Said, I need you to sign you to in the, I need you to sign this NDA. Absolutely not. You know, we didn't so much take it as a joke, but we just didn't feel like the things that we had witnessed. Although I did realize it was something that I had never should have seen in my life. We weren't going to sign. Didn't think anything of it. I leave. I get a call the next day, less than 24 hours later. Hey, man, you need to come down. We're trying to go to work, and everything's locked up. Everything's gone. Everything that my father had worked for from the time that I was a child until I became a man, became a soldier, and the company that had my name on it, everything was seized. Absolutely everything was seized. The pencils that he would use to make bid submittals to the Army Corps of Engineers was even taken because it contributed from the business, everything was taken. I can't illustrate that point enough. My father went from being a very humble millionaire to absolutely broke, bankrupt, and destitute in 24 hours. Now, I tried to tell, I wish I could tell you more about how much I love this man, not just because I have his name, not just because he's my father, but he was my best friend. He led me through every battle when I came home to let me know that it was okay to feel the things that I felt. <clears throat> this man and I, we were always together. The only thing that could separate us was the deployments and the uniform that I wore. When I got done with my fight, I found my father. When I was scared, I found my father, etc. This man that was my best friend looked me in the eye when I found him again and said, Hey, man, do you think this had something to do with Range 19? Please pardon my language. My father looks at me and says, Don't you ever... Fucking bring that, that up to me again. That was the last time that I heard my father's voice in this life. That was the last time that we ever had any peaceful interaction, and that was as peaceful as it got. Shortly after, I continued on, and we had a JFEX. Any of my old paratroopers, they know what that is. It's a jump field training exercise, battalion-wide. It's a big deal. There's only 12 men in my stick. 
getting ready to go out of the bird. I'm the first man looking at the horizon, waiting for the jump master to give me the signal. His hands raised. I noticed at the right side, someone coming up to my shoulder, and it's one of the escorts. One of the men that I knew personally from the time I was a child till I was a man and a soldier. He hooks up. He looks at me, gives me a wink. I didn't think much of it. To me, there was no danger at that point. Green light goes off. I get a hit in my back, and then something hits me in the side of the face, and it's a static line. The gentleman to my right, the man that I knew, threw his static line intentionally, and it snapped my neck. I go to fall out of the aircraft, deploy my combat pack, full oscillation. The only thing that I heard after that was the sound of my body made when it broke. When I woke up a month later, I was told that I was not fit to be a ranger. I was not fit to be airborne. I wasn't fit to be a soldier. My career was effectively over. Even throughout all this time, I could not reach out to my father. He wouldn't take my calls. He was homeless. I didn't know. I just thought he didn't want to talk to me. Eventually, I ended up in the same situation. This follows further down the road to about two years ago, whenever I finally was saved by someone who I didn't even deserve to hear the sound of the voice. I intentionally grown my hair past my shoulders, my beard down to my stomach. I was 135 pounds just because I was hoping I could hide. I was hoping I could get away from what put me in that position to begin with. I get a phone call. It was two years ago. We found daddy. He's in the hospital. I go down to see my father. He couldn't speak. The man that was 6'4", 240 pounds, a superhero in my eyes, not just because he was my daddy, because he was a tough son of a bitch. He was laying in a hospital bed, 98 pounds. When the people who I encountered after the fact that had actually spent time, excuse me, and got my father out of his homeless situation to help him get back on his feet, to give him the drive, to get back to doing the only thing that he knew how to do was to be a government contractor, They put him back in contact with some of the people that he thought could help him. I can't illustrate this fact enough. In the time span of three months, my father went from 6'4", 240 to 98 pounds, dying in a hospital room, and he couldn't even speak because the chemo was burning his lips. I told him, I love you. Don't worry about us. We're square. I'm going to make you proud. Poor Dr. Greer... And I came in contact with each other, and I'm almost done. I wrote my story, and I entitled it, I'm Afraid to Say. And people have asked me, why did you wait so long? It's obvious why we waited so long to send it. Nobody knows this. My family doesn't know this. Dr. Greer obviously doesn't know this. When I sent that, I was planning on taking my life because they took every damn thing from me. I can handle losing my career. I was willing to die for my country. I was hoping like hell I would. Somehow I survived. Then they tried to take me again. They can have all that. I knew that when I put these around my neck. But my intention was to take my own life because I just couldn't do it anymore. I heard this this man's words with Sean Ryan. If good men do nothing, then evil men will prevail. I am damn tired of doing nothing.
This is the absolute last thing that I'm going to say to you. I was trained to never fight. Excuse me. I was trained to fight, never give up, never stop. As long as you had a breath in your body, I gave my breath away. The people in this room, everyone that I've had the, the, the blessed opportunity to spend time with, I've heard you say that we're brave, that we're heroes, and it embarrasses me because I personally felt like I don't deserve to be in the room with all of you heroes because I would not have the words and the breath to come from my body if it wasn't for the strength that you give me when you shake my hand, when you hug my neck. Thank you so much. Godspeed. I'd like to introduce, uh, and thank you very much, again, these men are courageous, and um, it's very emotional, and it should be, should be. I'd like to introduce Eric Hecker. He's a Raytheon contractor based for about a year at the South Pole. Uh, He was involved in a neutrino light array. He has an enormous amount of information, but in the interest of time, we'll be brief. Thank you, Mr. Hecker. Hello, everybody. Ladies, gentlemen, members of the press, I'm very happy that you're giving me this attention and this information attention because it needs to get out to the world. I will start, uh, since we have to be brief, I have already given all pertinent information and supporting documentation to the Senate Intelligence Committee and Arrow. They informed me that all of my information will be recorded for public record and shared with Congress. It is that important. In 2010, I was selected to go down to the South Pole Station in Antarctica for an entire year by Raytheon Polar Services as an employee of a third-party contractor for the National Science Foundation. I function in a dual-role capacity as a tradesman and a firefighter. My responsibilities required me to be more informed than most of my crew and offered me complete access to the facilities. What I learned from this unique experience needs to be shared with the entire world. The technology at the South Pole Station certainly can do what it is presented as its primary purposes, and unfortunately, much more. The Ice Cube Neutrino Detector is presented as a passive listening device for the purposes of the science as presented. But I'm going to skip right through the chase, folks. Uh, I have provided documentation that proves that the 5,160, what they call DOMs, that are embedded in the ice can actually transmit at 2,047 volts each. That gives us a long list of things to consider. It is effectively a multifaceted directed energy weapons platform that I will uh, list rapidly a few things that it can do. Vehicle detection. We're learning that these off-world craft, on-world craft, ours or other nations are also emitting neutrinos. So this makes the South Pole Station effectively an air traffic control station for this new level of equipment that nobody's discussing. In addition to the ability to detect neutrinos and the exotic vehicles, I provide a documentation that shows that this is also a system for faster-than-light communications. In the past, Gary McKinnon has hacked NASA 
found the off-world fleet, the list of captains, and it's apparent that if we have faster-than-light vehicles moving throughout the system, we're going to need faster-than-light communications. This is that facility. Unfortunately, I have other bad news. The season that I was there, 2010 to 2011, we converted from uh, construction to operations and maintenance in both the elevated station and the detector array. Unfortunately, when they first fired it up, that was when we had the earthquakes in Christchurch, New Zealand. There was two incidental shots before they were able to target it correctly. This is an earthquake-generating device as well. This is the weapons of war that we have to deal with now and what Raytheon's hiding. There's an ELF system at the South Pole Station that when I was arrived, I was told it was off, dismantled, and completely defunct. In my work, I will rapidly just tell you, I had to figure out the circuitry for certain other repairs, and I found that this system is, in fact, completely energized, up and running, and being utilized with the other systems for nefarious purposes as well. The Atmospheric Research Observatory is uh, in what we call the clean air sector. I witnessed myself a very powerful green laser shooting out of the top of this facility into the cosmos. This, I believe, is a secondary form of long-range communications and or a defense system. I am not saying that we need to be scared of anything that's out there, but please understand the military-industrial complex is happy to invest all of your money in alleviating their fears. <clears throat> a question of power comes into play for all of these facilities that are present I assure you, I knew what was going on. I knew the load demands of the facility and all of these new items exceed the demand for the systems that I was presented. I am doing due diligence and research. I believe there is either a secondary power supply there that is either nuclear that uh, was there prior to the start of the Antarctic Treaty, which prohibits such things, and or that there is some sort of exotic uh, power supply system there that just is not in the verbiage of the treaty, so it negates the responsibility to the parties involved. I think that pretty much covers it for time. If anybody if anybody wants to find out more, I have a website where all this information is at for brevity. I'll wrap it up, but you can go to Deciphering.tv. I've documented all this stuff, and information is available. Awesome. Thank you. We are running a little over, and I apologize, but I think it's worth hearing as much as we can from these very courageous uh, men. Uh, one of the things, uh, I, if I had time, I would run through. We can go through very quickly. I think people in the military and in Congress uh, and the American people know that, need to know the difference between the man-made uh, advanced technologies and how they look and the extraterrestrial vehicles. We're going to run through a side-by-side you can look and see ET, one on the left, seamless. It is actually uh, created uh, in a material science and technology we don't have time to go into, but we understand that, versus the man-made ones that have components, parts, wires, and what have you. Next. And again. Next. And again. And then you hear on the right. That is the Norton Air Force Base 1988 Air Show classified 
we have a, a witness who was in there, and these on the right are man-made. They were late Mercury era, uh, 59 through early 60s in their construction because we had mastered gravity control in October 1954. So these had been in the solar system by the time my uncle, who was North of Grumman, had worked on the lunar module out on Long Island to put you know, Armstrong on the moon next. This is, again, an ET vehicle on the left one with struts, parts, pipes, and often humming a transmission, sort of transformer sound on the right. Next. And again, one that's extraterrestrial and a vague copycat that's man-made. Next. And again. And again. Next. Now, the one on the right, this is a little bit to unpack. It takes a couple hours and go through it quickly. You can look up the Cash Landrum case back in 1980 outside Houston in Texas. The one on the right is actually an ET craft. It was being, un they were unable to figure out how to get its energy system to work. They, I think, rather foolishly put a nuclear uh, energy system on it. It malfunctioned. And as it did so, it radiated innocent people in their vehicle underneath it. It later was escorted by helos to a base west of there. The man who debriefed the four human pilots of this and debriefed them, we know, and we have his testimony, he's Air Force Office of Special Investigations at a Kirkland Air Force base. So the Cash Landrum case involves civilian injuries. They tried to sue the government. The government denied they had any knowledge of it, but the constitutional government of the United States doesn't know this. It's a big problem. Next. And this, I want to just play this for a moment. We're in Washington. Here's an esteemed senator from Hawaii. And listen to what he said in the 1980s. A shadowy government with its own Air Force, its own Navy, its own fundraising mechanism, and the ability to pursue his own ideas of the national interest, free from all checks and balances, and free from the law itself. Free from all checks and balances, and free from the law itself. Now, the media often wants to portray this issue, conspiracy people, and of course, at this point, if you disagree with someone anywhere, you just call them a conspiracy theorist, Okay. This man knew what he was talking about. A shot. Oops. So he absolutely knew what was going on with this. He was denied access, not just on the Iran-Contra issue, but on this specific issue. And how do we know that? We have an attorney, Derek Garcia, here. He is now heading up the Disclosure Project Legal Defense Fund. And we have, as of about two hours ago, uh 90-plus attorneys and legal professionals to represent Disclosure Project witnesses and to, ex to pursue racketeering, influence, corrupt organization lawsuits against various corporations and individuals that are liable. The United States Congress and President need to act, but we will act pending their action. I'd like to then welcome Derek Garcia to the podium.
Good afternoon. My name is Derek Garcia. I'm a civil rights attorney from New Mexico. I've been in practice for 13 years. I'm admitted to practice in the District of New Mexico, the Federal District, uh, the United States Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit, as well as the U.S. Supreme Court. I'm joined in the audience by my colleague and attorney, Paige Fox from Illinois, and numerous attorneys who have now joined our legal team nationwide and internationally. We are dedicated to ending decades of UFO secrecy and releasing vital technologies which will bring an end to our current environmental and energy crisis. On May 23rd, we announced the creation of the Disclosure Project legal team over Dr. Greer's YouTube channel. Since our initial announcement, we now have over 90 legally affiliated individuals, different practice areas and expertise, paralegals, law students, law clerks, members of law enforcement, and criminal investigators, legal professionals from over 23 states, and nearly all relevant jurisdictions, and a growing list of preeminent attorneys internationally. We continue to make the call for pro bono attorneys, all volunteer at this point, and legal professionals, and add new members of the Disclosure Project legal team on an hourly basis. We have assembled a one-of-kind and strictly nonpartisan volunteer legal team for the purpose of moving disclosure forward once and for all. Our goals are to legitimize the essentially tapos and promote public awareness as to the numerous related constitutional and legal implications on this issue. We wish to support the constitutional government in regaining full operational control over these secret illegal, black budget, beyond black budget projects. And we will gain control over this issue for the first time since President Eisenhower. We will seek truth about propulsion and advanced energy technologies capable of solving world hunger, poverty, and the energy crisis. We will seek justice for those who have been harmed by non-disclosure and technology seizure through filing civil RICO actions, Bivens claims, and numerous and multiple legal theories aimed at getting to the ultimate truth on this issue. The competent, under oath testimony already developed by the Disclosure Product team, Dr. Greer, and these courageous witnesses, and represented in the Disclosure Project Intelligence Archives developed over 30 years of Dr. Greer's work may also be used in criminal prosecutions by United States attorneys or criminal prosecutors across the globe to seek indictments on the numerous RICO crimes which have been committed on this issue with the aim of keeping the issue buried. Just a small sample, and I know we're short for time, of the crimes that are directly related to this issue. Disclosure Project witnesses have and gathered intelligence has established the following major crimes. Treason against the United States of America. Murder. Mass murder. Torture. Kidnapping and abduction. Embezzlement of government funds. Embezzlement of private funds. Bank fraud. Money laundering. Illegal surveillance insubordination and insurrection against the United States, false imprisonment, witness and whistleblower intimidation, 
theft of intellectual property, trespassing, burglary, framing of innocent people, government corruption, blackmail, bribery, and illegal use of the government and military property, and many, many more crimes. We hoped to support the civilian government, criminal prosecutors, any evidence that we develop and continue to develop can be used for that purpose. My personal experience in coming to this issue was as a uh, young senator, excuse me, a young intern for Senators Bingaman and Domenici in the summer of uh, 2001 on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. The Disclosure Project press conference had just taken place on May 9th of 2001. During my internship, I distributed numerous copies of the Disclosure Project executive summary and briefing document and other written materials to various members of Congress and their staff, including direct submissions to leading members of the Senate in the underground subway system. Waiting in the hallway of the Hart Senate office building, I encountered hero of our country, Senator Daniel Inouye, walking back from his office. I gave Senator a copy, uh, the Senator a copy of the Disclosure Project executive summary and asked him if he had heard about the Disclosure Project and what he thought of UFOs, extraterrestrial intelligence, and the possibility of these intelligences actually visiting Earth. Senator Inouye responded by hand-signaling me to follow him back to his private office. He shut the door of his private office. Senator Inouye said he dealt with the UFO issue extensively while he was chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee in 1976. Senator Inouye confirmed that he had seen the May 9th, 2001 Disclosure Project press conference here at the National Press Club and that the testimony provided by those courageous witnesses at the time was substantially accurate and correct based on his direct experience and briefings on the subject. Senator Inouye confirmed that many UFOs and projects related to such represented genuine extraterrestrial vehicles and that this issue as portrayed by Dr. Stephen Greer and the 2001 Disclosure Project witnesses, was real, genuine, and absolutely not a hoax. I asked Senator Inouye if it was true that a secret, unacknowledged entity or control group operating illegally inside the United States government, internationally and or within the private sector among defense contractors and corporations had direct operational control of the UFO ETV issue. Senator Inouye confirmed his statement that there exists a shadowy government with its own Air Force, its own Navy, its own fundraising mechanism, and the ability to pursue its own ideas of the national interest, free from all checks and balances and free from the law itself, as stated during the Iran-Contra hearings in 1987. I asked whether he was exaggerating when he made this statement. I asked if perhaps he was speaking of another government. I asked many questions that day, but he looked to me and he told me directly that he was not exaggerating, that the illegal shadow government did exist at the time he made his statement in 1987 and continued to exist in 2001 during our conversation. And that the entity had thus far escaped complete scrutiny, control, and oversight by the legally authorized and constitutional government of the United States. 
Further corroborating documents and details to my personal testimony on this issue is available in a signed affidavit that I have executed concerning what uh, uh, Senator Anaway told me directly. Uh, For members of the media, I can definitely get you an electronic copy. We encourage you to uh, join our legal team um, by visiting uh, our YouTube channel or the disclosure.legal at gmail.com. And we thank you and all those in our nation and worldwide who have volunteered their legal talents so far as we continue to develop a strategy and approach that will stand the test of time. Show up, suit up, stand up for the future of your country and for your world. Thank you. Thank you. So I would like to thank very sincerely Mr. Garcia for his work. When he first contacted me, he was a 20-year-old student at Wesleyan. Now he's the age of a couple of my daughters. He's now an attorney, and we've gone full cycle, where now he is stepping up with all these other uh, wonderful uh, attorneys and legal professionals to represent what we are doing uh, pro bono, since we are at present an unfunded operation. I I would like to also uh, just quickly go through, we're not going to have time to go through everything here, but there is a history of hearings on this subject Going back many decades, you know, we have Blue Book, Robertson Report, the Ford, Gerald Ford hearings, the Condon Report, and et cetera. These have all been, unfortunately, submarined and corrupted by influences that have prevented the truth of this coming out. We have to be very careful because Eisenhower said only an informed citizenry can prevent the loss of our freedoms and democracy. I would like to uh, acknowledge how important, let's go through these signatures, the 16 members next of the uh, Senate who have written for the Pentagon to pick up its pace and further fund the, the investigations. But they have to have watchdog external folks looking at that. That's what the Disclosure Project has to do. The also uh, chairs and co-chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee have written to Arrow with concerns about the feedback. There are people I know who have been through the Arrow office and the SCIF, and they have contacted me explicitly saying that some of their, their information is not getting back to the members properly. This cannot happen. The Congress has passed a law. The Pentagon and this office must comply and the people of the United States must insist that they comply with the law that has been passed. Next. We won't have time to go into this in depth. I just want to mention, I want to be extremely careful what I'm about to say, because it will be misconstrued by various folks out there. There are civilizations extremely advanced that are concerned with what we're doing. This station at the South Pole is a much later version of a man that I worked with for a number of years in the 90s who invented the neutrino light detector system on the satellites in space. He knew then that these were being used, and this was in the 70s, to track, target, and destroy extraterrestrial assets in space and also around the Earth. 
Now, these civilizations, given their extremely advanced state, had they wished to punch back, they would have. However, they are inordinately peaceful. They are organized in a group. And we need to come forward as a people instead of looking at everything as a military threat and see that there's an opportunity here and there has to be diplomacy and science and disclosure of the truth in order to avoid a catastrophe. My understanding is the technologies that are in these covert programs have become so advanced that at some point they could be a threat to these other worlds. As such, it puts our entire planet at risk because of the unchecked power and technology of the illegal secret government projects. This is a much graver national security threat than China, Russia, Iran, or anything the news media is currently covering. Yeah. Next. I want to give you a call to action. All of you listening, the citizens of the world, not just the United States, if you know someone who is a government contractor, a government employee, military, what have you, who has information on this, please have them contact us at this email address. Please write your members of Congress. We live in a democracy still. You should write to your two senators and your representative and the president of the United States expressing your concern and calling for open hearings. We need to network with our friends and families and get them to support this effort. You need, if you can, to contribute to our effort. I'm retired as a doctor, so, you know, (laughs) I can't fund everything at this point like I had. If you can assist with the energy research lab that we are proposing in the lost century, you'll see that then please contact us. We have a $50 million funding need to stand up a open source energy lab. What does that mean? We would develop these zero point energy technologies and they would be released free of charge, open source to the entire world so we can quickly solve the environmental and uh, poverty problems we are facing. Our goal is to uh, acquire or develop a zero-point quantum vacuum system no later than 2026. That's very fast. So we need your help. If you're a scientist who knows these technologies or in other capacities can help us, uh, hoping we get funding, we will call on you to be part of this multi-centered lab. In other words, we would have this lab streamed continuously. All breakthroughs would be blockchain distributed in real time, and there would be other affiliated labs around the world working on this, so it could not be invaded and shut down in one place. Next. And when wrapping up, I'd like to share something that I learned from Colonel Philip Corso prior to his death when I was involved and he came forward as you all know wrote the day after roswell he had been involved in some of the technology transfer and he had an experience out at the white sands missile range back in the 50s pretty sure it was 1956 but i don't want to be don't quote me on that and he was part he was a colonel uh, he was involved in these projects there was an et craft that came in daytime and came down over the range he went out there with a couple of his guys. And this 
craft, it would be three-dimensional and then vanish like a heat wave, like Stephen Digna explained, and then back again. Finally, it stayed. There was an ET that emerged, extraterrestrial biological entity, and he said the ET was communicating, please don't hit us with these radar. Can you get these radar systems out? You know, and was asking because you know, they were operational. Of course, at that time they were operational at Roswell. And being he missed being a brash young, you know, uh, Air Force colonel, and he says, "What's in it for me?" And the ET says, "A new world if you can take it." Now I was one. Now you know I have uh, twelve grandchildren. <laughs> What kind of world are we going to leave them if we don't fix this problem? Because it involves peace, and we have to work towards contact that is in a peaceful paradigm. We have launched a very controversial project, as I get attacked the most for, uh, the CE5, or Close Encounter of the Fifth Kind uh, Contact Program, as sort of an experimental community-based outreach to these civilizations. We have had a number of extraordinary contact experiences. This is sort of a prototype that the French government during the presidency of Sarkozy asked us to demonstrate, and we set up an operation in France that was protected where we did have events take place. I think we have to begin to ask, what can we do as a civilian government where we don't try to militarize and weaponize everything we don't understand? Because here's the problem. If you're a hammer, the whole world's a nail. And so we have to get this disclosed properly so that our brighter scientists, our academics, our political leadership, and our diplomats and the citizens can take the lead on this issue rather than an illegal and clandestine operation that is a threat to national and world security. Thank you for your attention. I am told we have to be out of here at five. <laughs> We've gone over about an hour. Uh, and I apologize for that. But if there are any members of the press here that have a question, uh, you can uh, ask them, and we'll be happy to answer them briefly. Any members of the media? Yes. He's asking about our safety. Look, if I was worried about my safety, I would have never <laughs> walked on, on <laughs> down this path. I have been threatened, and we've had some losses on our team. I've had a, a few people over the years that worked with me who have been killed. It's, it's difficult. But <clears throat> I just think the mission of what we're trying to do is more important than one life, mine. So you can't worry about that. We do have good security now, uh, and I think that there are people, frankly, in these very classified projects who do want to help us and protect us, and they have been since about 1998. And that's pretty much – or is there another? Oh, you're welcome.
Yes, uh, he's asking about my comment about gravity control being accomplished in October 1954. A member of my team for many years was the uh, top scientist at the Naval Research Labs here in Washington, so one of the major Department of Defense labs. He was one step down after the director of the lab, and uh, he had been in a vault where he saw the document in SCIF and saw the documentation that we had mastered gravity control, meaning that we had had experimentation with it earlier, but mastering it so it was stable occurred in October of 1954. His name was, is uh, Richard Foch, F-O-C-H. He is deceased, uh, but he, he worked with us for many years and was very much on in the inside. He also introduced to me to some folks down near the Redstone Arsenal and a man who is under contract with IT&T, but he actually is working through for the CIA, and he has developed these technologies also beginning in the 70s, and I've been at this man's skiff. He's been at my home. Um, when he was going to develop one of these systems for us, some thugs went down and threatened he and his wife's life, his life. So, you know, he had to back down at that time. We didn't have a momentum to, to and a way to secure his safety. So, yes, I mean, we do know that this goes back a long time. I know that we have Senator John Warner's son here, who uh, his father uh, was involved with this committee. It's the majority uh, Joint Intelligence Committee, uh, along with George H.W. Bush, who was the one who told Clinton to back down off of looking into this. Uh, and I was very involved with that. There's a long story here. We'd be here all night. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we do know that uh, Paul Mellon, uh, the grandfather of uh, John Warner IV, who is here today, uh, went over and retrieved a uh, German disc at the end of World War II that was their prototype to develop uh, a, a so-called anti-gravity electromagnetic gravitic system, but it wasn't fully operational by the time the war ended. But that became uh, something that then was pursued later uh, through operations that were highly classified in the United States and in the uh, very black uh, aerospace world. Uh, and we have this very well documented, by the way. This was uh, a great deal of history here of the United States after World War II that we don't, the public doesn't know about, but it'll come out. Other questions? Yes, ma'am. Dr. Greer, Sherry, you here from a right to know. Mm-hmm. people 
And people need to also take the action I mentioned with their members of Congress. Uh, most importantly, I think everyone who knows the truth about this needs to work night and day. This is what I did. I, I basically gave up about $12 million in, in earnings as a doctor to do this. But my view of it is that we need people who understand what's at stake and walk the talk. And it's not, it can easily go beyond just gab. And we need action. And I think the timeline for it is now this is all emerging. I just heard from a very important figure in Australia this morning. He said the, um, the defense sector there is following this. There are multiple people there kind of come forward. There's a big asset base there in their Pine Gap. And the members of the uh, Australian Senate are also open to pursuing this. So this needs to be a worldwide effort, not just United States. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Yes, all of this is available, um, assuming we can get it to you. That can be uh, emailed to you, the redacted one. Uh, obviously, the unredacted one is very sensitive. I'm not going to disclose the names of the hundreds of uh, men and women who want to not be disclosed publicly. Now, it's very courageous of these guys to do it. I know what it's like to be put in the crosshairs of this subject and ridiculed and defamed for 30 years. So uh, these are very courageous people, but that list you can actually receive uh, as well as the entire facilities list. Now, the facilities list just gives you a location, doesn't tell you quite everything that's there. It gives you a little bit of a little blurb, uh, but it's what we can provide at this point. Again, remember, any requests like this are being fulfilled by volunteers who have day jobs and lives. So uh, be patient with your request and, and please com communicate that to our staff or email address that I provided. Yes, other. Yes. The illegal secret government. Well, look, <clears throat> I know a number. I've actually met with a few of them over the years. Um, uh, he's deceased now. General Stubblebine. Offered me $2 billion not to do what I'm doing in 1992. There are witnesses to this. Um, the level of corruption is almost unbelievable. We do have a man who's this former chairman of a major Fortune 100 company who wants to come forward. But he and his family have been threatened in the last month. So I've had these conversations. And this man, by the way, confirms that corporation has free energy. He regrets what he's done. He is retired, and he would love to see this come forward for his children and grandchildren. He's a decade or more older than me. So I, 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 at this point, the ones who are not wanting to be named, I don't name. Uh, however, if there's a proper investigation out of the White House and the Senate, uh, we will name them. And if they are, need to be subpoenaed, they will be subpoenaed. Um, but, I mean, this is a process where I don't want to burn bridges to people who are actually sympathetic to what we're doing, but we have not provided enough protection, including Im immunity from seizure of their assets. This gentleman has several hundred million dollars. He doesn't want to have that confiscated. He doesn't want his family threatened. 
And so it's a complicated issue. It's not that he's blurting out a bunch of names. Um, other folks who have been named on this group are Admiral Bobby Ray Inman, who is still living, and, and other folks. So I think he was director of National Security Agency, deputy director of CIA, and moved over to Science Applications International Corporation. We know which corporations are involved. We know where many of their plants are and bases are. Um, and I think those have to be put under the control of the president and the Congress immediately. And I think that's more important than, you know, the personalities involved. But ultimately, it does come down to people. All of it comes down to people. And I think we need to have a number of those folks who are now out of their positions, out of the C-suite, step forward. But we need, so I keep emphasizing this, clear protections for them, because this is no laughing matter. Uh, I mean, when I, when you've heard huh, what happens, and these, many of these were people who incidentally came across this and it destroyed their lives. Imagine if you were read in for 20 years. I mean, there are wet works of, of kill teams that will be deployed. And so this is very, very serious. It needs to be taken seriously. And I will not be, you know, too cavalier about what I'm going to require for those folks who do want to do the right thing. Now, the ones who don't want to do the right thing, I said this, we put a clock on it. The Congress and the president puts a clock on that. And then at that point, they get prosecuted or by any means necessary, this gets resolved. Yes. Uh, Dr. Greer, can you give any, I'm over here. I see, yeah. Uh, Gavin McClellan. Sorry, can Mike. you give any uh, clarification on the Van Allen radiation belts? There's a lot of dissension about the Van Allen radiation belts. Do you have any clarification on transportation through them? No, I don't have any specific information on, on that issue. I do know that these technologies that we're talking about would have no problem going through frankly, solid matter, ocean, um, et cetera. Uh, is there another member of the media press? Wait, wait for the mic, please. Thank you very much. Dr. Greer, can you tell us more about the program life forms that are involved in the so-called abduction phenomenon, please? Thank you. Yes, well, those, you know, they've been around for a very long time. As you know from our Air Force Office of Special Investigations witness who appeared and unacknowledged that document in 2017, uh, in the early days, and I actually have met with people on the tactical teams from the good old days where they would have uh, people who were short, looked, whatever, and there was stagecraft like a Disney set, and they would be on these electrogravitic devices using various chemicals and what have you to abduct people. The purpose for that is to present a false threat from space. This is what Werner von Braun, who invented the rocket with or for the Germany in World War II, told Carol Rosen on his deathbed and begged her to try to prevent the weaponization of space and et cetera. He knew this was going on in 1974 when he made that warning. And you can see her testimony in the Disclosure Project uh, um, website uh, on YouTube. However, uh, it evolved from that point to where they have very sophisticated robotic objects and beings that look exactly like a gray or this or that. And I've met with multiple people who have constructed them, operated them, or been victims of them who are military. 
Mr. Digna was actually abducted and taken into this craft through technologies that sounds like science fiction. But remember what Ben Rich told my friend James Goodall, who is here, he's an aerospace historian, right before he died. And he said, anything you can imagine that they've done on Star Trek is out in the desert. He's not talking about Area 51. He's talking about the Lockheed assets. And we've already done it. We have it. It exists. And we've either used it or decided not to use it. He also wrote the reply to one of his friends that Mr. Schratt obtained, where the man said, oh, do you think UFOs exist and are they extraterrestrial or ours? He said they are both. And that is from the director and the head of Lockheed Skunk Works, Ben Rich, legendary. So I always tell people, we have all this in the archive. Please don't just take my word for it. I'm a never had a clearance, never been the government. I'm an emergency doctor doing this as a to help the future of our planet. But we have all the information that proves every bit of this. And under oath, these courageous men and hundreds of others will tell the truth. Yes. Uh, because of the shadow government and other forces, just how threatened is your sovereignty? I couldn't understand the question. The U.S. sovereignty, is it, is it threatened because of the shadow government and other forces? <laughs> I will tell you that effectively the constitutional government of the United States, at least in this area, has been nullified since about the late 1950s. And we have tracked this. Um, it's a huge problem. Senator Inouye knew it. Now, in other regards, it's business as usual. But remember, this organization is transnational, it operates globally with alacrity, as I mentioned. And so this is not just a U.S. problem. It's a global problem. But the center of gravity of it is here in the United States. Other questions before we need to move? Uh, Cassandra Joan Butler from um, Pathfinder News. Dr. Gear, thank you. This has been mind-blowing. But uh, are there international groups such as yourself, uh, similar to Disclosure Project, across the globe? Others networking with other like minds. Well, yes, we have people involved with what we're doing in various other countries, uh, including Russia <laughs> in their space program and, and other places. We recently obtained the testimony of a Russian general that back in the Soviet era where an extraterrestrial vehicle and beings put some of the people at an uh, intercontinental ballistic missile site kind of in stasis so they could go in and fix an overheating missile that wasn't being detected that could have blown up and that could have triggered World War III. Now, I will tell you, there are a number of incidences that involve nuclear sites, weapon storage areas, etc., where there have been, and, and power plants, where there have been ET craft because there is, there's energy being given off from those systems that are beyond the electromagnetic pulse spectrum that Dr. Zohari, who was here this weekend, who's a physicist, described in, in the scalar range. So I think that the uh, interstellar civilizations, these extraterrestrial civilizations, have a profound concern because those could be a threat to them, those energy forms, but they know it's a threat existential to the Earth. I actually honestly believe these civilizations regard the earth as precious, that humanity is filled with promise. And I think they have been trying to warn us and keep us from going down the path of either geophysical 
disaster or uh, war that, that would be using these sort of weapons. The most dangerous weapons are unacknowledged. They're not the nuclear ones. They're the ones that Mr. Hecker is talking about and others. And uh, we have a great deal of information on that. I have folks who work for the NSA and also Raytheon who have used some of those uh, in horrific ways to trigger deliberately uh, earthquakes and other problems. So th- this is something that is very serious um, and it has to be gotten under control. When I say that these projects need to get under supervision and control by some sane folks who aren't sociopaths, uh, it has to happen fairly quickly at this point. Yes. Hello? Oh. Billy Carson, Forbidden Knowledge TV. Hey there, coming in loud clear, buddy. I'm in. <laughs> With regards to the civilian RICO, uh, can we foresee if this process is successful, any potential prison time for any of these corporate execs that are behind this? Look, an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. I think what we want to do first is to gain their cooperation with the effort. Uh, we hope we can exert enough pressure both through what we're doing as civilians, who are civilian RICO and other actions, as well as what's happening in the Congress, that that gets resolved. Uh, what you don't want to do is just throw down with folks who have technologies. And I will tell you, and this is sensitive, but when I was briefing Admiral Tom Wilson, who is the head of intelligence joint chiefs of staff, in 1997, 26 years ago, I can't believe it's been that long. Um, he, at the end, I asked, you know, we need your help to get these projects under proper control. And he says, well, does the Secretary of Defense, I can't do it without his, and, and he's not giving me that order. He says, what about the president? I said, no, the president has been waved off. This is Bill Clinton, and I know exactly how that happened. Uh, so, because I was very involved with Lawrence Rockefeller and all the Clinton uh, issue. So the question becomes very quickly, and he said to me, how would we take on a group who have technologies a thousand years beyond what I know we have, which is the best thing I can deploy is a B-2 stealth bomber. So this is a very serious issue strategically. How do you approach this? Now, the constitutional government of the United States has the rule of law, and I think if it's disclosed properly, the support of the populace and the people and the rank and file. And I want to point out virtually all of the disclosure project witnesses, except some of these few that are very much at the top, were just obeying orders. They were at a site. They were Delta Force or a Navy SEAL or what have you. They didn't know that the management of it had escaped constitutional control. And I didn't know that until 1993. And that was, of course, my coming of age when I realized, my God, the president and the director of the CIA are being denied access and then multiple senators and congressmen that I met with privately. So I think that what we want to do is resolve this in a peaceful, legal fashion. And we do not want to just go straight to, you know, DEFCON 1, right? We don't want to go to to that. So I, I think we need to do that in the next six months, however. The information I have, I don't want to go further than that, is that a clock has been placed on this. It must be resolved within this year, early next year, and then things are going to deteriorate significantly. You know, I don't want to really 
go into, I mean, let them speak for themselves. Uh, when I take meetings, I take them. If they're confidential, they're confidential. Uh, I'm not important in this. It's not supporting me. You know, at, you know, I'm 68. <laughs> I was 34 when I started on this path of double my age. I'm not going to live another 30 years probably. So, you know, my point is I want to be a means to get the intelligence, the information, put the coalition together to move this forward. And I think it's going to need, uh, but you know the members of Congress who come forward about this already, such as Congressman Tim Burchett of Tennessee, who has called for these open hearings. He's on the House Government Reform and Oversight Committee. There are many members of Congress who are awakening to this problem. The, the issue is they're moving much too slowly. You need to contact these members of Congress and also the White House and the Office of the President and say this needs to be dealt with expeditiously because they now have in their possession the entire Disclosure Project Intelligence Archive. And what I have to say about that is no more excuses. No more excuses. They have everything they need. Dr. Greer, as a... uh Special operations back over here. You're left. There we <laughs> oh, go. There you are. Yeah. First and foremost, thank you for everything you do. We re- we appreciate that. Um, I'm a. Uh, my name is Justin Wilson. I'm a former special operations operator, and I currently own a uh, media company called Praetorian. Uh, Two part question. The first one being, is there no hostility from another species because there's a higher governing species, or is it just the fact that there there is no hostility whatsoever. How can we be sure of that? First question. Everybody who I know who has dealt directly with those beings have told me our own experience, and that is they are completely non-hostile. They have been portrayed as such because how do you unite the world around a military response? You create a false alien threat. This is what Werner von Braun warned about, and we are very much at that point, unfortunately. So I think that calmer minds need to prevail. But there is no evidence they are hostile. Now, let me make one other point. As I said one time to a general, I'll say who it is, because if they were hostile and given the galactically foolish things we have done, targeting them, striking them, now these systems that are faster than speed of light, moving out in the space, the technologies they have in a fraction of a second could shut down all those systems and everything else. They have not. Why have they not done that? Because they are essentially very peaceful, highly organized, socially evolved, psychologically and emotionally evolved civilizations. One other point, common sense. If you possess those sort of weapons and you're still of the consciousness of violence, you're going to blow yourself up uh, or some nearby planet with you. Because we're not talking about, let's forget science fiction. You're not talking about boom, boom with a laser beam, right, or a kinetic missile or even a thermonuclear missile. You're talking about to affect the fabric of space-time. And then if those technologies are weaponized, it's over in a fraction of a second. So the proof I said to one senior military guy that they are not hostile is that you and I are still breathing the free air of Earth. If you know what we've been doing, it's quite clear that this is uh, actually proof that they're not hostile. 
if you understand what those technologies are and if you understand what covert illegal projects have been doing. So uh, here's a question. If there's not any, you know, intervention by the aliens or the people, mm-hmm. you know, there is this power and there's people in control. If we don't fix this ourselves, mm-hmm. is there going to be any kind of intervention from from up there if we continue to destroy the earth as, as we are? Well, that's what I spoke to a moment ago. I think that there are two clocks ticking. One is operations within the constitutional government of the United States uh, that are not going to put up with this any further, uh, more than another six to nine months. The other is the fact that these extraterrestrial civilizations cannot afford for this progression of technology being deployed against them. These have been revert much of it's been reverse engineered from the ET vehicles, right? And so at a certain point, where do they have to do something to protect other places? Because the, there's a universal principle of self-defense. So far, we've just been cruising along, getting away with this foolish and childish behavior. But uh, I can't give you a timeline on that. But I think that I, I honestly, from what I've heard uh, from very senior intelligence sources inside the so-called illegal operations, is that it's thought that it would not be able to go on beyond 2026. So maybe within three years. Yes. Well, I think that at first there's denial, shock. It's like the stages of death, frankly. Um, but I know the people that I've been with in, in the last year and a half and providing this information, which they've then confirmed, it has been an existential crisis for them psychologically, uh, organizationally, etc. I won't say who I've been doing this with, but it is traumatic. One of the chief folks, he started help working with us on this. He asked me to give them everything we had. I did. Very senior intelligence person. And, you know, he had two Blackhawks over his house, shaking his house with his kids in it the next day, which is hovering there. Very threatening. This is a very courageous man and a hero of the country who is unnamed. Uh, but what I'm saying is that it's going to be a process because there's so much to know and it's so shocking. And I think most people in the media and in government cannot believe what Senator Inouye knew in 1987 and confirmed to Mr. Garcia in 2001. And I think that you want to sort of go into denial. This just can't be. I did have someone years ago who was uh, a member of the Canadian uh, military say this is the hottest potato in the universe Nobody wants to deal with it. And this is another problem. It's easier just to go, this is too difficult, too dangerous. I'm just going to pay attention to what the next tax bill is or whatever it is. And I understand that. I mean, honestly, I sometimes wish I'd never found out what I did um, about this issue. I got kind of dragged into uh, getting involved at this level, and I never thought I would have to. In my naivete as a young doctor, I thought, well, you know, you tell the right people this, you provide the evidence, and they fix it. (laughs) But, you know, and they should have. They should have. But I think at this point, it just becomes very difficult uh, for them. And this is why what we're trying to do, if we can get some help from guys here and listening, is that we need somebody who's a very good data scientist and data file 
uh, person to take this entire archive, finish it. Only part of it's been scanned in. We have enormous amount yet to do. And so it can be organized. And then I would do briefing modules, maybe, I don't know, a dozen, 20 of them that would uh, connect all that evidence and testimony into a, intelligence assessments. Now I've done a number of these when, you know, back in the day, I provided intelligence assessments to folks because ultimately the comprehensive assessment based on multiple terabytes of data, hundreds of witness testimonies, thousands of government documents, that has to be put together in something sensible. But that's a very heavy lift, by the way. Uh, but I think that's what we need to do so that if you're the national security advisor or the president or chairman of a committee in the, in, or, or their members, that they can go from understanding it in a methodical way because it's so much to unpack. And it's so overwhelming. and But that's just something I, I haven't had time to do. In my free time, we'll work on it together. Yes. Yes. Thank you very much. I understand your proposition of benevolence. Uh, I'd like to follow up a little bit what the gentleman over there said about hostile intention, one of intention of our uh, EBEs. Mm-hmm. Have you ever had any information or uh, relate to you towards a genetic manipulation of the species that had been ongoing or previously talked about, which would, of course, construe a national security threat uh, to, to the republic. Has any of that ever come your way? Well, I've certainly heard about it, but what I've heard is the reverse, that our classified projects have taken genetic material and altered it for various purposes, including cloning projects and these program life forms. So in reality, it's probably flown the other way uh, from the folks I've heard. Look, I've been told we have to be out of here at five. I thank you for your patience. I know we went over about an hour, but help us if you can. And God bless all of you. We'll see you soon. Right on the money. It's time for us to take a break. I, I don't think I could say more words about this. Finally, it's out there, everyone. And, of course, you know, blaze the violet fire. Wake up, wake up, wake up. I remember on 2006, uh, what's his name, Dennis Kucinich, mm. coming out with his Hand in the air. Wake up! Wake up! Wake up, America! Yes, we can. All right. <laughs> we'll take a break right now. We'll see you in, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes. Namaste. That's the talking stick to you, Richard. All right, then. Richard. Yes, ma'am. Kay Pacha is 23 minutes, and Tanya is 15. That makes 38. All right. Well, let's take a look at the current conditions here. In about three and a half hours, the moon will be at the same degree as the sun, and we call that a new moon. Yep. Yep. And it will be in the 28th degree of Gemini. 
going to be square Neptune, which is at 28 degrees Pisces. So, uh, being a new moon, I don't know, Neptunian influence, uh, and it could generate uh, out-of-body events when you go to sleep tonight. It mm-hmm. just might. Neptune can do that to you. Um, Mercury is at 12 degrees of Gemini, and uh, that makes it square to Saturn, which is now officially retrograde, sitting at 8 degrees of Pisces. And that same Saturn is sextile Jupiter at 7 degrees of Taurus. And that Jupiter is uh, still square to Pluto. And Pluto is, they're calling that, I'm going to disagree with that, they're calling it on this chart Pluto trying Uranus, but, uh, you know, Pluto's at 30 degrees, Uranus is at 22, and that's 8 degrees away, so that's not really helpful. And Pluto being retrograde, it's moving away, relatively speaking, moving away from Uranus. And then the... Other big thing now, we've been watching this uh, Venus, Venus Mars situation. Venus is at uh, 12 and Mars is at 17 of Leo. So that does make them square to Uranus. And uh, that's going to get, in, that's just going to get intense over the next week, whatever. And, yeah, don't forget Chiron at now up to 20 degrees of Aries. So, 20 degrees Aries. Who's that? Does that connect to anybody? Oh, it connects to the sun. That's a sextile. All right. So, changing things, changing things. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yep. So, that's our current condition for this evening. And mm-hmm. there'll be more to talk about after Kaipacha. Let's listen to Mr. Kaipacha here. Here we go. Kaipacha with the weekly Pele report for June 14th, 2023. Oh! There on that little patch of sand is where my daughter got married on Saturday. I returned to the scene. Oh! It was so beautiful. Check out this river. Oh my goodness. Very interesting actually this week. 
Okay. Uh, tomorrow, Black Moon Lilith conjuncts Venus. And she is moving through Leo so fast that by Friday, she conjuncts Mars. I mean, the two of them are only about five degrees apart uh, moving through Leo. But still, you know, Lilith is cruising. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And um, the moon, meantime, is over there in Taurus. So Taurus uh, Square, Leo. This is the Yuba River. If you haven't seen it, it's worth checking out. <laughs> she moves into Gemini tomorrow, Thursday. Okay. And then on Saturday, we have the new moon in Gemini. 26 degrees, 43 minutes of Gemini. And where is Neptune? Okay, Neptune is over squaring in Pisces. So this new moon is square Neptune. Check out that chart at the beginning. Okay, that's what I'm going to be talking about today. That's what the mantra is about today. What else is happening? You can see that Mercury is square Saturn tomorrow. Again, Gemini to Pisces. Naturally square in the natural horoscope. So, yeah, we'll be talking about that. By Sunday, the moon moves into Cancer. And uh, cruises on through there, squares Neptune, trines Saturn, squares Chiron on Monday until by Tuesday she goes into Leo. Yeah. So next week will be really something. And this week is something too. Yeah. Uh, the big thing other than that, that I want to talk about, and I'm going to read the Sabian symbol, is Saturn stations... And goes retrograde at 7 degrees, 12 minutes of Pisces. So, I'm going to read the Sabian symbol for the 8th degree of Pisces. I think it's very powerful, especially combined with uh, the Sabian symbol for the new moon. So, let me uh, find a place. I know that the river is pretty loud here. Try to find a place where it's not too loud. Talk at you and tell you what it's all about. Dang, these rocks are hard. <laughs> and there's a bunch of sticker bushes and twigs and... Ouch! Life can be hard. Sometimes. And especially if you've got the sun and the moon square Neptune. Oh my goodness. Let's look at this a little bit here. Neptune, the ruler of Pisces, and the 12th house in the sign of Pisces. In the 12th house of the natural zodiac. And it's at, you know, the very final degrees. It's closing a 165-year cycle. And we're closing a lot of things. i got to read you the, the symbol for the Saturn station retrograde. I... I wanted to get in the newsletter, if you sign up for my newsletter, I'm going to put how many days or weeks, you know, Saturn's stationing at seven. Well, it's only 12 minutes. So seven degrees, 12 minutes. But, you know, Saturn will be at that eighth degree for, you know, at least a week. So, you know, this whole week has this, you know, overtone of the Sabian symbol, which I think I want to read right away and and put the whole report in the context of this because it's very powerful. It's a girl blowing a bugle, a call to participation 
in the service of the race as an evolutionary crisis approaches. The symbolic picture presents another aspect of the emotional relationship between the individual and the collectivity of human beings. It can also be related to the old feminist movement or the present woman's liberation. In traditional symbolism, the woman refers more specifically to the biological and psychic aspect of human life. She is seen primarily as the mother and or the intuitive or psychic person. A new race of human beings may well be slowly unfolding some of its potential of consciousness and fulfillment. The individual who envisions this evolutionary development sounds the call, <laughs> sees the day, it's in quotes, you know, sounds the call. He or she is both seer, herald, and mutant. In that sense, such a human being is both an individual true to their original nature and a dedicated person, dedicated to the future he or she holds in latency, as does a seed in mutation. This is really powerful because here it is, it's a girl blowing a bugle. And, you know, what struck me is that, you know, uh, in astrology, it's the fire and air signs are masculine. And we've got this sun and Mercury and Gemini masculine. Venus, Mars, Lilith, and Leo, fire, masculine. Uh, you know, there, there's a lot of this masculine energy that wants to do, 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 go, go, go. Gemini and Leo are both like the eternal youth, you know, busy, busy, busy. And Gemini's all curious and, you know, networking and, you know, on the social media and talking and, you know, got a business meeting or blah, 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 blah. And Leo is dancing or singing or putting on a show somewhere for somebody, you know, and it's creatively expressing and playing and all this out, out, outward going. And here we've got, you know, last week Pluto turned retrograde. Now Saturn's turning retrograde. Saturn and Neptune are both in Pisces. And we've got this super feminine energy that's just being. And not only being, but like he said, intuitive, psychic, and I want to say primal. Tapping into the roots, to the origins, to the infinite realms of timelessness. Timelessness. And this brings me to the other, the Sabian symbol for the, for the, uh, new moon. Yeah? Uh, and, and it's, very funny that, you know, here we've got Gemini, this, this masculine sign, and the, the, the 27th degree of Gemini is a gypsy emerging from the forest wherein her tribe 
is encamped. Reaching out toward participation in a larger whole of mind-structured existence. So the mind-structured is the Gemini, Mercury kind of stuff. But the gypsy emerging out of the forest, I mean, that's Neptune. That's the wild. And in both cases here, we have this participation in a larger whole. You know, the bugle was devoted to the collective. Here we've got this, you know, gypsy emerging, you know. I mean, I'll just read a little bit of this. I mean, it's just about, you know, it's a conscious attempt to leave behind the tribal instinctual stage of existence and to emerge into the realm of mind and complex, tense, interpersonal relationships. The wild drives of nature are reaching toward a situation in which they will be tamed. There's a little bit of foreboding in both of these Sabian symbols. Let's not forget that the new moon, you know, is starting a new monthly cycle. And over the course of this month, there'll be some changes with Saturn and Pluto both retrograding. But what I want to really look at today is just this whole square to Neptune because Neptune rules the Wetico, right? You know, the, the, the psychological mass formation like hypnosis of the collective that's going on with all the propaganda, you know, coming out through the mainstream media, through the government agencies, and in so many other realms. There's this brainwashing going on. And Neptune, you know, has to do with delusions and illusions. It's such a... I could talk for hours just about Neptune, man. <laughs> Freaking love it. I I was born with Neptune square the sun. <laughs> so this is like totally like, oh yeah. It is both the mystic and the drug addict. It is both nirvana and samadhi and psychosis and neurosis. It is both you know, drugs, alcohol, and addiction, and yoga, and meditation, and prayer. It's everything that takes us out of this world. And we've got Jupiter in the North Node in Taurus, which is very much this world. And we've got the Sun and Mercury in Gemini, which is very much the business of the left brain dealing with the city and this world, right? And so, but behind it, behind it, we've got this square to this Neptune. And even Saturn is there in Pisces. It's a call. It's calling us back in some ways to the 
other world, the psychic, subtle, etheric world of multidimensional spiritual realities that are so far beyond mental cognition and ego comprehension. Neptune rules the paradox. It rules chaos. And you've probably heard me say there's no such thing as chaos. There's only realities that we cannot understand with our limited ego consciousness. And this is the realm of Neptune. There's no good and evil in Neptune. But when you come down to Taurus and Gemini and Leo, you know, you get into this, you know, especially with social media, this cancel culture, and this, you know, it's becoming so... I don't know, man. <laughs> I'm doing a workshop in Spain, in uh, you know, in, the, in these teepees in September, finding peace and harmony and love in an increasingly hostile world. We are becoming more and more polarized. This is the crisis. The crisis comes through polarization. There's no polarization in Neptune. But in Gemini and the twins, you've got this polarization. And our consciousness is polarized. Because our consciousness, our ego consciousness, lives within this third dimensional polarized reality. And it's crisis producing. It's separation. And Neptune is all about union. So how do we work with this? How do we deal with this? That's what the mantra is about. But I also want to say, it was back in uh, March 15th. The sun was conjunct Neptune. And this is a first quarter square. The moon was conjunct Neptune, okay, a week ago, right? So this sun moon is in a in a 90 degree square to Neptune. And it's a new moon which is a beginning, a new start. And so what I want to say is like this is an opportunity for each and every one of us okay to to bring the dream into fruition, into reality, living the dream. Some say chasing the dream, envisioning the dream, owning the dream. In so many ways, this is all a dream. Merrily, 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 life is but a dream. Oh! Right? We're up the creek without a paddle, man. I mean, oh, God. Anyway, yeah, I, I just... Uh, We can, again, it's just like Saturn and Pisces. I think I've said this a million times, you know. It's like, you know, reality, you know, reality crushes the dream or the dream becomes reality, right? You know, you got this Saturn-Neptune, Saturn-Pisces, 
uh, you know, tug of war going on. So it's up to us to like engage with faith, hope, and love and believe in that dream and go towards that dream. You know, manifest that dream. Make these dreams come true. And now, like the mantra says, some of them don't. And there's reasons for that. There's karmic reasons for that. There's lessons to be learned about timing, about what you're capable of, about what you can control, about when you need to surrender. I mean, there's very many reasons why a dream does not come true. But even when it does not come true, that's what the mantra is about. There are still diamonds jewels, lessons along the way. I was thinking, you know, when I was thinking about the Pele report today, you know, driving up here, it was, it's almost like the dream is like a carrot on a stick, you know, for the donkey. You know, they put the carrot on the stick so the donkey walks, you know, and it's like chasing the carrot. And, of course, the stick is attached to the back of the donkey, so the donkey, you know, his neck, the donkey never gets the carrot. <laughs> it's always chasing the carrot. But the carrot gets the donkey to move. <laughs> Dreams inspire us to move. It's like love. Love is but a dream. Life is but a dream. We dream of love, we dream of happiness, we dream of peace and harmony. And it inspires us to plant that garden or build that house in the country or get in the, you know, get on the bike and hike out to the river, whatever. So these dreams are, they, they play a crucial, very important role in our unfolding, in our growth in our lives, in our lessons, in our evolution. So we want to always be, you know, going after them dreams, baby. <laughs> so some dreams come true and some never will. But they won't keep, that won't keep me from trying. Because I know it's not at the end. But on the way that I find all the diamonds. Makes me think, does the end justify the means? In so many ways, there is no end. It's only means. There's no end. So we're just going, 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 going. And it's all process. Life is all process. We're not really going to get anywhere except the grave. No. We're, we're all headed to death. That's where we're going. No. So, like, this brings us... Ah, this whole thing of time. It's like, be here now. I know it's like, you know, be here now, but 
the future is always meeting the past in the now. So this whole mystery of time is super cool. Freaking love it. Could just go on about it, but you know, that's all right. <laughs> some dreams come true and some never will. But that won't keep me from trying. Because I know it's not at the end, but on the way that I find all the diamonds. So, yeah, go for that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And some will call you crazy, you dreamer. It's an illusion. It's all story. Blah, blah, quack, quack. Freaking go for it anywhere. Go, go for it anyway because on the way towards that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, you're going to find some. You're going to see some. And hopefully you're going to have some fun along the way. So namaste. Aloha. So much love. Ow! <laughs> yeah, baby. Talking stick to you, Richard. Okay, then. All right. I'm looking at next Saturday's chart. When we get to next Saturday, relative to tonight, that Venus and Mars that I'm keeping a close eye on, tonight they're uh, about five degrees apart. Next week, they're going to be four degrees apart. So, you know, because they're both moving forward. You know, Mars has got its motion. Venus has got its motion. But relative to the Earth, Venus uh, this coming week is going to get just a degree closer to Mars. Mars will be at 21. Leo, all right. And Venus at uh, 16 and uh, a half or so. So they're getting ready to square Uranus. And in a week, Mercury is going to be conjuncting the sun. The sun will be at four. And Mercury will be at 30. Yeah. So, uh, 
as we go through the week, Mercury's going to be conjuncting the sun, okay, along with the Venus-Mars conjunction. The moon will move through to 20 degrees of Virgo by next Saturday, and Jupiter will be in uh, the other one. Jupiter will be nine, nine Taurus. Everything else will be pretty much the same. So that's next week. So the other thing I did out of out of pure what's the matter with this thing? Okay. Actually, let me do that. Uh, and come over here. The other thing I just had this interesting thing here. We got the summer solstice coming up in this week, right? Right. Longest, longest daylight in the northern hemisphere. Right. And I was thinking about that, and I said, "Well, what was going on a dozen years ago?" So I threw up a quick chart here for six twenty-two, twenty eleven. You remember what you were doing at 2011, mm-hmm. then yeah. in 2011, <laughs> see, Jupiter was in early Taurus, right? 12-year cycle. And Uranus was at 5 Aries. So... In 2011, we had Uranus and Aries, Jupiter, Jupiter and early Taurus. Now we've got Jupiter and early Taurus and Uranus in later Taurus. And the other thing going on 12 years ago was Chiron conjunct Neptune. Saturn was in Libra. So that was kind of, kind of interesting, and so I just did that for for the heck of it because I was curious about this Jupiter Uranus thing. Because when you look at then the other thing I did earlier before tonight was I took a quick look at the winter solstice for this. Year okay, that's a half a year away. And you look at when you look at uh, half a year away now, the conditions are going to look something like this. Jupiter will still be in early Taurus at six degrees, and Uranus will be pretty much in the same. Place at 20 degrees of Taurus, right? Because as we go through the summer, we're going to do this retrograde stuff. So on the winter solstice, you know, we're going to have Moon conjunct Jupiter. Chiron will be in about the same place. Neptune will be at 25 Pisces. Saturn will be at 2 Pisces. So in a, in a half a year, Saturn's going to hit Pisces 
Okay. And then Pluto will still be in the last degree of Capricorn. After going retrograde and going direct and all that stuff. Meanwhile, the sun will be conjunct Mercury, right? First degree of Capricorn. Mercury will be in the second degree of Capricorn. Mars will be in the 21st degree of Sag. So coming in, coming into Christmas season, and uh, uh, we're going to have Sun conjunct Mars, and Venus will be hanging around there in 20 degrees of Scorpio. So that's what the winter solstice looks like. Looking ahead. Anyway, all right, let's go listen to Tanya, and when we come back, I may throw a book report at you. Yay! <laughs> Here we go. Uh, This is Tanya Gabrielle, Wealth Astrologist, and I'm so excited to welcome you to this weekly podcast where we focus at an upcoming astro-numerology event to help us navigate the cosmic energies in the most positive way possible. And we're going to look at the Gemini New Moon today. It's a really positive new moon, except for one transit that we're going to focus on as well to Neptune, but in general, a truly uplifting experience. And it is exact on June 18th, 5.37 a.m. That's in London, Universal Time, 12.37 a.m. Eastern New York, and 9.37 p.m. on June 17th. Pacific Time LA. And of course, you don't need to be a Gemini to benefit from this forecast. This forecast is for everyone because you have Gemini and of course the new moon is happening somewhere in your astrology birth chart. So this forecast impacts everyone. Now Gemini is the sign of activity, of motion, of curiosity, communication skills, facts and information, media, writing, speaking, words. And so it's very effective effective at helping us listen, teaching, understanding different viewpoints, staying neutral. Gemini represents the twins. So the ultimate experience of Gemini is to be able to gather in all the data and stay neutral about it. The awareness of options, variety, enjoying the moment, ingenuity, And we also have relationships covered, relationships that are in our general area, like neighbors and schoolmates and roommates. They're also covered by Gemini. Now, the rule of Gemini is Mercury, and Mercury figures greatly in this forecast because Mercury is creating three aspects. It's exactly sextile to Venus, exactly sextile to Mars, Venus and Mars are conjunct during this new moon, which is highly fortunate. 
And Mercury also is square to Saturn. And so with the ruler of the Gemini new moon making all these connections, your life and your ability to connect and communicate will be very much activated. Now, happening on the 18th of June, the 18th of June in 2023 adds up to a 22 universal date. 22 is a master number. It's the architect of peace number. So this is a code of rest. 18 represents taking time to just daydream and rest more and focus on your health and relax. And then the 22 is about peace. So this it is really a more slow grounding numerology code, which is lovely because the actual astrology code is more active. Now, like I said, we're going to move in a second to the new moon, sun and moon being square to Neptune, which really heightens your emotional sensory perceptions and you really need to stay grounded and add extra spiritual protection for this square. First, let's just look briefly at Mercury sextile Venus and Mars. This sextile to Venus is exactly at 11 degrees, and 11 is a master number of intuitive awareness and present moment awareness, being in the now moment, and therefore receiving incredible insights instantly at any moment. So with this sextile to Venus, planet of love, you can easily communicate with a lot of compassion and share love with people who are close to you and appreciate others with your language, with your words. And then you in turn will also be touched by other people's words, other people's display of affection. It enhances artistic gifts, gifts of communication, and it also enhances social interaction. Now, Mercury sextile Mars means you become more decisive about the ideas you have, and it enhances your intellect and concentration powers. And so it's a wonderful time to manifest your ideas, realize them, create them so that they become real. And you basically have the energy with Mars to achieve a lot. And Mercury square Saturn gives you a lot of concentration powers, Uh, You can work on projects that require a lot of intense focus and work. It is not necessarily good for negotiating, but there are other transits in place that actually balance that out. Now, the collective awakening is happening really rapidly at this time. And you may think that's not the case. I'm watching the news and I'm seeing unfolding world events and They're not aligned with peace. They're not aligned with love and presence, which are the true reality. However, they are helping us to see what it is we don't want and truly bring energy forward to allow us to be very clear about where energy originates, how it impacts us, and what we choose moving forward. So this is actually a very important time. Whenever we see something that doesn't resonate with the divine, we are making a decision not to put our focus there. Whereas before we may have ignored it. Now we're saying no. So Neptune square the Gemini new moon, the sun and moon in Gemini is saying, relax because everything is divinely taken care of. We're seeing that there's a divine plan 
for our awakening that initially shows us what we don't want and it's proceeding perfectly. So mother, father, God's only will is that you love everything that is arising in your living awareness, your living consciousness. And that arising of love within you eradicates doubt. Right? Neptune square this new moon can bring doubts that you're clinging to, right? And entrusting the divine creator, you release those doubts. The divine creator's love for you is endless. It's infinite. It's eternal. It never ceases. It's totally impossible to be separate from the divine. Because there's only one, there's only all, there's only everything that embraces us that has been created by the divine and continues to be created. So creation, like God, is an ongoing state of existence. And creation extends love all the time. It's the life force that brings vitality to everything. So... The divine will of God is that we completely enjoy every moment of life and appreciate what has been lovingly created for us and is lovingly blessing us at all times. So this is our God-given inheritance, is the enjoyment of life. And it's fully available to us at any given moment because it's eternal. Now, Neptune Square, this Gemini new moon, is a reminder that as humans... In actual physical form, we can get caught up in mind games. And by our own choices, we frequently allow what is not in alignment with love to confuse and distract us. And we have a choice. We can either choose love or we can choose fear. They're mutually exclusive. You can't choose one and have the other, in other words. So you can't engage with both at the same time. Because fear is a choice to avoid and exclude engagement with love. And love is your only true nature. So when you choose fear, you feel separation. You feel completely divided within, confused, upset, doubtful. Fear encourages us to believe that life is unsafe. And it brings up thoughts of what if this happens, like any possible dangers to be aware of. And so our minds then feel obligated to prepare for this what if danger and, you know, the worst that could happen. And this is really what fills us with anxiety. So we're putting ourselves in a frequency of separation by focusing on what might happen if, right? So the only choice you truly have to be in a place of peace is to choose love. So by choosing love, you disempower the ego. And then you find yourself at peace. You enjoy moments that are now moments. Your life unfolds flowingly following the plans that you individually designed before incarnating. Plans you designed with divine guidance in order to experience a creative awakening in this lifetime. So you could assist others as well. And you may be amazed at how many people you are assisting who are deeply asleep within the illusion, more asleep than you are. And those plans 
that you designed with divine guidance before you were born, those plans are actually revealed in your divine blueprint. So this is where astro-numerology comes in, right? Because it literally has a map of your divine plan, the one you designed. It describes your destiny and your purpose. And if you want to know more about yours, I have a free masterclass at starcodeclass.com. It includes a handout. It basically covers your divine plan that you created with Creator at a very simple, beautiful level. And it helps you understand others' divine plan as well, so you're not in judgment of them. So enjoy that. Go discover your true purpose, your true destiny, your divine plan at starcodeclass.com. Now, again, you're going to be amazed at how many people you're here to assist that are more in the illusion, more ingrained in it than you are. And remember, we're all one, right? So that means the collective awakening is for everyone without exception. You're completely free and, you know, there's always going to be a small minority that decide that an awakening is not for them and that, you know, that will uh, be their choice, but that's not going to delay it, right? It's not going to delay it. The choice that they make does not mean either that they're not going to awaken eventually because eventually the realization will dawn on them and, you know, they can choose to allow it or not, right? But it'll dawn on them that love is the only reality. So no sentient being can be totally unaware and remain eternally unaware of this divine truth. And no one will be left behind. No one will be forgotten. No one will remain unseen, let alone be judged as unworthy of God's infinite love. So love cannot reject love, right? We are all coming from love. We are in love. We are created in love, and love cannot reject itself. And love is what all sentient beings are. So during this Gemini New Moon, Neptune, planet of spirituality, of unconditional love, of we are all one energy, of beauty, of creativity, invites you to allow yourself some quiet time. Visit your daily holy inner sanctuary. Slow life down. Reality is slow. It's not fast moving. It's not distracting. It is a deep feeling within your body that you resonate with. It is subtle and it requires you to take time out. And while you're there feeling relaxed and at peace, feel the love flowing freely and beautifully enveloping you, embracing you. And when you do that, you actually assist all life, all sentient life to rapidly move forward with the awakening process. So as you deeply empower the intentions that you set daily to be only loving whatever arises in your life, you are responding with love you are then assisting in the rapid awakening that's happening on Earth. So remember to explore your own divine code 
right? You have a divine destiny, a divine star code, and it was designed by you with the actual guidance of the divine. And you can do so at starcodeclass.com. So enjoy that free masterclass. Have a beautiful Gemini new moon. And I will see you in next week's Star Codes podcast. Lots of love.
chart the seven planes of our solar system. And this is a this is a very very interesting chart here. I refer to it fairly often, and it's the cosmic physical plane. All right. And it's the seven planes of our physical solar system. All right. So that's one that's 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 worth having in your uh, reference. All right. Now, all right. Letter two: the importance of meditation. It produces egoic contact and aligns the three lower vehicles. All right, three lower vehicles. Physical, etheric, and emotional. You know, it aligns them with the lower mind. All right. It brings about a state of equilibrium, stabilizes the vibration and produces the transference of polarization, which is a, a word he uses uh, fairly often in, in many of his books. Mm -hmm. All right, letter three, points considered when assigning occult meditation. And here he, he's going pretty, pretty uh, general here. The ray of the ego, the ray of the personality, the karmic conditions of the threefold man, the condition of the causal body, that's the body of the soul, <coughs> which, you know, is uh, using the dense body to do its thing here on a, on a physical plane. Letter four, the use of the sacred word in meditation. And I don't know if I just forgot, but he makes the, one of the he makes the point here that the 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 original word in the beginning there was the word. Remember that? Maybe yeah. from the Bible. Maybe from the Bible. You know, mm -hmm. the sacred word is a seven syllable word. Seven rays, seven colors in the rainbow. All right. All right. Letter five: the dangers to be avoided in meditation. Dangers inherent in the personality, dangers arising from karma, and dangers arising from subtle forces. Letter six is the use of form in meditation, including the use of form in raising consciousness, the use of form by the mystic and the occultist, in specific forms. Letter seven, this was good, I like this one, letter seven, the use of color and sound. All right. Letter eight, access to the masters via meditation. And in this one, you know, it's, he goes he goes into into depth a little bit here. Who are the masters? What access to the masters entails? 
from both the standpoint of the student and from the standpoint of the master. Methods of approach through meditation. The effect of this access on, on the three planes. Then he goes for letter nine, future schools of meditation. And in this one, he starts right at the beginning. He so says, here's a bit of prophecy uh, tossed away. Okay? So he's, talking about, he's talking about a future school for uh, meditation, which basically is about accelerating the individual's evolution. And then letter 10 is the purification of the vehicles. And then letter 11 is the result and life of service. Motives for service, methods of service, attitude following service. Richard, what was number 10 again? The purification of the vehicles. Okay, thank you. Physical, emotional, and mental. That's probably the shortest chapter in the whole book. That's only 10 pages. But he he talks about it. Yeah, and then... Then he's got charts. <laughs> this is another chart. I, I, I mentioned at the beginning the Constitution of Man on the on the, the seven seven subplanes of the cosmic physical plane. That's one chart. But uh, page two fifty four, he's got solar and planetary hierarchies. Yeah. Solar and planetary hierarchies. This is a this is a great chart because it shows how the the masters and guides of our kingdom, the human kingdom on this planet, how they're organized amongst themselves, and how you have the reflection from the higher planes down to the zone in which we move and live and have our being, all right? So what you get here is uh, you get the solar logos at the top of this chart, and then you've got your original trinity, all right? And then from that you get... A second, ref- of, he calls it reflection. Okay, the, the, the next, the next octave, more dense. Right? You got the three, the three prime aspects, and under the third aspect of intelligent activity, you got the, the four aspects of quality. All right. So you got, you got the will of the, the will of the logos the love and wisdom of the Logos, and the intelligent activity of the Logos, all right? This is way, way, you know, way high vibrations, all right? And then you got the highs. Then, then you, you drop down, those, those three drop down to 
the Lord of the world, right? the Lord of planet Earth, which we call Sanat Kamara. And he's got the same three major aspects, the three Kamaras that work with him, will the will of his will, his love and wisdom, and his activity. Now, there's, there's not a lot to say after this, except these three department heads are called the Manu, M-A-N-U, okay, the will aspect, and you got the Bodhisattva, or the Christ, or the world teacher, right? that's the second aspect. And then you got this third department head called the Maha Kohan, and he's the Lord of Civilization. And that's where all action is. And under under the Lord of Civilization, he lists a Venetian master, and then four masters for the four Raise equality four, five, six, and seven. And Master Jesus is working in with the sixth, the sixth uh, aspect right, of devotion. Sixth ray is devotion. And then you've got uh, under the love and wisdom and world teacher, you've got the Master K H and D K and the European master, and uh, over there in the will aspect, you've got... Have a free breakfast contract. Say again? That was Rama made a Google on the computer, sorry. Okay, but anyway. And then under all those masters, you got four grades of initiates, various grades of disciples, and all the people on a probationary path. And then underneath that, you got the average humanity of all degrees. So that's, that's the layout of the group of planetary, uh, guides and watchers and helpers and, and all of that. He also is somewhere in here, I forget exactly where, he talks about, uh, the Diva evolution, right? That would be your angel groups. And also in here is one more thing I want to point out. In letter seven, the use of color and sound. <laughs> he, he lists his colors in this order. Blue, indigo, green, yellow, orange, red, violet. Not unwittingly have I placed them in this order, but the exact significance is left for you to discover. And then he goes on here. Blue indigo being cosmically related and not simply analogous may be used interchangeably for purposes of blinding or veiling, I think. Let me illustrate. And they go, the Lords of Flame and their work in connection with this planet 
may be spoken of in terms of four colors. Indigo, because they are in the line of the Bodhisattva in connection with the love of wisdom ray. The Lord of the world is a direct reflection of this second aspect. Blue, because of its alliance with indigo and its relationship to the auric egg. Just as the solar logos is spoken of as the blue logos, literally indigo, so the color of the perfected man and of the auric envelope through which he manifests will be predominantly blue. Orange, which is the complementary to blue and which has direct connection with man as an intelligence, He is the custodian of the fifth principle of mind in its relation to the totality of the personality. And then yellow being the complement of indigo and also the color of booty uh, and on the direct line of the second aspect. Then right over here is the last point I'm going to share with you is the first solar system, which is in our case Sirius, the green ray, the third aspect of active intelligence, the third sub ray of activity. And its colors are green, green, along with the fifth subray of mind, and their color, color in this case, are green, orange. So that was that's the first first solar system. All right, green ray with uh, with green, orange on the mind side and green, green on the activity side. Now, the second solar system, which is our solar system, <coughs> indigo ray, the love and wisdom. And under that, he lists the second sub-ray, right? second sub-ray, second aspect, the colors there are indigo, indigo. And the fourth sub-ray is the ray of harmony, which is primarily what humanity is working on. Those colors are indigo yellow. So that's the that's his comments on the color for our purpose. The Richard, we should we should yeah. go to the yeah. But okay. that was Thank you. Thank you. Well, I hope uh, I've intrigued you. You can get this in paperback, all my loyal listeners. Okay, give the I'm name again say, of the book. Give the name again of the book, Richard. Letters on Occult Meditation. By? Alice Bailey. Amen. <laughs> And a lady. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Okay. Peace.
Peace out. Namaste. Talk to you next week. Namaste. Namaste, Richard. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. What's the phone numbers for the conference call, Ramo? Uh, 720-716-7301. And the PIN code is 353-863-POUND. Wow. Okay. Uh, one more time. 720-716-7301. And the PIN code 353-863-POUND. We'll see you there. And we'll be right back here at the top of the next hour for a whole nother adventure. Namaste for now. We'll see you on the conference, everyone. Aloha. Welcome back, everyone. Things keep on going higher and faster. Okay, you want to just get to it, Rama? Yeah. Okay, tell everybody what this is now. This is um, Michaela and Ethan Fox uh, talking about the Agartha network and the inner earth beings. And I'm sure sure they're going to talk about Lord Adama and Captain Ashtar and quite a few other family folks. Okay, well, let's get started. This is perfect. This is two hours and ten minutes, everyone. Here we go. Long ones today. Here we go. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Channel Revelations. I'm Ethan Fox, and I'm here with Michaela Sheldon. And we'll be spending the next couple of hours uh, talking to the guides about a number of different questions. And as I always say, I don't discuss these questions or the topics with Michaela ahead of time just because I don't want her conscious mind to interfere with the information anyway. Of course, she is a trans channel, so we'll be speaking directly to the guides and her mind doesn't interfere with it. But just to be sure, I take those extra steps. So let's jump right in and uh, bring the guides in. So whoever wants to come through and then we'll go from there. We have a, ga- a gathering of many. Uh, we are working with the Council of Light. We have the Orion Council. And we also have an Assembly of Ascended Masters. Anywhere in there is there... Uh, so when you say an Assembly of Ascended Masters, does that include like the Great White Brotherhood, for example? Or are they part of, are they part of that? They are, yes. Okay. So what's the difference between when the Great White Brotherhood announces themselves like in the last show we did versus when they announce themselves as Ascended Masters? It's a difference, a slight difference in frequency. So keep in mind, of course, when you are speaking with higher guides or guidance, as we'll call it, there are always going to be adjustments. There are modifications made for the information that's necessary to flow, which is not 
just intellectual in nature. There are certain vibrations that are also a part of each of these ascended masters energy field. Sometimes they will exclusively name themselves as a collective for the purpose of sharing those codes and, and genetic lineages with you. Uh, for those who might be attending these transmissions to awaken to aspects of their own uh, genetic lineage or relationship, in other words, with many of these guides. So I'd like to speak with the Great White Brotherhood, or at least reference them, and, and also the Ascended Masters and the Orion Council primarily in, in this uh, first part of the conversation. Uh, Madame Blavatsky spoke about um, having met a group of enlightened masters who she called, uh, referred to as the Mahatmas. And uh, the Mahatmas also were known as the Great White Brotherhood. So now she said she physically met these individuals somewhere in the Tibetan area, and Tibetan Indian area, and uh, they taught her a lot of things, took her on as an initiate, and um, and gave her a lot of wisdom. Is this the same Great White Brotherhood that that's physically incarnated that we're talking to? It's important to understand in situations like this where there are encounters or uh, channeled transmissions coming through, in other words, uh, there are always deviations from the individual character of a soul that has walked the earth that now exists in a form of light. Meaning when you're speaking with one or a group of us, it is not just who we were and what we learned on the planet that is a part of that exchange. We're tapping into the entirety of the Akashic records of, of all aspects of self that we have ever been throughout the cosmos. So the title master, for example, is, is reconciling this idea for a master is as an aspect of many parts of itself, uh, choosing to walk in an enlightened type of incarnation. Uh, but yes, we could say in encounters with us, similar to what you are speaking of, um, the, the souls who you have named were certainly present in, in a form of light, but not necessarily exclusive of any other parts of themselves necessary to support those endeavors. So are you saying that, um, so these physical beings that Blavatsky referred to as the Mahatmas or the Great White Brotherhood, they did exist in a physical form, but what we're, who we're speaking to as the Great White Brotherhood right now is that's one aspect of their incarnation is what you're saying that they, that the consciousness we're referring to now in this conversation is more all-encompassing. It includes previous and future lifetimes also that some aspect of which this physical Great White Brotherhood might have existed on Earth. That is correct, and also take into account that any soul who transitions from a physical incarnation while it leaves the Earth continues on as that identity in another state of being. So the lifetime that you believe begins and ends with your birth and death is 
actually a continuation of many other lifetimes and this lifetime will also continue to go on. So, so more evolution does take place, but, but certainly uh, we agree that those that are known as the great white brotherhood now are a form of um, merged soul vibrations speaking uh, as a one voice using all of the energy wisdom and and knowledge that they have assimilated both on the earth and throughout space and time to support humanity okay so does that great white brotherhood in physical form still exist in um in tibet or in that region or are they have they well i know what you're saying their their incarnation has continued or rather that experience has continued on. But if we were to go there today, would we still be able to interact with them? Not in a physical form exclusively. Yeah. Okay. So interaction with them now would be like we're having a conversation right now. Correct. Okay. Or perhaps in a time traveled event, a more astral scenario where you are meeting through uh, a merged state uh, with another, uh, similar to ourselves, uh, in in um, what we call multidimensional consciousness. So the Great White Brotherhood she did speak with is part of the consciousness I'm speaking with now. So they would be able to reference experiences that they had back then as well. Yes. Okay. Supposedly they wrote a group of letters, which I believe were called letters from the Mahatmas, that were transcribed and that still exist today. Were those documents that that the Great White Brotherhood actually wrote that? contains wisdom for us? Yes, uh, and and we also want to clarify these letters are channeled accounts or transmissions that are not just coming through one individual. So these are more of a vibrational offering, uh, even though they are in a physical and written form. So the Great White Brotherhood didn't physically write them down, is what you're meaning, or? We are meaning to say that they were physically transcribed, however, carried a certain vibrational um, quality to them. Well, Vaxi mentioned that she believed that the Great White Brotherhood was part of an advanced race of beings who lived in that Tibetan or Indian Mount Kailash area where there was an entryway to an underground city or um, location where very advanced beings lived that uh, that supposedly were uh, people who fled from Atlantis and that they live in this place called Shambhala, which is um, their capital city. Is that true? It is true. However, the more linear translation of this is something that we also prefer to qualify because the inner earth is such a mystical place. It is not something that is as material and tangible as what you experience on the surface of the earth, even in these days. So when you're speaking of Atlantean and, and an Atlantean lineage, we agree. Uh, many of the beings who came from Atlantis had um, not only gone through such a, a pivotal change in their structure, uh, due to all of the, we'll say, breakdown or dismantling of 
the various technologies that held them in such a, a pure and aligned state, but, but they also had to reconfigure themselves somewhat to become oriented to a new way of living. And when we speak of the inner earth or, or underground cities, um, these are interdimensional in nature. So, so even today, for example, many ponder uh, the inner earth beings and, and cities and locations, and there are certainly many. Uh, but, but the beings that exist in these areas, um, are able to take on a different form. Uh, we would call it perhaps even a more, um, uh, vibrationally sound and balanced type of experience that is necessary to allow them to shape shift and to move between these various locations. So, so yes, we're, we're agreeing with what you are saying. Um, however, we want to clarify exactly what that experience would have been like, which is very different uh, from what many of you live today. So is now she uh, referenced that there were Buddhist monks at the time who were protecting an entryway in uh, in Nepal or um, in Tibet rather to to this inner earth area or this inner earth city where enlightened beings lived and uh, but there is some speculation as to whether or not she channeled the information uh, because there, there are some myths or stories that have been shared over the years saying that, and even some individuals who supposedly traveled there to the Mount Kailash area and so on to try to find this inner earth entry point. And some of them vanished for periods of time and reappeared and had all kinds of mystical experiences and so on. Um, but there is some question as to whether or not this is a physical entry point that exists and that still exists today, or if it's another dimension that uh, that requires a shift in consciousness and this information is simply channeled rather than physically visited. Can you share some light on that? We can. You've asked several different questions here, and we want to start by saying that this area is considered a portal, meaning it's a very sensitive entryway or gate into the inner earth, but also a place in which all dimensions exist. So it would not be unusual for someone of an enlightened consciousness or with an intention to want to visit these areas to find themselves lost of time or to be um, experiencing things that are very otherworldly because the energies that have um, collided, we'll say here in this place, um, they, they still remain today very much undisturbed of their, their original potency uh, and nature. But portals and gates, uh, they are very mysterious things. So we want to speak to the clarification of the Buddhists guarding the gate because ultimately what we experience um, even today is that Gatekeepers are more interdimensional in nature. Portals are a consciousness. So any portal that exists today, while it may have a physical portal keeper or guard, is actually like a technology guarding itself. Uh, imagine on your planet today, 
the various uh, AI and scanning technologies that many of you might even be concerned about coming to full fruition. Uh, in ancient times and in, in portal locations like this, the elements are doing that work. They're not scanning for ill intent necessarily. They're scanning for a vibrational match um, and, and, a, and a heart-centeredness to be able to interact in the space in a highly conscious way. Because these inner earth communities, uh, very much like Atlantis, were holding a, a specific frequency. And, and oftentimes that frequency in and of itself would make dramatic changes to those who entered who were not used to it. But because uh, these civilizations were so tight-knit and there were many different beings living together in harmony, uh, someone who came in without the correct alignment or intention of, of heart-centeredness uh, could disrupt the entire structure. So, so we're looking at very um, subtle and delicate balances of energy that were attempting to be upheld. Now, when you speak of Blavatsky, we aren't necessarily seeing her having deliberate physical interactions in this place. There was a great deal of time travel um, and, and moving between dimensions in a remote viewing type of scenario. And, and we want to also explain that sometimes remote viewing, uh, if it's not done from a very pure state. It, it can alter your response or the response itself can be led by another. So we're not necessarily wanting to place ill intent here, but also say that uh, a great deal of the translation of that could be coming more from mind as opposed to the, the true vibrational analogy of what was observed. Because even Though uh, we agree that many of the the um, the physical beings, the the Buddhists, for example, that may have been in that location around the time that this area was was very well known, uh, may have been protective of it. They weren't necessarily assigned nor capable of protecting it in the way this technology we speak of uh, could have. And we want to also relay here, without getting too far off track of what you are asking us, the idea of dragons, because dragon energy is seen very much uh, in the renderings of these ancient civilizations. And dragons were not necessarily a, a replica of the physical manifestation uh, of these beings. Dragons were elemental beings that existed within the earth with the purpose of guarding very sensitive entryways, portals, and, and um, points that um, could be construed as valuable by those who did not have either humanity's interest in mind uh, or the beings who were present in the inner earth uh, in mind. So there are many different considerations um, in terms of the translation of what's exactly happened here. But it's very similar uh, for those who are familiar 
with Mount Shasta today. Um, the Telos, for example, are a group of beings who we see very interconnected with that Atlantean Lemurian lineage, uh, living within a, a multidimensional uh, location uh, beneath the earth and using these dragon gates to enter and travel between various locations. Okay, I want to clear up a few points as uh, simply so I understand. First of all, it was said that the in order to enter Shambhala, um, and first of all, before I get to that, uh, it was said that Agartha was this um, enlightened city, and Shambhala was the capital of the city. Is that correct? We we wouldn't name it necessarily as such, uh, but yes, we certainly believe those locations existed and are correct. And it was also believed that in order to gain access to Agartha or Shambhala, one had to be of a pure heart. Is that what you're referring to with the Dragon Gates? It was not something that physically could be entered, but you had to be of a certain vibration? Correct. And in Let's go a bit deeper into this just for the sake of interest, because the idea of a pure heart uh, is something that could be um, very vague uh, or or defined in different ways. When we're speaking of purity of the heart, what was observed in these times was whether or not a soul was existing in a state of unity consciousness, meaning it was not putting itself above or beyond uh, the rest of its civilization. And in entering this area uh, had some very important purpose to share that was going to uplift or somehow support not only those who existed there, but have a ripple effect, uh, in other words, to the surface of the earth, which we think this is um important to remember uh, those underground locations uh, multi-dimensional cities they exist beneath the earth because it is such a rich and nourishing environment with connections that are wired throughout the entire surface so if something is happening um, in the way of expansion uh, in other words is going to have more of a dramatic effect on, on those that exist beyond that city that are more physical in nature. But the opposite could happen as well. Imagine that the, the elements in these areas, even the waters, for example, were, were so potent that if something had gone awry, um, very easily there could be mass destruction not only in the areas in which these portals existed, but well beyond, because portals are a collective in and of themselves. They, they are connected in a matrix. Uh, so this was the purpose, was seeing if there was not necessarily a loss of ego, but a relationship to the self that had been cultivated as a, a, a mirror reflection of many others. And, and that was the important criteria, we'll say, that allowed passage. I believe from what you're saying and from what I know that was written about Blavatsky, 
she said she met with the Mahatmas, and it sounds to me like she physically met with them, so they must have been some sort of human beings who maybe had interaction with um, Agartha or beings that were uh, from that place. Um, but what you're saying is that she didn't actually physically go to Shambhala. She was channeling that information, and because of the tendency to interpret that information, it might not have come through in its purest form. Am I understanding correctly? We agree with that determination, yeah. Okay, so the um, spiritual tradition or the theosophical school that she started, which was based on those teachings, might not be entirely correct then. When you say correct, we're not exactly sure what you're referring to because... Are the teachings authentic to what the Great White Brotherhood and what they would be teaching in Shambhala? Not exactly. Okay. Um, Now, so based on what you're saying about what it means to have a pure heart, one of the things that also happened in the early to mid-1900s was that Hitler and the Nazi party was were very interested in Agartha, and they believed that they knew where the entry point of Agartha was. And he believed that Agartha and Shambhala were the descendants of Atlantis or the Aryan race, which he believed himself and his party or his group of people to be descendants of. But what you're saying is that he couldn't, he also couldn't have had any interaction with them because of the purity of heart. Am I understanding correctly? Well, keep in mind that sometimes these various rulers, similar to Hitler that you are speaking of, uh, they were using um, oracles and, and channels themselves to bypass the, um, we'll say, determination of a pure heart, meaning there was a median or a distortion put in the way such that uh, the original intent of the being or the information that was needed uh, was somewhat skewed uh, from its um, reality. When you, when you say channels that were used, you're referring, are you referring to the Thule Society? Is I think you had some interaction with them. Is that... Is that where this came from? That would be a, a perfect example. Yes. Uh, there were many that were gathered for the purpose of exploring these various areas as well as the uh, information and knowledge that could be tapped into and, and utilized in these spaces. So uh, just to understand an individual like that, the interest in occult and metaphysical teachings of what appears to be a more enlightened race. Um, what's the mechanism that would allow, so he really didn't have access to that information from what I'm understanding based on what you're saying because he was not pure of heart. Or was he an enlightened being just choosing to live a very dark life in our interpretation? He was not directly accessing the information through and of himself. This is the uh, consideration that we think is of note, because even though we could say that at the very core of this being, there is a lineage of of love and, and appreciation for humanity, 
the direction of the choices that the soul went were quite opposite of, of that expression. And that is why the assembly of so many uh, enlightened others around him was necessary. And it's also uh, our opinion that those who were charged with channeling this information or time traveling to receive it were not given all of the information as to how or why it was yet uh, uh, how it was yet to be used or why it was going to be used. Um, in, in fact, they may not even have known that the man that they were retrieving it for was of ill intent at all. So there were a great many um, stories, we'll say, that were cultivated around this group of, of oracles to somewhat keep them um in the dark uh, as to the journeys that they were taking and the, the reasons for them. And we know your question might be if they were such advanced beings themselves, why would they not have felt the disillusionment of the one who was sending them on the journey? But not every channel or, or oracle um, is is actually focused on the highest and best result for the whole of humanity. Even though they believe in their hearts that they are, they may be focused in, in ego or on the self or on financial gain. For example, uh, these things were still happening long ago. So even though these dragon gates, we'll call them, were very conscious and very advanced in terms of ensuring the purity of heart, uh, there were some very adept at energy and, and the quantum field that had the ability to override them. Now, uh, a, a man like Hitler, for example, while understanding the mechanics of energy and channeling, was not truly enlightened enough himself to be able to do that. And, and that's why there was a great reliance on, on many of these um, assistants, we'll call them. Um, but what we want to explain is this, this group that was working on behalf of Hitler, uh, they were able to form somewhat of a bypass or a bridge, we will call it, um, not that they bypassed the technology of scanning for pure heart, but were able to tap in differently to the Akashic Records without directly going in as a being that had shape-shifted or somehow transformed. Now, this can be done today, as a matter of fact. Um, enlightened souls who have the ability can tap into the energy field of another and understand what they are thinking and what they are feeling and can go back into their Akashic records and retrieve information to better understand them at an intrinsic level. So much of this was going on uh, at the time. So if it's uh, necessary to have a pure heart to enter Shambhala, and let's suppose somebody had a pure heart uh, in whatever that you described that was, would they be able to, in some physical form, enter Shambhala, or would it be purely in an altered state of some sort? There would have to be um, a slight alteration of form 
in order to coexist with the beings who lived in that place or, or continue on there, in other words, because if it is surely multidimensional and, and a human soul is existing more in a third dimensional or material reality, uh, there could truly be um, no ability to interface directly uh, not to say that in today's world, physical beings aren't having direct interface with intergalactic ones. But remember, this was a protected area, a very sensitive area of the Earth, a, a portal in and of itself. So so what we notice is in passing through, a physical being may have had to slightly uh, adjust its vibration into a higher state. And in so doing, uh, may become less um, materially focused or conscious and in a state of coherence. It's, it's somewhat like today visitation on intergalactic ships where human souls are taken or visit these various different forms of technology. Um, even though it may feel extremely physical and there can be sensations of, of sight and touch and sound, uh, any human soul that visits for a period of time, a, a ship technology, um, has become changed in order to do that ever so slightly. And that's why, uh, coming back from the experience is, is often the catalyst for such remarkable changes in the life of a soul. Um, This can be an intense period of awakening, for example, or it can be a a period in which we're reviewing our our past transgressions and heartache. Um, That slight shift in vibration is going to cause our physical reality to change uh, and to somehow recalibrate to meet the experience that we have just had. Is this transformation in any way similar to awakening experiences that people have, or is it different somehow? It is somewhat like a meditative experience, but a conscious and meditative process where you are in movement. Uh, if you have ever experienced a conscious state of awakening, it is often like moving through the physical plane in heightened awareness or even in a state of bliss where you might even forget the physical body exists at all because you are so focused on the details of what you are viewing and the experiences that you are having that a part of you that is dense is no longer existent in your mind. Uh, but that part of you, nonetheless, has come with you. It's it's just somehow reassembling. Uh, this happens today uh, as well in other portals. So if there is a time loss that happens, uh, an event where someone visits a portal or even in their own home are jumping timelines and have lost uh, a number of hours or even just a few minutes, This is a a hyper-aware and conscious state of coherence where all dimensions are accessed simultaneously or a soul is walking into a more multidimensional location and experience beyond what they were before. Um, It takes some shifts 
both at the level of the physical material um, as well as the electromagnetic field that surrounds that material. But you were meant to do this. Uh, you were built to do this. In other words, it's just that many of you have forgotten how to do it. It's somewhat like an automatic uh, transition. Uh, for for example, today, humans may be um, existing in a very stark uh, experience of fear. And, and in a moment's notice, their body will change drastically because hormones uh, fluctuate and, and the physical body becomes stronger and the mind will become crystal clear to support that soul to move through that period of, of physical challenge. It's very much similar, we believe, when a soul is, is entering a, an inner earth location, a multidimensional reality, or a ship or a portal. It, it isn't often recognizable, yet it happens nonetheless, uh, where you become a bit less physical and a bit more uh, oriented to light. Do Agartha and Telos still exist in our current linear timeline or are they existing in a different timeline or dimensional reality? Each are a bit different. So, so we'll start with Agartha and, and both do still exist. However, we wouldn't necessarily put them directly on your timeline. So Agartha is such an ancient underground city that it's evolved at a, a very accelerated pace. Think about the evolution of the inner earth in terms of the earth's grid system, for example, the earth's poles, uh, the channels of energy that run from the galactic core and all of the electromagnetic energy that is pulsating within her. That is going to have a very dramatic effect on the beings and the locations deep within earth. So, what we've noticed about Agartha is it is more a ninth to 11th dimensional reality, meaning that even though it's a part of your physical earth, it isn't tangibly recognizable by many of you. In fact, most of you, because in order to perceive it and to actually visit it tangibly, uh, the mass of humanity uh, would have to exist in that same dimension, meaning you would be holding a ninth to 11th dimension quite consistently uh, in order for you to have more physical experiences of the city uh, or location, we'll call it, in your physical timeline. Telos is a portal, and of course, because of that, it has access to all dimensions. But but because it's somewhat more of a blend of surface and inner Earth location, it hasn't evolved so radically um, in its dimensional, we'll say, preclusion, even though... Um, and, a location can be multidimensional. Uh, it also holds a dominant frequency. So, so we want to give you an example because we know that those who who are 
gathering around these transmissions are focused on the fifth dimension. Uh, and we see the fifth dimension as an access way uh, or, or a passageway to the multi-dimensions. So it's much easier in the fifth dimensional reality for individual souls to have different multi-dimensional timeline experiences than others. Um, and this is what we see with Telos. It is um, a multi-dimensional reality, more fifth to seventh in its presentation, uh, but nonetheless having this incredible access to many other locations and dimensions as well. If we were to go to one of these locations today and assuming we could gain entry, if we didn't exist in that, let's take in the case of Agartha in that 11th or 9th or 11th, I think, uh, dimensional space, what would we see? Just um, cave structures and so on, but we wouldn't see any people or civilization, just an empty space? Well, you wouldn't be able to actually exist there because from a, a quantum perspective, the physicality that you exist within is a manifestation of the vibration and the light that you hold. And that is going to be the basis for any experience that you have. So it would be almost impossible for you to visit from a physical sense, Agartha, in the state that you're in today. It does not mean that individual human souls aren't having multidimensional experiences there. For example, uh, if you are a meditator uh, and you are regularly practicing, you are shifting your vibration on a chronic and constant basis. And there will be some fluctuation throughout your day where you may be resonating higher than the fifth dimension at times, or uh, you may even be resonating lower than the fifth dimension at times. But that's why those who practice remote viewing, for example, or um, time traveling or telepathy are so focused on the breath. Because to state a clear intention and be vibrating in a very accelerated fashion is to allow you to have an experience of almost anything. So, So what's happening, and we've brought this to your attention in past transmissions, is that you're using your plasma your human plasma to be able to visit Agartha or to have an experience in Telos, not your actual physical body and physical senses, which is a much different type of experience, but it just is valuable. And, and perhaps I could say um, it could lead you to interact with the beings who are there, uh, the living beings like even plants or elements or rocks and have a conversation with them, uh, as well as in a location like Telos. So, so those of us who um, speak to you today, we, we are actually existing in a state of plasma in this moment. And that's how you are receiving the information and energy, because this channel is in a vibratory state where the plasmic access is at its peak. And every human has that peak plasmic access that they can work with and even tend to um, uh, expand. Uh, but some actually come in, meaning they come to Earth with uh, a very 
plasmic field. And it is simply a um, indication of many lifetimes where they've developed a relationship to that plasma uh, or they may in fact be somewhat hybrid in a sense, uh, tending to operate more in their crystalline energy or, or light vibration than physical. But plasma is everything. Plasma is key. So we might say it'll take a much longer time for humanity to get to the point where they could physically visit a location like Agartha. But today, uh, it's possible for those who are dedicated and practice to use their plasma to visit there in a very um, altered and sensory way. What's the significance of mountains? It seems like um, in the case of uh, Agartha, it's located near Mount um, uh, Mount Kailash. And of course, Telos is Mount Shasta. Is there any connection there? Think of the land form, not necessarily characteristic of a mountain, because for a mountain to form, there's been alchemy that has taken place. The very precious elements and and soils and rocks have combined in such a way that there's a protective area and an entry point around a very sensitive ley line or energy meridian within Earth. And we see this happening all the time. It's not to say that every mountain on planet Earth is a portal or is an entryway to the inner Earth, uh, but many of them are simply because the combination of the vibratory materials that has formed it uh, is easy access, we'll say, for, for those who exist in a state of light uh, to enter. Or beneath the earth, there's a culmination of that vibration, making it easier for those who've lived on the earth to now um, integrate themselves into a state where they are more comfortable uh, in an environment beneath it. Actually, this is why in Shambhala, the Atlanteans were so present. Uh, remember, this was a period of cataclysm and there were a great many shifts taking place on planet earth that land masses had completely collapsed and new ones were coming into formation and these mountains or these land masses they were a very um, obvious sign to those who had migrated from these communities that potent elemental earthly energies were resonant with their way of living. Um, remember, in, in Atlantis, the technologies that were created to raise vibration and to hold a specific level of quantum coherence were elemental in, in nature. Uh, they were fused together uh, using water, uh, air, uh, earth, ether, crystal, uh, such that everyone was feeling resilient and energetic and unified uh, and somewhat purposeful in their endeavors. So imagine not having that anymore, but viewing a technology that nonetheless came together magically and perfectly just for them. Uh, this is how many in these ancient times would have seen these landforms. Yeah, it's believed in India that um, Shiva lived in Mount Kailash with his family. 
Now, was that true? We certainly see Shiva living in this location because of the potent energies that were present. But you also must keep in mind that Shiva was a hybrid and an intergalactic being having the ability to travel well beyond the earth as well. Mm-hmm. It was also believed that Mount Kailash was originally a pyramid that he constructed and that he lived inside of and that it's uh, just simply worn away so much through thousands of years of weathering to now where it doesn't look quite pyramid-like but more like a mountain. Is that is that the case? Well, not necessarily because hybrids who were creating pyramids We're not doing so in a sense of physical construction only. Uh, What you must keep in mind is that in working with the earth, there were often intergalactic architects who would come in and and assimilate the area to a specific request or a need. While pyramids still exist today, and we can go into great detail as to why they were created and what their purpose is, the area that you speak of was more a land mass that had been seen as so valuable that it became a technology in and of itself vibrationally. So someone like Shiva, for example, coming in with the ability to work with energy would have used various light technologies to call to the elementals to change their location and form to certain precision, um, we'll say, cuts and angles that would uh, preclude the inner resonance, uh, allowing it to come into perfect harmony. So so while we could call it a pyramid, um, what we're attempting to relay here is it may not have looked exactly as you would picture a pyramid from ancient Egypt, uh, for example, but, but nonetheless, no different in its characteristics. So you said Shiva was a hybrid. What what kind of hybrid was he? A multidimensional one, in fact. Uh, we look at Shiva's origins as going back to Sirius. And Sirius was a very um, popular location for many of the hybrids who of the time who came in. But this was not his only cosmic origins. In fact, we see Shiva having a very um, advanced and lengthy cosmic lineage, uh, in fact, sitting on many of the councils that you have spoken of uh, or spoken to in these transmissions. Uh, But coming to Earth, Shiva chose to intermingle many of his different genetic lineages from cosmic locations to take advantage of them in human form. So when a hybrid comes to Earth, it isn't always necessarily that they are choosing one galactic lineage or another, or they come from one specific star system that they will decide to stake claim to uh, on planet Earth. Sometimes as a, as a being is coming through that, that tunnel of light from the state of connection that it is in, uh, it, it chooses to have access to all aspects of itself, which is why it is seen often as a master, uh, not because it is um, somehow wiser and more knowledgeable than any other, but because in a moment's notice, it has the ability to tune in and transfer what it has known before 
into the present moment in, in a very applicable way. And, and this is who Shiva was. Uh, also being able to tap into those galactic powers, if you will, uh, from an extrasensory standpoint, uh, which is why he was seen in such physical prowess or strength, in other words, uh, even sometimes as a, as a warrior, because those who came in with these natural abilities in the crystalline DNA, uh, they were able to shape shift to whatever was necessary on planet Earth at the time that they were facing. And this was a, a true advantage. It's, it's truly very similar also to who you are and your capabilities um, that had been suppressed through time. Was there any significance to, I, I assume this is the hybridization process that causes them to appear a certain way in this physical dimension. Um, Shiva, as an example, is sometimes depicted in, in blue, um, just like um, uh, Krishna as well. What's that significance of the blue skin? Is there any connection there? It's not typically the same on every being, but we do want to define the two that you are speaking of because we actually see it very similar in nature. Uh, skin color is often a reflection of not only genetic lineage, but how a soul is working with many hues and spectrums of light within a physical body. Uh, for example, uh, on each one of you, at, at the core of the cell, there is a spectrum of light that is radiant and and nutrient. And through that cell spectrum, your physical body uh, appears. And sometimes uh, the skin color is a reflection not only of the physical lineage that you have been born to and have chosen, but also a reflection of the various combination of these color spectrums that so make up your genetics. Now, we see the, the blue color not necessarily being uh, reminiscent of any one cosmic lineage, but we're looking at the propensity to use light in a very, um, we'll say, um, highly um, plasmic way, again, um, meaning there was constant turnover and transformation of the physical body through light. And sometimes this was like using prana uh, as the nutrient source, the breath that these beings were working with. It was a far more advanced type of exchange with the atmosphere than what many of you are even drawing within your physical lungs because their technology was designed completely differently. Remember, looking at a being that may have practiced in the rites um, and, and teachings of uh, Kundalini and, and Tantra and came with such an advanced structure that they were a walking reflection of that in each moment, meaning that the breath that they were bringing in was causing the color of their skin to reflect like a spectrum of light. Uh, all of the energy that they were producing. Blue doesn't necessarily mean one thing or another in terms of the color. It's just showing us that a soul is working with more of its plasma. One of the children of Shiva was Ganesh, supposedly. 
Now, Ganesha is depicted as more of an elephant type of human humanoid being. Was that another a different hybridization process that caused him to appear in that physical form, or was that just an illustration he really didn't appear in his elephant form? Yeah, we'll answer both questions here. Um, remember, the children were manifested somewhat like Immaculate Conception. These were tantric types of relationships where a womb was prepared to allow a soul to come through it somewhat like a portal and manifest on earth for a very specific purpose, even in a, a very highly um, advanced state of consciousness. And this is how we see Ganesh coming in, not a physical manifestation of birth so much as more a, an immaculate conception of energy. Um, and, and this certainly is an example of how a parent choosing a multidimensional expression might mentor a child who is choosing one that is more linear in its reflection. And we actually see Ganesh uh, coming more through a, a Syrian Lyran type of expression than any other. And the renderings of him, while looking very much like an elephant, elephant um, are slightly different than he would have appeared. It does not mean he did not have these characteristics necessarily. Uh, but remember, he, as an intergalactic soul, was interacting with beings who were more human in their nature. And if you are interacting vibrationally with a hybrid, you're going to slightly change in order to have that interaction. So it is almost like a channeled encounter at times where much like Blavatsky would have translated the information from Shambhala and told a story uh, humans who are painting a picture of Ganesh are piecing together that image like a puzzle from a time-traveled event that they have just had. Uh, it's not to say that those humans didn't remember um, the meeting in and of itself or weren't conscious of it necessarily. But if a hybrid is known to shapeshift, if they're, if they're using energy completely different than another human is, then there are going to be characteristics about them that are also going to shapeshift and change with the amount of light that they are working with and that they are carrying. And this is a codependent type of relationship as well. We see Ganesh more as a enlightened healer uh, than necessarily a teacher, even though he's been seen in that light. And he was doing a lot of energetic transference in the time that he existed on planet Earth. Uh, this was done collectively. It was done individually. And this caused him to take many different forms. So the elephant in this, in this region was a very revered animal. Uh, and Ganesh himself was, was very revered. So the two were seen somewhat in symbiosis. So let me just reiterate so I can make sure I understand. So what you're saying is Shiva and Ganesh as an example were both hybrid beings. And as a result, were they existing in on Earth in a slightly different dimension? So the average human being today, for example, would not have been able to perceive them in physical form. Some were and others were not. 
in the time that he existed. So Shiva is known as a god because his presence on earth was was somehow necessary to be seen, heard, and felt for advancements in consciousness to be made. But that doesn't necessarily mean that every human being interacted with him deliberately. So, so to answer your question, we would say there were times in which uh, Shiva may have appeared uh, to a slight few or, or, or many. And there are times when he existed in a, in a pure state of light uh, where his energy was accessed only by those in a meditative state. In a previous conversation, we spoke with Akhenaten and the um, religion that he uh, professed or rather taught back then. And the religion was really that God was within ourselves. So know thyself as God and rather not to worship Akhenaten as a God. And uh, now in India, Shiva and um, Ganesh and various others are are worshipped as gods. Was that a problem? Was that a teach? That was. It sounds to me like if Shiva was of the uh, Syrian race, and so was Ganesh, they wouldn't have taught a spiritual or religious belief system where they were seen as gods or worshipped as gods. Am I on the right track? We understand what you're saying, but but we want you to recall that this is a different timeline, different dimension. Uh, than the one that Akhenaten existed within. And not every teaching that has been left behind of the uh, hybrids that we have been speaking of, like Shiva, uh, is accurate to what those beings would have wanted humanity to know and understand. It's natural for humans to want uh, a god uh, or a savior or a one who they can worship that takes away their pain or suffering. And to have the presence of gods like this on planet Earth at the time, um, it, it caused what we would say a great divide at times. And this divide is still seen in this region today, where there are some who would have worshipped these gods and others who would have been more focused on a, a god, uh, a prime creator. Yet the... Gods known as, as Shiva, for example, or, or even Ganesh, they were here in more of a heart-based type of expression, but more even human in their nature, we might say, meaning they were here to explore what it might be like to understand a soul vibration, to live in a soul vibration, it was a two-way type of um, uh, offering. We think today that, that hybrids or gods come in and they are here to offer us something, but there is nothing that we are giving them in return. And, and that could not be further from the truth. Uh, even today, there are many enlightened souls who are walking a purposeful path, who have come in with incredible gifts and abilities, who still take on the understanding of the human condition as a part of their evolutionary journey and karmic path. And, and these things go hand in hand. So we're not seeing perfection in these beings. That, that's the point that we want to make. Uh, it isn't necessarily ego, though, either. 
what we're noticing is a, a propensity of humans to revere those who are different than them, uh, who have certain uh, powers or knowledge, but not necessarily the beings receiving that reverence, wanting it in the way it was given. Um, in many of the traditions that are carried out today, uh, maybe focused on giving that power away, uh, and, and sometimes not. We we know that there are some who are focused on a being like Ganesh, for example, in prayer, but feel a strong connection to him as a mentor or a guide or, or a servant even. And and the um, purpose or the mission of these beings, it, it still goes on today. So we think a lot has been misconstrued in in history, and, and some of this has been purposeful, of course, uh, to put humans in a position of a position of uh, vulnerability and weakened power, uh, when in fact those who may have been present with them at the day uh, or at the time or the the period that they were present uh, would not necessarily have been giving up their power so readily. In previous conversations, we've discussed a variety of different iconography that exists in the world. For example, the uh, the eagle that's used uh, that we discussed was a connection to the uh, ancient Anunnaki uh, and also the the ancient um, god Garuda, which was a representation of the Anunnaki as well. Uh, but we also discuss the lion beings being a representation of the Syrians. And uh, one thing that I find interesting is that both Tibet and India use the lion in their um, either in their flag or their insignias. And and both are regarded very spiritual places and have a very long, uh, long term going into the tens of thousands of years uh, lineage of spirituality and consciousness and and a lot of ancient gods and goddesses who lived in those areas. Uh, is it fair to assume that the lion insignia was used in, in their iconography as a link or a representation of Sirius? Yes, it, it was. And, and keep in mind, you've been asking us a great deal about the inner earth beings related to the Atlanteans and the elder Atlanteans, some of those who originally came to form and, and um, create that civilization uh, manifested from Sirius. So, so that lineage, it, it's perpetuated on and it's shown in much of the iconography as you speak of um, in dedication to those beings. But but even in uh, later periods of time where the, the lion has continued in archaeology, for example, there wasn't necessarily a, a direct link to understanding it being a sign of Sirius. Um, those were uh, lions were seen as the guardians of gates. And remember, we are speaking of these various extra sensitive areas like portals having their own consciousness and their own technology, sometimes even appearing to humans in an, in a metaphysical sense or an astral sense, uh, like a dragon or a lion. So uh, by that, are you saying that the individuals or governments who use this iconography 
didn't do so with the knowledge of the Syrian lineage that they came from. They are just doing it for other reasons. Not necessarily. Uh, we do think there are some in the know, in other words, who understand the power of that lineage and those who came from that civilization and the fact that they are still existing in uh, the portals and the sensitive areas uh, able to be uh, communicated with and, and utilized as wisdom keepers and record keepers. Would it be reasonable to assume that if a nation such as India or Tibet is using the lion iconography indicating Sirius uh, or the Syrian race, that um, that particular nation may have a different um, purpose or consciousness or anything like that than a nation that might use uh, Garuda or the Anunnaki symbolism, such as the United States? Well, certainly it's reflective of a difference in consciousness. Not to say, of course, that that every being in, in each race is completely the same in terms of their consciousness level. But remember, we are looking at history here. So perhaps what we're peering into uh, is the the intentions and perhaps even the origins of some of the leaders of these various civilizations. Um, even ascended masters who were trained within these areas uh, may have been um, uh, alarmed or or uh, understanding the intentions of those that they would meet as they were pilgrimage pilgrimage taking a pilgrimage of those lands. Uh, based on these various symbols. So, so yes, we agree with you that, that this is showing a, a slight difference in level of consciousness. Uh, but remember, this is a tuning to history, um, and not necessarily always reflective of these geographic regions today. Now in Indonesia, their uh, flag, uh, is actually a depiction of Garuda holding a ribbon in its in its claws. And um, it looks very similar to the United States seal. But of course, the United States, there is no connection made to Garuda. And in, in Indonesia, they actually have an, a Garuda Airlines too. So it's clearly they are fully aware of the use of this god who was a very violent and aggressive God in ancient depictions of him. Whereas the U.S. are using the eagle, but it's almost exactly a duplicate of the same uh, iconography. Now, in previous conversations, we talked about Garuda being Anunnaki. Is it representing a particular being, uh, Anunnaki being, or just the whole collective together? Not, not in every circumstance. So, so certainly we do see in some circumstances uh, that Garuda is honored as, as a god or an enlightened being, but more so it's harnessing the power of that god or, or the energy of that being. That's, that's what we most, um, want to express in the, in the translation of these various choices. Because remember, you're looking at a, a group of human beings at an upper echelon uh, experience of others, uh, 
attempting to replicate some of the, the ceremonies that were had very early on in their civilizations where power was exchanged hands, not in a deliberate and known fashion, but by taking it from others. So, so some of these symbols are uh, a replication of the, the very acts um, and, and history that they stand for. Yet, remember, there are so many who are even unaware of this. So even while a government agency may choose uh, or, or a certain geographic region may affiliate with uh, a symbol like this, it does not mean that everyone uh, who is associated with it, especially in a, in a governmental way, uh, makes the deliberate connection. But it matters not. So, so remember, when we're looking at something like iconography or symbology, uh, it holds the history within it in a vibrational sense. So to place it in as many locations as possible, especially in, in government offices, for example, or to use it uh, in an expression of currency, for example, uh, it's keeping the vibration of that energy alive. And that can be a very positive Thing for the humans that are connected to it, or uh, as we have discussed in past transmissions, it can actually lower the vibration or the sense of worth within the collective. Was Garuda an enlightened being? When you use the word enlightened, we want to make the distinction between access of energy and knowledge and the use of such. Because in in many of the ancient civilizations that we've been speaking of, there was a reverence for accessing the, the cosmic universe or the Akashic records and being able to um, manipulate energy or, or work with it in a very metaphysical sense. So to be able to do that would require you to access a certain level of consciousness or to be seen oftentimes as enlightened, which sometimes um, uh, depicts a soul being far more advanced in its ability. But just because that advancement or enlightenment is present does not mean that the intention is always good. And so even today, uh, on planet Earth, we notice that there are some who are enlightened in terms of that definition, but are using their access to knowledge and power to do things of ill intent. And and this we could say about, about many of those in ancient civilizations, uh, especially someone like Garuda. So you mentioned that um, when when a nation or a country or a region uses this iconography, that they're able to tap into this um, the energy or the power of these entities or individuals. So can we make a general generalization then that nations such as the United States or Indonesia that use Garuda are tapping into that more warlike, aggressive Anunnaki energy versus um, India and Tibet, which clearly have a very spiritual lineage by comparison, where the U.S. is known for creating wars all over the world. Um, 
can we make that determination that there is that they're tapping into a more spiritual vibration with the, the use of the lions versus the when they're using the Garuda uh, figure? Well, we agree with what you're saying, and we think it, it, it's quite clear. Uh, as you observe these various patterns and these various symbols, uh, you are seeing the reflection of what they stand for. So simply by a nation choosing those kinds of uh, the different kinds of iconography, they can align themselves with a different, um, let's say, future or path or experience. So let's say you were to create an entirely new nation and use lions in the iconography. Would you automatically be tapping into that energy to create that reality in that nation's experience? Well, it would take much more than that, we believe. So the very idea that a nation would adopt a, a, a more Syrian reflection in its in its our, our iconography, uh, we think would go along with a shift in consciousness. So so putting something into a physical environment without the exact match of consciousness to be able to interact with it, uh, it doesn't necessarily make as much of a difference as what you might imagine. So, so simply using a, a lion iconography is not going to bring in higher consciousness. It would be a tool, we would say, uh, in the toolbox, but, but also keep in mind that there is a bit of a limitation around using these exclusive symbols at all. And, and we're not necessarily saying that it's wrong, that uh, a country like India is is more associated with uh, a heartfelt type of God uh, than another. But remember, as, as humans, you come from a lineage of many different cosmic families. So to even focus on one, we think, as being higher or better than another, it, it, it somewhat mimics the conditions um, of your current reality that are so limiting already, meaning that to even focus in on, on one race as being the, the evolutionary savior over another is limiting your DNA. And what we want for humanity is to be able to tap in and to express that cosmic and multidimensional lineage in whatever way it chooses. And, and this would bring back, we think, a true sense of sovereignty where humans would become the living manifestation of their own hybrid priority. And that could change. But because of that, we think the illumination of consciousness uh, would would follow suit, meaning uh, if everyone was stepping into the truth of who they are organically, even in very small ways, without having to focus it on one thing or another, uh, the world could change so rapidly. But unfortunately, there has been so much suppression and so much distortion in the way of expressing your truth that if we got too far into choosing one symbol or another, our fear would be that you would go along on the same trajectory. You see what we're saying? Mm-hmm. Now, the use of the, the lion iconography in India and Tibet and in that region, which is the region that um, 
that the Atlanteans uh, settled in, in that, in that underground area that we discussed earlier, um, was the use of the lion, does that go back in time to the Atlanteans moving there? Is there was, so was that done intentionally and in a time where people knew why they were doing it. And now it's just simply carried as a tradition into modern times. Yes, we, we could certainly say that. And and remember, much of what you're seeing is on the surface of the earth, which we think is interesting, considering we've started this conversation with an inner earth civilization. Uh, when you begin to see concrete physical manifestations or, or symbols on the surface of the earth, uh, relating to things that exist below it, uh, it's a very good sign because ultimately what you want is the reunion of, of all aspects of Mother Earth uh, as one. And so this was a period of time where we might say the consciousness was a bit more advanced and the building of these various structures and architecture with the symbology, um, it was really just a continuation, in other words, of all of the knowledge uh, that was being exchanged uh, in the inner earth and and even um, sharing it, we'll say, in a very constructive way with those that existed beyond it. So if that's the case, what can we say about the United States or America, for example, North and South America, which means land of the plume serpent, which, uh, of course, we may say is, uh, would you say that that's a representation of Garuda then? And if so, what is happening beneath the earth here that would match that? So many things. And it, it's it's very hard to qualify because remember, these are multidimensional experiences and the earth has changed so much. But there certainly are many underground cities and gateways and passages beneath the United States. In fact, uh, we think there are so many vibrant and potent areas that can absolutely be tapped into uh, where beings exist. But it does not mean that the symbology that you're seeing on the surface of the earth in the United States is actually a reflection of negative entities or beings beneath the earth. Certainly, we do see the Garuda influence. We definitely see more of a reptilian type of influence as well. But a lot of what's happened in this region, uh, it, it truly dates back to to some of the issues that have gone on uh, beyond. Because the settlers that came into these areas, um, many of them had been influenced by quote-unquote gods uh, who had done things, or hybrids, we'll say, who had done things that were not in humanity's best interest. So a lot of the origins of government uh, or, or we'll say mentorship or councils uh, in the United States are, are truly coming from more of a malevolent intent. Uh, and that doesn't necessarily always reflect what's going on beneath the surface of the earth. Um, because if we lose touch with Gaia Sophia uh, as humans, meaning energetically and physically, we see ourselves as separate of her. And as individuals, we see ourselves separate of each other. And this is taught and it's it's reinforced in, in schooling and our upbringing. We're going to see more separation and, and division between um, the inner and the, and the surface of the earth. Um, and, and naturally that is going to happen, but 
ultimately what we're going for is to find some sort of reunion and stability where we can tap into these various um, beings, we'll call them, that are supportive of humanity. And, and keep in mind also, we've, we've talked a lot about portals today and, and land masses, and, and there are many in the United States, uh, but Earth herself, uh, Gaia Sophia as a being, uh, exists as a portal to the universe, meaning that sometimes we notice humans are, are reaching into the astral and attempting to retrieve information from angels and intergalactic councils, which are all of great help. Uh, but the inner earth is what allows human beings to do that. So there is a connection to the core uh, and a connection to the frequency of uh, what you've, you've called the Schumann uh, resonance that holds humans in an altered state that helps them to ground here as physical beings while also be able to use their, their cosmic nature in a very wide scope. We think this is one of the most valuable assets of the inner earth locations beneath the United States, which might also be why there are so many who see the United States as valuable, (laughs) meaning um, the elements that exist beneath her are so rich and so wonderful uh, and have been used in ancient civilizations to harness energy uh, that those that exist on the surface want to stake claim to those things. Uh, and we think this is one of the themes that you're noticing. Now, what you said earlier about um, the surface matching what's happening in the inner earth. So let, let's take um, the Tibetan Mount Kailash uh, Indian area as an example, which has uh, depictions of lions as their iconography which would indicate, as we discussed, I'm putting, assembling a few pieces together, so tell me if I'm on, on the wrong track. So that lion iconography is suggestive of the Atlanteans having moved there um, after, I assume, after the Great Flood and the destruction of Atlantis. And, uh, and so that iconography of the Syrian lions carried through to modern times in their nation's flag and seals and so on. Um, now... Is that match that's occurring on the surface that's um, that's also happening in the inner earth the result of interaction that's taking place between physical human beings and the inner earth beings? Or is it just simply a vibrational match that's occurring between the two? It, it's both. Now, we can't qualify the number of human beings who have time traveled to the inner earth in this location and say that there's a certain measurement or or quality or quantity of of interactions that needs to be had. But, but remember, you're here as the balance of physical and light. And so in order to truly thrive and, and make that valuable connection, both as a human being as well as an, an earthly being, is to use them in proper balance. And so historically, if we look at locations within India, for example, there has been a focus on meditation. And, and because of that, there's been a, a forging of um, connection between the physical beings that exist on the surface of the earth and, and the energy that they are able to draw and capitalize from the inner earth. This isn't something that's always relayed and, and discussed in many of these ancient meditative practices, yet it happens anyway. It's somewhat like, an extension of your aura. 
when you are breathing and meditating and practicing, inevitably your aura will become larger. And because of that, there are many benefits. You will interact with more humans and you will make a, a, a logical influence of some kind, uh, beneficial or otherwise on them. But the aura doesn't only go outward from the body in a, in a um, side to side fashion. It goes upward and downward as well. And so we notice this sometimes that the enlightened masters of the ancient historic periods in India uh, had these incredible auric fields and they were helping to blend energies truly uh, between the human interactions on earth and the interactions that were had with the beings uh, in the inner earth. And, and we think this is what's facilitated a lot of what you have seen, but also keep in mind that the temples and the gathering places for, for prayer and meditation Many of these were assisted in their construction by intergalactic ships. And Syrians had a, a great hand in this, meaning uh, they had uh, been also called to locations like Atlantis very early on to help construct some of the pyramids. <clears throat> this was done using what we call light templates. Uh, in other words, a, a template was put together uh, etherically and <clears throat> written into the energy field of the plasma ship. And then the minerals and the crystal and the rock of a land formation became alchemized by light moving through the template, forming a structure in perfect symmetry where all of the rest would fall away. And this is why beneath those structures, you could see chambers that were made of the resulting transformation, the alchemy, uh, very potent healing chambers that contained underground waterways, for example, and arrangements of crystal, very adorned even in sacred geometry. And, and so much of this happened also uh, in India, as well as in many other locations. Uh, but we think that you're seeing the, the reverence and the appreciation to those uh, beings and ships assisting in those endeavors as well. You're referring to uh, ancient enlightened masters who um, lived in that time or in that, in that ancient time. Now, in in that Mount Kailash area, uh, which is sort of the border between Tibet and China and India, there uh, is history of a an ancient Buddhist um, religion or uh, group of people uh, called the Bon uh, Buddhist religion. And now the understanding is that linearly that that religion started about 17,000 years ago. But as we've discussed before, prior to nine to 12,000 years, there was a timeline shift. So how is it possible even to track that back to 17,000 years ago? Uh, first of all, can you tell me about the Bon religion? Well, the Bon religion is a slight deviation from what is known as modern Buddhism today, but but it evolved by speaking in tongues. So much of the chants that are, are known to have been practiced 
uh, actually came from uh, another dimension. And there is Syrian influence here, but it is not an exclusive Syrian influence. Much of these, um, we'll, we'll say elders that were involved in this practice were actually taught to work with their plasma in order to levitate and to use the, the inner chamber, we'll say, of, of the heart and the various meridians to move energy through such that uh, they could not feel the difference in temperature between extreme heat and extreme cold, uh, nor were they able to detect hunger, for example. It involved somewhat shutting down the physical system uh, in order to default to using only light. Yet you're asking us about uh, the number of years in which this practice was sustained on planet Earth. And we actually want to put it in a different dimension, um, meaning, of course, that it's difficult to calculate the exact time uh, because on planet Earth, at the period in which there was a cataclysm, there were many souls that were both taken on ships, for example, uh, and, and, and prepared to come back in an altered form, uh, and others that took on roles and lifetimes in alternate dimensions just to become something uh, other than who they were in preparation for what they called at the time the new earth. So, so ultimately, we can't put a determination on this in terms of where you stand today because it's not only still going on, but it also reflects a period in which human souls were in a different dimension. Was there any, so you said they're not Syrian entirely. Um, is there any connection to the Atlantean race? Uh, obviously, well, uh, as you're saying, it was in a different timeline, but did they coexist with the timeline of Atlantis then? Because linearly they would have been in the same time frame. We see some of them being Atlantean elders, but we said, say not exclusively, because um, what we notice about those that were studying this is that they were calling in other collectives and cosmic families to support simply to blend techniques, meaning there was an invitation that went out for other enlightened beings from races beyond the earth to come in and, and join as a member of this sect, we'll call it, um, which we could even call a, a council, uh, to, to teach in certain techniques that, that others did not have access to. So we agree, certainly, uh, there is an Atlantean-Syrian connection, but we are simply explaining that it's not exclusive to that race. The Bon religion is said to have uh, certain practices and meditations and so on, some of which haven't even been made available to human beings in modern times. Now, maybe in exclusive circles they have been, but not in any mass way. Uh, can you describe some of these meditations? What were the, what was the significance of them? What, what the meditation was aiming for was no breath at all. Um, we know this sounds impossible to achieve as a human being and imagining that the breath is the foundation of meditation, it would seem impossible to do it unless you were breathing. But, but these beings were practicing in not using a physical body mechanism in order to transfer all of its 
energy into a sentient state, almost as if a soul was transferring itself from its material existence fully into light. But the techniques varied greatly, and they took many different phases, as you can imagine. First, fasting was the most important part of this practice, meaning in these days, even though um, food wasn't looked at in the same way that humans perceive it today, um, ingestion of anything had to be exclusively eliminated uh, because if the physical body was assimilating physical energy, it would begin to rely on that as opposed to the energy that it had within it. But also sound was used as a foundation to reach uh, what we'll call a state of samadhi or a emerged state in which the energy field was brought to its highest and most resonant place. Now, languages of light are very different today in terms of their cosmic orientation. We're speaking more of a tone and a blending of energies coming straight from the sacral and the root, where it was more of a low-range guttural type of vibration causing a reverberation throughout the entire system. It isn't necessarily related to the ohm that many of you practice today, yet it would be the closest um, example we might find in relationship to this chant or, or divination practice. Uh, stillness had to be found, meaning there could be no movement of the body, uh, no fluctuation of the eyes, no focus on the hands or the feet, uh, only a, a sense of being present and still without any use of the body. What eventually began to happen was that a soul would find itself moving between dimensions. And in that state, attempt to let go of the breath such that it carried it naturally and organically. There was a period where those who were in meditation who were sitting in mudra would actually begin to lie down because their body could no longer support the weight of their density and it was necessary for them to be in complete and total rest. And you would begin to see the the chamber of the uh, heart, for example, and even the um, abdomen begin to slow in its breath almost to nothing, where the breath became so shallow that a soul began to shift into an altered state of consciousness, whereby it was traveling beyond the veil. In that state, the goal was to stay as conscious to the physical plane as possible. So this was a dualistic type of experience where a soul may actually have uh, a remote viewing experience of itself in the practice, as well as the group that it was with. But in addition to this, we began to notice the levitation of the body. It was a, a, a natural um, conclusion to the body fully letting go, fully letting go of its physical presence 
and a soul accessing all of its light. Now, um, interestingly, Jesus's tomb is actually very near Mount Kailash. And, um, and he supposedly spent his later years, uh, although the biblical text suggests that he died on the cross. There's a lot of evidence suggesting that he visited a lot of Buddhist temples and, and lived in that area to a much older age and had children and so on. Um, is there any significance? Was he studying any of these um, ancient religions such as the Bon in, in his lifetime? Well, keep in mind, Jesus as a master would have been on the earth before in many of these different time periods and locations which was the primary reason for his visitation of any of them. Because as a master, what are what you are attempting to do is gather as many aspects of your soul from beyond the veil as possible and to awaken them within yourself in order to apply them in some meaningful way in the timeline that your soul has chosen. But to have ended up at this point in his life connected to this location would have been no mistake because we certainly see him as having been an elder in Atlantis, having come back and visited these many different locations. Ganesh, for example, and the many light teachers that initiated with him were there. But in addition to this, the energy present in that location in and of itself was a sustaining type of energy for him. Remember, the earth was 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 holding coherence between the inner and the surface locations and masters of this caliber um, in approaching the end of their life would have been preparing in, in some way of ceremony to gift the earth with all aspects of their energy. And, and so we see this as being somewhat of a, a, a final initiation or a prep, preparatory phase uh, for leaving behind um, his legacy and the template of his energy uh, that would be imbued within the earth. So if we were to go to this tomb, now, so did Jesus walk the I know in our linear timeline the belief is that Jesus lived some 2000 years ago um but there are some more ancient stories of beings like Jesus who live very similar lives that predate the life of Jesus and predate the Bible so did Jesus actually live 2000 years ago in our linear timeline or did he exist in another dimension obviously his tomb is there so is there something there, remains of his, or is it just the belief that he was there? Well, well, it is both. Jesus is a master who did walk the earth in a physical form. But the most enlightened masters will come to earth at a period of time where they are meant to make an important impact and have seated before them in many lives that they have lived the the knowledge and the gifts and the understanding of what they are to do here. In other words, um, many refer to mystery schools. And at this time, those in the Christ Collective having attended those schools 
But the teachers themselves were actually aspects of these masters coming in in a different form, leading them down the path of knowing themselves and, and understanding what they were yet to do. So many of these masters paved their own way, in other words, uh, to be on the planet at the times that they were. Uh, but you're referring to the tomb of Jesus, and, and we want to make some clarification here because while we see this as a dedication uh, to his life and perhaps assumed to be a burial location of his body, again, a master of this caliber would have prepared himself in order to be spread throughout the earth in very strategic locations. Uh, he is not the only one who has ever done this. There have been many other masters on the earth who have gone through this ritualistic uh, practice and process where they prepared the body energetically, very much like the Buddhist collective that you have discussed, where the breath could be slowed almost to nothing. And the soul could have an experience of itself while it still existed on planet earth. And in doing so may have given others and even itself instructions as to how its body was to be treated like an earthly elixir, where it may have been perhaps uh, burned in a ceremonial process where the um, various uh, attendees had been called from different directions of the earth to take ashes with them to bless certain spiritual locations that would hold the earth in the energy of that master that that would allow others to experience that master through the um, same pilgrimage that he walked in other words so so what you're asking us to confirm is is the temple or, or the um, um, burial location of Jesus the actual place where his body exists and we don't necessarily agree with that. Uh, we think a master of this caliber would have prepared his body and did so in such a way that it could be shared with the whole of the earth and not just exist in one location. That aside, um, we make note of the very powerful presence of Jesus that still exists in that space. Uh, sometimes a, a temple or a, a place of reverence is created such that the soul has a place to reside where others uh, uh, who could see him in a familiar light may meet him directly. Uh, and we do believe this goes on there. So it's not to say that the presence of Jesus uh, isn't there. Uh, and the soul or the master that was this man could not be called upon in this place. Yet we think the extension of uh, all of him, his body, his light, his his knowledge, his genetics, um, all that he did and all that he was, was, was too precious to remain in any one place. You mentioned mystery schools and, and nowadays um, and for at least in the current timeline from post-Atlantean times, there have been a lot of mystery schools to this day. And nowadays, a lot of secret societies in the world and even in the United States, a lot of our world leaders belong to secret societies where it seems like they practice occult um, practices and rituals that we've discussed in, in previous conversations. 
these uh, these what is the reason for there being these secret societies and mystery schools where these practices are taught in a secretive way? And uh, are, are these is that a phenomena that occurred post the Atlantean, the end of Atlantis, um, with teachings that actually were just part of everyday life in Atlantean times? We do agree that much of this happened post-Atlantis, and this is why. There was a fear amongst many that these highly powerful and energetic teachings would get into the hands of those who did not have the consciousness or intention to properly use them, uh, to use them, in other words, for good. Uh, but the reverse is also true. Uh, we see there are many underground mystery schools and, and, and gatherings of souls that were aimed at hiding these teachings in order to hold and gain power. So it's actually across the board. Um, when, when we are secluding something from the rest of the world, we do the world no justice, even if sometimes the intention is good, because ultimately what we want for the whole of humanity is for them to feel the trust and faith that they're able to use anything that we give them in the right way in, in order to serve and, and to love and to cherish uh, their fellow mankind. But unfortunately, um, fear has gotten in the way, and that fear goes in both directions. Sometimes it is to hold back on something that others assume that humans are not ready for, and in many respects, it's to actually diminish the, the power and the value of humans in receiving the same amount of knowledge. Are there any teachings that, uh, that you feel that humanity is currently ready for that were taught in mystery schools in ancient times or even modern times that could be shared in a conversation like this? It's hard for us to name them exclusively because we see so many that are already preparing to come to the surface and have expressed themselves, but not to the fullest degree, meaning that when your consciousness begins to tip a certain scale, uh, ancient teachings and prophecies and, and all of the things that the ascended masters have brought to the earth, they will begin to come back and they come back first through individuals, those who are having their, their own awakenings, channeling spirit, for example, or remembering that they were actually a part of a council that contributed to the teaching as it stands. And, and we'll give you an example because we think while many of these are, are starting to bubble up and, and, and have some very good qualities, there's also some unfortunate interference with them that is still going on. Uh, our, our most relevant example is the practice of Kundalini. Uh, this across the board, we would say, was something that almost every enlightened civilization and, and ascended master on planet Earth has studied. Even if it was slightly different in its teaching, Raising and activating the Kundalini was a foundation of spiritual enlightenment. Now, many on the planet today are attempting to achieve this state, and some are even teaching it. But unfortunately, we think those that are teaching it 
have sometimes been taking the teachings out of context. And again, we want to affirm that there are many different ways to to teach these these techniques. Um, it may have been done differently in Lemuria uh, than it was in Egypt, than it was in Atlantis. And that's the beauty of these ancient practices is that there could be no one appropriate way to do them for any one collective because your structures are are dynamically different uh, than these ancient periods. So adjustments need to be made. The biggest problem we see, however, is that ego is getting in the way. Um, sometimes financial abundance is putting a contradiction in the teaching and creating some distortion. Uh, or a teacher becomes highly recognized and begins to use the practice simply for their own benefit. And that's why you're not seeing such, um, we'll say, concrete expansion of the many things that you believe were were taught in these mystery schools or, or hidden from humanity. Uh, ultimately, what your consciousness is matching is the suppression of them. <laughs> Even though they're coming to the surface, which is a good sign, showing us obviously that humans are ready and, and vibrationally attuned, um, there's still too much density, we believe, in the way. Uh, and, and we think that the way to get around this is to always feel within yourself when you are working with a teacher or a process, whether or not it is pure. Because Everyone is meant to have an individualized experience of their Kundalini awakening. And, and one of the problems we see today is there's so much comparison um, and especially competition between humans as to what that means and how it should be done. But if you can take ownership of your own energy field and especially attune yourself in trust to your own intuition, uh, you will know without a doubt whether you're intersecting with something that's truly ancient and has its foothold and roots in enlightenment or something that has been uh, swayed from it. So, so discernment is necessary, we believe, in these days where humans are awakening to so much and there is a very um, fervent pace of new teachers and teachings coming to light, um, but still some confusion about the true purpose behind teaching them and offering them to others. Is it possible to articulate the mechanics of that practice now, or is this something that humanity isn't quite ready for? We could articulate the mechanics, certainly. Um, but remember, the actual process might differ between individuals because ultimately Kundalini awakening, while it's placed in the pineal gland, has very little to do with the pineal there are electromagnetic sensitive connections between the pineal and all other chakras that illuminate when Kundalini rises, but the Kundalini essentially sits at the seat of the soul where, where the root and the sacral come together, where that powerhouse of, of breath and energy meet. So, Raising the Kundalini actually has more to do with a tantric type of intimate and sexual connection that you are making within yourself, where you begin to access the, the material and physical components of a very orgasmic light. 
And this isn't a manipulation necessarily. We have many ask us this uh, oftentimes. Um, is this a sexual practice where there should be some type of physical manipulation in order to achieve it? And this was not the case at all in our day. In fact, doing this would diminish the energy because it's far more powerful than that. Uh, for us, it involved pulling the energy up from the perineum. Uh, bringing it up in such a way that it would expand into our sacral and we could tangibly make it rise. Um, not in a forceful way. We're not attempting perfection here, but we're getting into a state where the breath becomes the channel through which our energy rises. And as we pull the feeling of it up, we are eventually moving our body and our spirit and our mind into a state of coherence. Uh, to us, it's a state of quantum presence where we are no longer physical beings at all. Uh, as we're moving that, that sensation, we'll call it, that, that orgasmic elixir and sensation from the seat of the soul upward through the chakras, we eventually reach that electromagnetic center in the pineal, which illuminates a part of the brain. Um, it, it begins to stimulate hormones. It's, it's a godlike elixir that as it rises through the, the crown pours over us like mana from heaven. Uh, we begin to feel as if we are coated actually in a golden light. Now, many who have Kundalini awakenings do so in a very um, rigid uh, and we would say even painful way. And it's because they have forced the energy too quickly or they've had a spontaneous, we'll call it Kundalini awakening that perhaps their their soul was ready for. But the body that existed in a different dimension couldn't handle. And we know these can be very difficult to to assimilate. And this is why. In, in our civilization, we were never taught to force or to raise it through a very active breath. Uh, what we notice people doing today is, is doing a very rapid kundalini breath called the breath of fire. And while this breath has a purpose and, and is very uh, supportive in, in the body's alchemy, it isn't the type of breath we are going for when we want to raise kundalini. We want to do it slow. We want to channel it in such a way that we feel as if it is a part of us. It's a natural part of us rising with the breath. And then we get to the point where it can become one with us in any moment. And, and this is what many of us achieved. So so the mechanics of it, um, they really exist within the chakra system, within the sexual organs and within the brain. And using them together through a meditative practice, we are able to raise the kundalini. You mentioned the perineum, so would we be pulling up on the perineum as we're raising Kundalini and then releasing as we're releasing? That is correct. And and again, we want to caution people here because everyone's body is a bit different, especially in this timeline. Uh, so to your comfort level, uh, raising that up even slightly, we think, and doing so in combination with the breath, uh, it is what sets the chain of events in motion. 
You mentioned earlier at the bond we're teaching a meditation practice that didn't involve breathing. So in relation to the Kundalini we're talking about now, you mentioned that the the breath of fire was not necessary, but so what kind of breath is used? Is it just a, your normal natural breathing, but maybe in conjunction with that you're pulling up on the perineum as you inhale and then exhale and release? Correct. Correct. And in, in, in the practice that you are asking us about, the, the Buddhist technique, uh, and across the board, even we would say this was a part of many ancient civilizations, uh, there was a pause between the inhale and exhale. And, and the pause was perhaps one of the most important aspects of the practice, because in the pause, we were allowing the body to do the work without the influence of mind. If we were building on that pause, what we would find was eventually our breath would take over and we would not have to work at it at all. We would begin to find this balance between the as above, so below, the divine masculine and the divine feminine, the in-breath, the out-breath. Now, in the, the Buddhist practice, the uh, the pause in the breath was the focus. Uh, we were aiming to pause the breath as long as possible. And in doing so, the breath did not have to exist at all. What you may find in a more traditional kundalini practice, if you are implementing a pause between the inhale and exhale, is that you will not have to think about the breath anymore. You will fall into a rhythmic practice where it takes a life of its own. And this is ultimately what you are going for. Many believe that they have to follow a certain practice. And in their mind, they are focusing on the in-breath and out-breath religiously. And in doing so, breaking the connection between the as above and so below. So so if we're trying to pull energy upward, certainly for a while, we might need to focus in those lower chakras and we may need to focus on the breath. But once it starts to ascend, what we're going for is a state of non-resistance, a state where we are not attuned at all to the practice. We're allowing the practice to carry us and it is so easy to let go and, and, and feel and assume uh, the, the, the kundalini as a natural part of who we are. It, it is not something that has to be otherworldly or, or something that we have to achieve, um, outside of our day to day experience. We can become the breath of kundalini and that bliss and that energy can follow us into our day to day reality. Are there any other mechanics that are necessary to observe, like position of the tongue or any other bodily, uh, structures? Certainly these positions were used, various mudras of the fingers, uh, positions of the eyelid, of the eyes behind closed lids, um, and the pressure of the tongue on the roof of the mouth. Um, and the theory behind these things was that these electromagnetic connections behind the pineal had, had certain, we'll say, uh, gathering places that would support the kundalini activation. We don't necessarily think these are necessary, um, but if you would choose to do them, you could. Uh, these practices, uh, obviously, as we've mentioned, were taught completely differently in different civilizations. And are any visualizations necessary while conducting it, or is this simply the mechanics necessary? We believe visualiz visualization can actually get a bit in the way uh, of the process itself. The best position for you in terms of visualizing is to 
have a soft focus downward into the body. Um, even perhaps um, letting go of any uh, connection to the outer world where you're focusing downward very softly behind closed lids into the center of your body. And we find for those of us who have practiced diligently that just doing that sets off that chain of events automatically. It's, it's somewhat like an automatic button where before we even begin to breathe, we, we close our eyes and gently focus them downward and we can already begin to feel the, the Kundalini energy rising. So this was a technique that was used or practiced by the ancient Atlanteans. Is that, or the Syrians? Where, where, what's the origin of this? You're practice? referring to the Kundalini? Correct. This is a, a cosmic, uh, historic practice, meaning it has begun in star systems beyond the earth. And uh, so how do beings who are, well, you said star systems beyond the earth, uh, how do they practice it considering all these different beings have different mechanical structures, right? Their physical bodies are different in different dimensions. Well, this is why we say it is so different. For example, a, a being that exists in the 12th dimension as a light collective is in a state of samadhi and kundalini at, at all times because that unification within yourself is the goal of the kundalini but but in a collective state if you've reached the 12th dimension you are always unified so so there's no effort placed on on kundalini at all but we could take you back for example to pleiades uh, at a time when many of those in that star system were were more focused on their spiritual evolution in a way that humans are um, and say that their energetic bodies focused uh, or were were structured uh, very much like your own. So the focus inward on raising the kundalini from the chakras, uh, even though they may have been structured a bit physically and non-physically differently than you, was always the same. So 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 chakras, um, they are galactic centers, which is why we could say this is the similarity of the process. Uh, we are raising the the kundalini from the root or the perineum and the sacral and moving it upward. And, and even those that have transitioned into a more hybrid form have a chakra system, even if that chakra system is a bit more advanced than humans. Uh, for example, we have often stated that the chakra system is meant to become a, a solid core of light where, where each chakra that exists individually becomes fused and operative uh, in a unified fashion. And many who experience this are in a constant state of Kundalini because the passage of light and energy between that central channel or meridian is, is, is simply so strong. Um, but we could take you into Arcturus, for example, and say at a time when Arcturians preferred to be more physically focused, they used movement at, as a part of this breath practice not necessarily a breath of fire, but more yogic technique uh, than what we have added into the equation. And we know some of that exists on planet Earth, and it, it does tend to come from Arcturian history. Uh, and it, it helps them because they tend to be not necessarily more physically attuned, but physically attuned to moving energy, uh, in other words. So 
So there are slight deviations uh, and there has to be. But the commonality, the, the common thread and the key is the, the galactic chakra system. And what would, we, what would we notice from a practice like this? What were the benefits of it? What, what Kundalini will support is, is a soul's creation into higher dimensions. Because ultimately, the Kundalini being an elixir is somewhat like a conscious attunement into the present moment. It heightens your awareness. It, it helps not only the, the physical organs and systems to work better, but it blends those physical organs and systems with a, a more non-physical part of you. Um, you may call it the biofield, for example. And this is where a soul begins to not only see very clearly the geometry that exists within its life, which sometimes you call synchronicity, uh, but also it becomes less reliant on physical effort in order to manifest because you are using your energy field and your mind and your physical presence in concert with each other. It's somewhat automatic. So so in today's reality, uh, many are using programs like law of attraction, for example, to attempt to manifest things that they need. But someone who has raised Kundalini or is practicing Kundalini um, is more organically attuned to what their soul's divine plan has already brought forth. And in so doing, will will exemplify that because there's coherence. And when we speak of coherence, you are existent in a source field that connects to all things. And those things that are meant for you will be prioritized at the time that you need them. But unfortunately, you've been so taken away from truly understanding how this source field works that you negate the very things that show up for you as for you. And in fact, many times they are rejected for one reason or another. Kundalini is not only um, supportive of the soul's ability to, to clearly see and choose the things that the source field is activating for them, but also restore and rejuvenate the physical body. Uh, so many of you are struggling in physical disease, and certainly there are a great many changes that need to be made on the physical plane. But But Kundalini being an alchemical elixir, in ancient times was used not only for immediate manifestation, but immaculate conception. Immaculate conception is not just the birth of a soul in a physical way. Immaculate conception is the ability to come forth through and of yourself as an expanded version of it. And in, in plain terms, what this means is you begin to raise your dimension. Uh, everything in your life has to change and upgrade to the consciousness that you assume. And that comes automatically. It comes more easily. It, it's not that you won't face challenges, but those challenges in a Kundalini state or in a practice like this, they, they don't feel so hard anymore because you feel and see the support around you. You feel less alone, even if you are not surrounded by physical souls that you feel you need because Ultimately, we are all connected in unity consciousness. How is this different from the uh, 369 that we discussed in earlier conversations? And can you combine the two techniques to for more benefits, such as maybe practicing Kundalini in front of a flower of life symbol? 
Well, well, perhaps what we would say is the Kundalini is facilitating or supporting the true physical realization of the 369 that you always exist within because in so doing it's it's bringing your own geometry back into symmetry and that's where the healthy body extends from it's where the clear mind extends from it's where consciousness expands from now certainly in in many different applications um, this image you speak of was utilized to focus on as long as the focus or the visualization isn't done in such a way that there is some bias or predetermination of what it is meant to bring in. This is where we think you will put a contradiction in the way of what the, the Kundalini can provide for you in the way of a 369 connection, which is, remember, an unbroken channel of energy to the greater universe. So uh, if you are using it, do so in, in non-expectation, in non-judgment, um, and certainly uh, visualize it as if the breath is bringing you closer to it or you are becoming one with it. This is not required. Um, many of the renderings of the flower of life, for example, for example, were, were first created by those who entered a state of samadhi uh, or, or a state of kundalini where they had the elixir we speak of, which may even be termed today DMT, which is a natural occurring substance in the body, uh, and began to see it expanding outward from their own field. So, so this rendering, it reminds us of what we are already imbued within, making it a, a stronger connection to our mind, body, and spirit. Thank you. And thank you, Michaela. All right, thank you. And thank you all for joining us again for another Channel Revelations. We'll be back next week with another Awaken Empowered podcast. And if you would like to listen to us instead of watching YouTube videos, you can also find us on various podcast platforms like uh, Google or Apple uh, Podcasts or Spotify and many others. So thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Oh my gosh. Well, we got some giant quantum uh, looks into the future today. And so we have one way. No, right now we'll do this first. Okay, so real quick. This is called the Caddy Smith story. Oh. Why did, isn't that the one you wanted to do? Last one, right? Yeah, I gotta find it. Oh, okay. It's called the Caddy Smith story. Why did U.S. Air Force intelligence investigate an indigo child? In this intriguing interview, retired Air Force OSI. What does that stand for again? Office of Special Special Intelligence. Mm hmm. Uh, Air Force Office of Special Intelligence agent Richard Doty shares details of the Caddy Smith story and how she was recruited by U.S. and U.S. Air Force intelligence. Doty shares firsthand accounts of Caddy's paranormal abilities, which include levitation, telepathy and an unexplainable connection to sky beings from other worlds. 
discover the evidence that supports Caddy's experiences, including eyewitness testimonies, and learn about the impact her abilities had on the lives of those around her. Hmm. How are you doing with that? Okay. You got it. Well, hmm. then we might just get started here. This is 40 Minutes with hmm. Amory Smith. Here we go. Today on Cosmic Disclosure, we are with Richard Doty, a retired special agent who served in the Air Force Office of Special Investigations. Richard was intimately involved with UFO ET-related intelligence. Today we're talking about a young contactee who was later recruited by the Air Force. Richard, welcome to the show. Good to be here, Henry. Who was Katie Smith? Katie Smith was born in Montana. She grew up on a farm. Uh, when she was three years old, her parents noticed that she had some unique abilities. She could go out on the porch and look up in the ground, up in the sky and call in a star. This is what her mother relates. Right. The star would come down close to her, would never actually reach the ground. And then Katie would talk to the star. Now, Katie was three years old at this time, so she didn't know a whole lot of language, but she could still talk to the star. Her parents thought it was fascinating and couldn't figure out exactly how she was doing this, but or even why she was doing it. A few years later, Katie went to a camp in northern Idaho. And while she was at the camp, she walked out beyond the lake, sat in the evening hours and looking up at the sky. Suddenly a light appeared above her. A counselor saw this. And the counselor ran over to her, thinking it was a falling star or something out of the ordinary. And Katie put her hand up. Now, Katie was only eight years old at the time and said, stop, the counselor. It's my friends. So the counselor watched as she was engulfed in a glow just for a few seconds. And the glow went away. And the counselor went over to Katie and said, what just happened? Katie said, I just spoke to my friends. Well, the counselor thought that she was injured or, or something occurred that the counselor couldn't understand. The counselor was only 20 year old. So as the counselor took her over to the infirmary and nurse examined Katie and find anything wrong with her, but made a report. And when her parents picked her up from camp that Friday, the nurse gave the parents this, this report. What was in the report? The report was of what happened. And what Katie told the counselor or the nurse that I called my friends in. I wanted to talk to my friends. So I was able to go out in a remote area with no one else around. She didn't think and call my friends in. And the nurse was concerned and told her parents in this note that she was concerned that maybe there was something psychologically wrong with Katie. So jump ahead a few years, Katie's walking down a road with another girl. They're walking from one house. Now, they live in a remote area of Montana. One house to another house was some distance away. Sure. And it was 
the summertime and they were walking actually in this little canal. And as he got up to a, a culvert, Katie stopped and told her friend, get out of the culvert, run up there right now. So the little girl ran up there. Katie went into the culvert. And according to the little girl, Katie disappeared. So the girl panicked and ran to the closest farmhouse and yelled that she needed help, that Katie Smith disappeared. Well, the police, the sheriff's department came and they looked and but they found her. She was walking out of the culvert. And she said, I was just in there with some friends. But one of the deputies thought that was odd. And, and so the deputy put Katie in the back of his patrol car and talked to her and said, now, now, now explain to me exactly what happened. And Katie did explaining that her friends were there in a covert and she wanted to talk to her friends alone. So the, the deputy said, well, who's your friends? Where are they from? Take me to your friends. And Katie said, I can't take you to my friends. My friends live in the sky. They're from another planet. Yeah. So the deputy thought, well, okay, she's a little weird. No cuckoo. Took her home, told her parents, hey, she's talking about some aliens that came down and talked to her. And her parents had heard the story be- before. So they said, okay, you know, okay, whatever. How old was she at this point? Uh, about 10 years old. Okay. Okay. And then jump ahead to Katie was 17 years old. First year in college. She went to college in Montana. Her and her friend went out one night, her roommate out of the dormitory went up the, the mountain to look at the stars. Katie told her friend, I love looking at the stars and I go up and I talk to my friend. Well, Katie, friend didn't really know what she was talking about but katie went up there got out of the vehicle they went out and sat in the ground looking at the stars on a on a really beautiful spring spring evening and all of a sudden a light came towards him her girlfriend panicked said oh my god what is that and she ran back towards the car but katie sat there because katie knew that her friend were coming so again she was encased in some glow for just a few seconds, and then the glow went away. And the friend saw this. The friend saw this. But the friend got really scared because Katie wouldn't move from where she was at. So she went up to Katie and asked Katie, come on, let's go. And Katie was in a catatonic state. Mm. She wouldn't move. And all of a sudden, Katie started floating, like she was floating away. Well, her friend, whose name was Sharon Panic, got in, her, got in the vehicle which was Katie's vehicle and drove to the nearest house, asked to call for the sheriff's department. Sheriff's department came out. Sharon tells the sheriff's deputies what happened. So they went up looking for her. They have a search party. Well, they didn't find her where she was. They found, found her some distance away, walking out of a forest. And the deputies asked, are you all right? Were you abducted? She said, no, I was just with my friends. Well, who's your friends? Well, she tells the deputies the same thing. Hmm. My friends are from outer space. And so deputies go. And she's older now. Yeah, she's older. She's seven, almost 18 years old. So the deputies thought it was a hoax, a prank, right. and, and cautioned them not to do it. They can get in trouble and so forth and so on. So that was it. Then jump ahead. Katie graduates from college. She had a calling, so to speak, for the military. Her dad had been in the military. Her grandfather had been in the military. So Katie joined, decided to join the Air Force. 
she went through ROTC and she was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the United States Air Force. And because of her somewhat unique abilities and likes and dislikes, they placed her in intelligence. She went to the intelligence operations course at uh, in Virginia. She went to uh, Russian language school. And this is in the, in the 80s. And then she went to Europe. She went to uh, Germany, uh, West Berlin. She was assigned to a special team to track Soviets operating in and around West Berlin. Her boss, who was a major, noticed immediately that Katie was different from anyone else. Not just because she was female, but she was just a different person. In what way? She seemed to be able to sense things. Mm-hmm. When she went out on an operation, she was tailing these Soviets like she knew exactly what they were doing. She could hear them and, 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 or, or she could, she was reading their minds. She knew exactly what was going on. So one day after an operation, a big operation where they captured two, uh, Soviets that attempted to enter a, uh, a American controlled building inside West Berlin, the major called Katie and Katie was a, a first lieutenant at this time. And the major said, Katie, that mission we went on last night, it, it was a fantastic mission, very successful. But what I don't understand is how were you able to follow those? How Russians? did she know? How did you know this? She said, well, major, I want to tell you how, but I can't. Why can't you? Because you won't believe me. The major said, try me. So Katie said, okay, sir, I have friends. And the major looked at her and said, okay, you have friends. You have, you have assets. You've recruited other agents. No, 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 no. I have friends, other friends. Who, who are these other friends? This part you won't believe. They're extraterrestrials. They're always with me. Well, of course, the major didn't. After listening to this, in reading her report, the major sent her to the United States Air Force Hospital at Eastbound uh, oh no. for a psychological examination. Oh, yeah, yeah. And she went through all sorts of psychological ter- uh, testing and uh, uh, spoke to a psychiatrist. She had a medical examination. Found nothing wrong with her. And the last person she spoke with was a psychologist, a, a female psychologist who was not military. It was a civilian GS psychologist. Right. And she said, Katie, I want you to talk to me. I want you to answer my questions. And everything you tell me is going to be held in confidence between you and I. Okay. Now, little did Katie knew that who she was talking to was an Air Force OSI. Right. Sure. Anyways, (laughs) she tells the story. Katie tells the story to this agent who's posing as a psychologist about the aliens, about her friends. They've been with her since she can remember when she was two or three years old. They was always by her side. They protected her. They always wanted to know what she was doing. They wanted to uh, be with her when she was doing these things. And so the psychologist said, that's fascinating. So how do you call them? She said, I don't have to call. They're just with me. Always there. And the psychologist said, can you bring him here to this room? And Katie says, I don't have to. They're already here. Can they show themselves? No, they're not going to show themselves to you because you're not their friend. I'm their friend. <laughs> and so 
psychologist said, okay, well, thank you for the interview and, and so forth and so on. And, and that was ended. Well, they cleared her to go back to work, to go back to, to West Berlin, said there's nothing wrong with her. She's not psychologically out of touch with reality. She's, she's sane. So she went back to work, but they put her in a different office. So she wasn't really out following Soviets anymore. Now, the psychologist, who was actually an OSI agent, did a detailed report, sent it back to Washington. Now she's in the database. Okay, jump ahead. Katie is discharged from the the Air Force. She served her six years. All right. She gets a job in Albuquerque, New Mexico, with a biological company, biological research company. And she goes to work every day. She lives on the west side of Albuquerque. She loves to go for walks. She goes out in the West Mesa all the time, goes out to the old volcanoes, volcanoes yeah. looks at the petroglyphs. <laughs> anyway, she's out there one night, and she's just walking, beautiful New Mexico night, a late summer, and she walks down in this one particular area, coming back from one of the volcanoes, and she sees an object in the sky. And she looks and she says, it's a light. And she's watching this light and she's studying this light. And she says, well, it's not my friends because I know my friends are. So she's watching it and all of a sudden it comes in. Well, she thinks at first it's a helicopter. But it's not. It lands and she walks towards it. And these two entities come out. Non-described the... They were craft. I mean, it was a saucer-shaped craft. Okay. Uh, the two entities wore silvery suits. They had helmets on. She could look into the helmet, and she could see just two eyes. She couldn't see anything else. Mm. She immediately knew that these two were not her friends. Mm-hmm. These two entities were not her friends. So she decided to turn around and go back to her vehicle, but. The faster she was moving and running to get to her vehicle, which is some distance away in a parking area, right. mm-hmm. these two entities never lost contact with her. They were always there. Then suddenly she sees a helicopter coming, and she knows it's a helicopter. She sees it's a helicopter. She's been in the Air Force six years. She knows what a helicopter is. She sees a helicopter, and she says, well, wow, I hope I can flag them down. They can, they can help me. When she turns, she notices that the two entities weren't behind her anymore. There was a little, little distance behind her. Anyway, the helicopter landed. It was a United States Air Force helicopter. She saw the markings. So she ran over to the helicopter. A crew member came out and said, are you all right, Katie? Mm-hmm. And Katie says, yes. And she turned to point at the two, two entities but then she turned to the crew member and says, how do you know my name? Right. And the crew member said, we know a lot about you, Katie. We're here to help you. And then Katie said later, she didn't know if it was a joke or not. But the crew member says, it's a good thing we got here when we did. Or that alien would have eaten you. Eaten? Eaten you. <laughs> wow. So anyways, when a helicopter land, the ETs left. So Katie thinks, now, what 
Why did this happen? How did the Air Force know? The, uh, all the crew members said is, you're all right. They're going to leave. Get in your vehicle, and you'll be all right now. A couple days later, two old sides come to her house, oh, knock on the door. One of them is yours truly, Richard Doty. Whoa. Now, we knew about Katie. We knew we had been following her for a long time, actually, during ROTC. We knew she was different. We didn't know quite how different she was, but we knew she was different. She had abilities that was far beyond any human abilities. Now, this was before DNA. But we had other methods. Uh, we, I'm saying the government had other methods to determine the connection between a human and, a, and an ET, whether it be uh, interbreeding or, or something to that effect. And I wasn't knowledgeable of everything that, that, that the government knew about that. But we were able to track and follow follow her when she got out of the service. And so when she when we went to her work, we said, Katie, we want to talk to you about night before last or whenever it was, two nights ago. And she says, how did you know to come out there? I said, we just know. We just knew where you were going to be. She said, you're friends with my friends. I said, I want to be friends with your friends. I don't know who your friends are, but I want to be friends with your friends. She said, okay. I said, can you introduce me to your friends? She says, they're not here with me now. I said, why? She said, I don't know why. They seem to be more distance from me than they were before. And then we we did a, a initial interview of her. And then later we met her at another place uh, that evening, myself and the other agent. And this is where she opened up and she told me about all these different stories that I already related to you. Did you ever have any doubts with her story um, before that? No. Okay. No. We knew we had the majors report from West Berlin. We had the RLTC report. We had the sheriff's department report from Montana. Um, we knew she was different. So there was a, there was a, a, a way at, that at before DNA testing. Right. That we could test her and we ask her if we could test her, put her through some tests. Mm-hmm. One of them is a psychological polygraph examination and hypnotic ones where you, you put them under hypnosis and you give them a polygraph examination. You can't lie. <laughs> You're, it's, and there's an impossibility of lying. Initially, she revolt. She said, no, I don't, I don't, I don't really want to do that. Um, I said, well, we were hoping you would help us and work with us on other projects. I said, you've been in the Air Force for six years and you really enjoyed it. And she said, oh, I love the Air Force. I think I was, I was fascinated with the Air Force. I was fascinated with what I did and, and this and this. I said, we can get you into another area. I mean, you were an intelligence, you were an intelligence operations officer. We can get you into another area of intelligence, which would be probably more suitable to you. And she said, what are you talking about? I said, well, you're friends. You know that extraterrestrials exist. You talk to them all the time. She says, yeah. I said, what if I was to tell you that we know about all that? That piqued her interest. All right. And then she decided to cooperate with us. So. Then you we, got the test. Then we did the test. Yeah. And during the test, and now there's psychologists 
doing these tests and I'm, I'm not a psychologist and I'm not a scientist, but the readings that they take determine patterns of behavior and patterns of thought. And, and they can, uh, look at these and compare them to just a normal human, a normal person taking this same type of test and determine that her brain activity far exceeds that of others. And that's why they connected her then to being part ET, part alien. When they confronted her with that, she said, yeah, they told me they've been with me in all, all my lives. So I just assumed that I probably was one of them and somehow they put me in this body. And she told us something that was fat, quite fascinating to me. She said, you know, there's sometimes I'll f- I feel very uncomfortable in this body. I want to be in their body. I said, why do you, wh- why do you say that? She said, I just feel awkward in this body. I said, do you have past life experiences? She said, oh, many. Does she recall the other body? She recalls the other body. She tells a story about a planet. She's, t- and she, she's had this dream or this vision many, 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 many times uh, over her lifetime. And she's 20, 28 or 29 at this point. And she talks about being in this huge open area where there's people all over to all over living in these small huts. And she said, it was so unique because you could look in, I could look in and see inside each hut and the people would wave to me when I was looking in these huts. It seemed like I was bigger and taller than the others. And as I was walking down through all these huts, saying hi to these people. I was taller. And I realized that I didn't have the same body as they had. And she said, why am I different? Why am I so different? She couldn't understand it during these dreams that she was having. But now she realized that she was a human born on this other planet. And these people respected her or maybe even worshipped her because she was different than they were, because they were they were the ETs. They were the short, four foot tall, even looking or gray looking. Mm -hmm. And she's the tall human looking. She says, it's so confusing to me because I can't understand why I'm different than than everyone else. But then I realized that I'm the human on this other planet and the dream. Right, in the right. stream, and it, oh, it reoccurring over and over again. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not a doctor and I'm not a psychiatrist, but I know there's there's medical diagnosis for somebody to have the same dream over right. and over and over mm-hmm. and over again. And it, it's not defi- necessarily uh, a normal, but it can tell, it can dictate to experts thought pattern and behavioral patterns. And so she know she knew then she was different than everybody else. So we pitched her and I said, well, how would you like to work for the Air Force Office of Special Investigations? And she said, sure. What do you want me to do? And so that began her career as a civilian uh, contract person within the Air Force. So she didn't reenlist. She took a G 
She took a general. Uh, yeah, she general. took a a contract. We mm-hmm. uh, rather than a general. Uh, um, That's a, different. A civil service. Right. We just contracted her, giving mm-hmm. her, paying her, but right. contract yeah. her to do the work for us. Now, initially, it wasn't full time. It was part time, but eventually, it was full time. Now, over the years, she continued and continued. At the point when we were doing the DNA testing. Well, Rick, real quick, what did you have her do when she joined your your team there? Well, we had her saw out other people like her. Oh, okay. She had a unique ability, like I said, and whether it was her friends who we never saw, she would say the friends were with her. If we were on some kind of an operation where we wanted to go out and find some people, uh, she would say, my friends are with me. I never saw her friends. I never interfaced with her friends. But she was doing that. And I was convinced. I mean, there's other OSI agents that were with me saying she's nuts or, you know, she, I don't see anybody. Right. But but I believed her. I believe that she was doing things that we couldn't do. Nobody else could do. We wanted to go out and find people. She did find people, people that were like her. One of the one of her first operations was we wanted to go out and find two people. Two people, male, female, whoever, that were like her, that were being controlled or under the influence of extraterrestrials. How'd she feel about that? She didn't have any problems with it. She said, oh, they're all around me. I said, well, well, let's go. Let's find some. And in a matter of probably two hours, we were at a mall, uh, Coronado Mall in Albuquerque, and she pointed out people. And we interface. I didn't, but other other agents interfaced with those people and found yes, they were and they were. Why would you want other people like her, Rick? Well, number one, we wanted to see if we could recruit other people with the same abilities that she had, and we wanted to make sure that these people that she was telling us about were hostile in some way. So we did. I mean, we had other. People, I didn't do it, but other people trail those other people, the other uh, people and find out more about them, do background investigations. We didn't interfere with their lives or anything, but we wanted to know if they were who they claimed to be and whether they were hostile or any, because we knew there were hostile uh, ETs out there. We knew that the general public didn't know that, but we knew that. Right. And we didn't want these hostile intelligence. I mean, hostile ETs out there uh, interfering with intelligence operations or, or the public or jeopardizing national security. So that's why we, we were doing these up. Were you ever able to obtain these hostile extraterrestrials or point them out? I personally never did. I never identified anyone as being hostile, but there were other OSI agents at other locations, especially around Washington, D.C., that did identify some hostile intelligence personnel for alien intelligence and uh they dealt with them there but but i personally never did and how would you deal with a aggressive extraterrestrial race we had set procedures to deal with um the hostile extraterrestrial race we have within the special projects branch we had policies and procedures highly classified to covered exactly how we would deal with them and those are still classified, and I, I I I best not talk about them. Now, to be clear, do they fully have the appearance of human being here on Earth? Yes, to a point. 
almost all of them, and I say almost all of them because there's exceptions, almost all of them had some form of deformity, some type of deformity. But you really had to look at or, or determine. Sometimes it took uh, a, a doctor, and but there were some that didn't have any. And they, although we knew they were hostile, and knew we knew how to determine they were hostile, most of them we could find that deformity and deal with it there. Did Katie have a deformity as well? Yes. She had a very strange deformity that you wouldn't see in the outside. Mm. She didn't have any ovaries. Now, uh, we did, we found that out. They found it out during her uh, medical examination when she came into the Air Force. It was documented. She was born on ovaries. And that's not a, I mean, there are women right. that, that have that condition. Sure. Uh, they have the, the, the uterus and, and, but they don't have the ovary and the, the ovaries. And so it, it was not uncommon. I mean, so she couldn't have children. And that affected her sometimes. I mean, we had long conversations about it and she said, you know, I, I would like to have children, but I have other children. My friends are my children and, and so forth and so on. And now jump ahead to when we uh, developed DNA tests for this. Yes, yes. Now she wasn't the only asset we had that was, we knew was extraterrestrial. Uh, we went out and rounded them all up and did DNA tests. The ones that we could determine, the experts came in and did it. How many at that time? I think there were 12, uh, roughly 12 oh, okay. uh, for OSI. And uh, we tested them and lo and behold, she had alien DNA. So that's the Katie Smith story. In addition to tasking her to find extraterrestrials in the human form, did you also task her to, um, you know, talk about her friends and where they're from? Yeah, we, we spent a lot of time talking about her friends. She she had no uh, inabilities to talk about her friends. She spoke about him, describing what they looked like. Uh, and, and, and she was describing gray, gray ETs, uh, how they talk, spoke to her, how they protected her. But we were never able to see or interface with them. One of the things that we wanted to do, and we, we, we tried, we went into a, a, a very secure facility and we asked her, are your friends with you? And she said, yes, they're right here with me. I said, we just want some, somehow for them to appear to me. There was two of us, two agents there appear in whatever appearance they want to want to do or even speak to us in their minds. Some sort of communication, right? some sort of communication, some definitive answer. I said, I believe that they're here. I strongly believe that you're in contact with them. I know that you're part ET. I know you probably part whatever species they are, but to prove it to myself and, and, and my, my, uh, organization, please just show me something that could prove. She says, okay, just a moment. And now what, what she did was she put herself and I don't, again, I'm not a doctor, a medical mm-hmm. uh, expert. But to me, she put herself in a kind of atomic state. Her eyes went up. Her eyelids never completely shut. 
Okay. Her eyelids went straight up mm. and they stayed fixed in that way. She, fro- she, she was frozen like she was frozen. And, and for probably, I don't know how long, 30 or 40 seconds. Didn't move a muscle, didn't move anything on her body. And what was she doing? Communicating, I guess. Okay. All right. And all of a sudden she comes to. And I said, what just happened? She said, I just communicated with them and they don't want to talk to you. Oh, goodness. I said, why, why wouldn't they want to talk to me? She says, because you have hostile, you have hostile thoughts in your minds, yeah. in your mind. Well, my, because there's two of us there. Okay. Rick, I told you every time before you meet an extraterrestrial, you got to blank your mind out. I, I tried. I tried, <laughs> but you know, being an intelligence officer, uh, all the training that we went of through, course. you're always on the defensive. Yeah, you're the and warrior. And I probably uh, had that warrior mentality. Absolutely. Of, 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 and, and besides, we probably, to think back, I had our guns on. Yeah, very intimidating. Guns on. And although they were concealed, I, I, I think, okay, oh, that makes sense to me. Here we are sitting here in this room, two of us have hostile intent, probably. For if, sure. If something, if these things were to appear, and they were hostile, you know, what would we do? We probably had all this going through our mind. Right. And the fact that we had guns on, yes. uh, yeah, I, I couldn't understand her response. Although it, at the time it puzzled me, but so we never were able to interface. We never saw them, uh, never had any kind of visual. We actually brought in some female agents to try to, to interface with her mm-hmm. uh, away from us. And that never worked either. So. We were never able to interface, connect with her friends, or communicate in any way with her friends. Rick, could you give us more of a description of them? Easily. All the time, she described them to us. Uh, No matter where we were at, what particular time period or what operation we were on, uh, I was always asking her questions. Right. Are you friends with you? Are they here now? Was she always answering the same? She was always answering the same thing. That they appeared to be grays. Mm-hmm. They look great. What she described to me, they were grays. And she had names for them. She had Ho and Bo. I, I forgot to mention this. And she would, she would say, Hobo I said coming. to her, they named you. They said they're called. No, 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 no. She said, I named him Ho and Bo. Oh, okay. I said, why, why was Ho? She says, you know, Hobo, Ho and Bo. I said, oh, they were both male. She said, yeah, they're both male. I said, and here's here's something that I didn't think of initially, but one of my supervisors says, make sure you ask her if they're the same ones over and over again. And I so at one time I'm I'm with her, and I don't know. I remember if we were in operation or what. And I asked her. I said, let me ask you a question, Katie. Are they the same two? All the time. She said, yeah. Oh, yeah, the same. I said, have you ever spoken to any other ones? She said, no, but I know these are the ones that are assigned to me. They're they're mine. What do you believe their mission was, Rick? Guardians. Okay. That's what I would ask her. Protection. I think from the very, very first time I, I met her out at the West Mesa after the West Mesa incident, mm. I asked her. I said, so these things are, have been with you since you were three years old. She said, I probably, they were with me before I was born. In the other life, she kept calling it the other life. And I said, and, and what, what, why are they always with you? She says, my guardians. 
They're my guardians. And then I asked her, I remember, I don't know, remember it was that time or other. I said, so they're like your guardian angels? No, they're not angels. And I said, uh, okay, so they're just your guardians. Now, thinking now about what I should have followed up as far as the angels go, why was she so hesitant about calling them, no, they're not angels? It was it her. Was well, there some different, yeah, differentiation of. Yeah. She or, had a belief, maybe. Yeah, or, or, or religious beliefs. Mm. I was sorry for not asking her that question. Has Katie ever shared with you what her mission is here on Earth? In a number of different conversations, not one particular conversation about her direct missions. But she did talk about humanity. She's talking about how she can serve. That's, she said, one reason I went in the Air Force to serve, to serve my country and serve myself. And, and I said, well, did they give you a mission? Did your friends give you a mission? No, no. I, ha- I have free will with them. I, 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 they don't restrict me on any, anything. I can do any, anything I want to do. And she gave, she told me a story, which I kind of hesitant about to, to, to tell the whole story about. A, a relationship she had with a, with a, with a, uh, a man, a man. It, this was why she was in the Air Force. After she got out of uh, intelligence operations course, she went to the Russian language school at the National Language Institute in, in, uh, Washington DC, not the Defense Language Institute. Right. There's another one in Washington DC. Mm-hmm. She went to that Russian language course and she met a guy and, and, they, and he asked her out and she went out with him and, and, but she was always scared to do anything out of the ordinary as far as uh, going to the next step in a relationship. I'll, I'll, I'll try to make it uh, uh, clear, uh, plight in that manner. She was always afraid that her friends would stop her. And that's why she never got into an intimate relationship, which was kind of an odd story t- to tell. But this other agent that was was with me, he was more senior than I was and more experienced. And he was also uh, one of the agents that handled a lot of different abduction cases. So he had more experience in that in that arena contactees mm-hmm. than I did. But he asked her, do you think, even though you said you had free will, do you think that they're controlling you psychologically? And she said, no. And he said, well, you just told us a story about a man that you met, you liked, and you wanted to carry on and she was a relationship, yeah. and you felt threatened by your friends. And she, and she thought about it. And she said, "Yeah, I was, I was, but I don't think that they would have stopped me. I just, I just felt that I would be looked down upon. So I don't believe we fully was able to uh, communicate 100% with her, and that's only because." Her friends, who are probably greys, are preventing it. Right. Where is Katie today? Katie is alive and well, living in New Mexico, and she still is associated with United States intelligence. Would she like to be a guest on Cosmic Disclosure? I can always ask her that question. We look forward to it. Rick, that was a fascinating story. Uh, hopefully we get to meet her someday. Thank you. It, it was. It was a fascinating story. And there's probably more she can talk about if she ever does come on this program. I hope so. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Rick. 
You're very welcome, Emery. I'm Emery Smith, and this is Cosmic Disclosure. Until next time. Okay, so that's the last one for tonight on <laughs> ET. Uh, are we beyond ET 101 at this point, Rama? Uh, could be. <laughs> Rama, where are you from? Where am I from? <laughs> the Pleiades, right? Yeah. Me too. Yeah. Well, all right. Let's see what Caroline has to say tonight. I have a seven-minute message from Aurora Ray. Okay. Um, oh, uh, Commander Doug, can you get Rainbird for us? Maybe we've got to type it in here. And I will read this. Let's do Caroline. A message to Lightbringers, June 15th. This week's guidance from the Ascended Masters, Galactics, Earth Elements, Fairy Elders, Angelic Legends, Archangels, and other divine beings known as the Collective. (laughs) Greetings, dear ones. We are very pleased to have this time to speak with you again today. And so, today we look at the issues of fathers. Happy Father's Day to everyone out there. Happy Father's Day. Uh, uh, Yes. And our, our, our fathers in heaven, huh? Uh, Oh. Astar, happy Father's Day. (laughs) Oh, my. Um, So, today, whoops, we look at the issue of fathers at this time, very near when many countries, many cultures celebrate a day for fathers in June. And we look at And we look at, as well, the divine masculine, which is so discarded, so left behind for so long. So these brief words come with energies to assist and sustain you in these times as so much feels to be very tumultuous and unsure and difficult and demanding. We speak of the divine masculine now because it is experiencing a rebirth. So, as you can right now, just say the word dad or masculine to yourself a few times and just allow feelings to come up. Notice what they are. We are working with all of you to assist in moving your energies and your state of consciousness from a place of resentment or anger 
feelings of guilt or loss or sadness, feelings of having been trampled by masculine energies to assist you in releasing that and releasing identification with it. This is something a lot of people will do, particularly if you are female in this life or often many males as well. You will have had times when you felt crushed, crushed by that which is often called the wounded masculinity. And that wounded masculinity comes from this very radical, we want to say, requirement that anything you cannot understand takes into your life. Take into your life. Take into your knowing of how life is and what it offers is probably oppositional and ought to be quashed, squashed or repressed. And this has accounted for a great deal. It has spurred, it, it is spurred on by the sense of life is a comp- competition. Life is a matter of acquisition. Life is a matter of who's strongest, who's toughest. You see this exemplified in the military over and over. You just had another horse of a different color story about the military. Right. Oh, my. Um, And then you see, as in E.T. Disclosure Advocate, Dr. Stephen Greer's recent recording, you see military men allowing themselves extreme vulnerability and emotion in front of people. Yeah, that happened mm-hmm. for three hours this afternoon, everybody, in front of the many millions who will see that video and you realize things have changed. Eyewitness accounts of ET beings and craft by former members of the U.S. military. And this isn't to say that there weren't other men involved in the military at any time who showed their grief over the trauma that they and others sustained over loss of life, Mm -hmm. over the needless push of the military systems to devour, to control, to redirect. Of course, other men have come forward, many of them. Yet we point to the current stories because those who saw, for instance, saw, turn the page here, saw the lights of the ships of what are called UFOs. They have been changed. They opened up on a higher consciousness level to accept something that they had been trained to never experience. Or, as they did experience it, to never speak of it. A kind of don't hold it within your memory banks even order. So, right now, we're going to flow energies to you 
to assist you in releasing the pain that you associate with any form of masculinity, whether it's in you or in others. Just take a breath. Open to receive if you wish. A lot of you have have felt that the divine feminine was squashed by wounded masculinity. And yes, it was. It was cut out of earth life to a good degree. Has been. Never completely. But in terms of conscious awareness, it has been certainly highly, highly challenged. And yet this need not be the cause anymore. So just open to receive. As the sun rejoins us, out from under the cloud, breathe in and breathe out through the open mouth. Wonderful. We see a number of goddesses coming forward and ascended lady masters coming forward to work with all of you. Some of them from amongst us and some of them, many of them, from your own soul families. And they are lovingly holding in their arms that aspect of the wounded masculine which seems to have run earth for so long. Seems to have encapsulated how earth governments were run. The earth's medicine and earth education and earth military and on and on and on. Hand over to these dear ones or to us, or to your higher self, that which you know you cannot carry anymore. Because as an empath, as a light worker, a star seed, etc., people will have come to you asking for healing. They will have handed you the pain that they did not know what to do with. They may have been screaming They may have been crying. They may have just been in the elevator with you for a moment or two. Yet energetically, they may have handed over to you that which they did not know how to heal and did not know how to deal with. This goes for your culture as well. This goes for your media. All the tough guy stories, all of it. Hand that over to these dear ones. And St. Germain. (coughs) St. Germain is here with his beautiful violet transmuted flame. And you can put it in that flame as well. As you're not good at imagining, make a motion as though you were handing something over to someone and it will be received. As you look at this great tree in the video you realize that it has sustained the uh, has sustained life and vitality beauty and its own empowered empowerment for a very long time indeed in earth time and it is time and it is here to assist you as you have someone to forgive it could be a father a teacher, a government leader, it could be anyone. Perhaps someone who didn't respect your boundaries or someone who didn't have any 
and in the any themselves. So now would be a helpful time to say to them, something bad happened to make you this way. So we are both wounded. I bless you and I release you to your higher good. I release all dark feelings, all anger, resentment, any demise, emotion of any kind that I have ever held regarding you. I release it because there is no sense in my carrying it anymore. It's time to let go of that. Say to them, I'm sorry. I'm sorry you went through what you did. That you thought this behavior was the only way out. I rise above this now and I bless you on your way. And so it's nine, twelve, nineteen. Hmm. Well, I'll just read the main theme here. Uh, this is uh, Aurora Ray's main theme. She says, humans can overcome limitations and reach their full potential by embracing the possibilities of Arcturian consciousness. Technology, humans can learn from the Arcturians' wisdom and guidance and evolve to higher levels of consciousness by connecting with them. Um, hmm. Let's see how far I can get. How long do we have for both together? How long? Seven minutes and it's only four minutes. Eleven minutes. Okay. I just say that the Arcturians, they work at the, they work together, the Antares Arcturian. Antares Arcturus Midway Station. Station. You want to say what? That's that, about right. That is a place where Metatron and Nepta Elva help souls reintegrate themselves after they go over the rainbow. <laughs> the Arcturians are a fascinating race of beings who possess advanced consciousness technology. They are masters of manipulating energy fields and creating reality with their thoughts. Their healing technology, space travel technology, and philosophy of life and consciousness are all based on the understanding, understanding, overstanding, that everything in the universe is connected. The impact of Arcturian technology on humanity is yet to be fully realized. Yet there are already signs that it has a positive impact. By embracing the possibilities of Arcturian consciousness technology, humans can overcome their limitations and reach their full potential. Mm -hmm. By connecting with the Arcturians, humans can learn from their wisdom and guidance and evolve to higher levels of consciousness. So, we love you dearly. We are here with you. We are your family of light, the Galactic Federation. Truly yours, Aurora Ray. And so, with that... The Emerald Serpent Feathered One is here tapping me on the shoulder along with all those beings 
from the angels to the fairies to the feathers to the rainbows to the crystals to the little people, the Menahunis, the Sasquatch, to Rainbird. My, our, our, my, uh, my friend of all rainbow colors. Here it comes, Rainbird. Here comes that. that. And wow, what a day. What a day. A lot going on in the universe, in the cosmos. In the Unicoff, and lots of revealing of all that as well, and just all over the timeline. So, lots of gratitude for everything today, and we're in that moment. And happy we, Father's Day. Oh, yeah, and happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day, Rama. <laughs> I remember Mother telling me you were my father. And Tara was my mother in one of our lifetimes, or more. Oh, my. (laughs) (laughs) So there you go. And happy Father's Day, doggy, and your brother. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. I remember you had a little doggy that thought about you that way for a long time. <laughs> doggy. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I still miss her. Uh, yes, I sure you do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we'll see you on show call tomorrow night. Indeed. Oh, yeah. Hmm. I'll do that. I'll give that phone number up. Take a chance, everybody, and come and join us. It's a a really uplifting journey that we go on, on Saturdays and Sundays. Um, uh, 7 o'clock Mountain Time, 9 o'clock Eastern, and you can figure out in between there. 425. 436-6260. 436-6260. And the pin code is 946-7441-POUND. 946-7441-POUND. Join us. It's about three hours that we journey through uh, many different realms. So thank you for reminding you of that rain in the past... Rainbird, and to pass it back to you, is there something you want to finish up there with? Thank you. Oh, I don't want to hear what uh, Rama has for us, so I pass it over to you, Rama. Okay, this is Aurora Ray. Ascend today, the secret key to transcend time and space. There we go. So flea and tick protection so you can skip that good boy. Learn more at Soresto.com. Ascension Tool. Conscious Breathing. All things are breathing. The entire universe is breathing. The earth is breathing. And you are breathing. Conscious breathing is alertness without any effort. 
Just be aware of the movement of breathing and remain with it. See that no thought enters your mind, that nothing distracts you from this simple joy of being conscious of the life force moving in and out within you. That is all that matters, being fully conscious of every inhalation and exhalation. This technique is very simple. It seems impossible to remain focused on one point for so long, but it isn't impossible at all. Just remain alert and aware of your breathing and you will see that more and more thoughts disappear. When you fully immerse yourself in your breathing, they will disappear completely, not only from the mind, but also from the unconscious. They will have no roots in you at all. The first thing is to get acquainted with the breath. Let it be natural. Don't change it and don't try to control it. Just watch it. Breathe in and breathe out. Continue to keep an eye on your breathing, and you will see, as the days pass, that a great change is happening in the quality of your breathing. And if you are conscious of only one thing for 24 hours continuously, then you will have learned a new quality of consciousness, because 24 hours of continuous consciousness of one thing creates a new center in you, around which everything else starts. You have already ascended to 5D if you can be conscious of your breath for even a single day. Now, when you breathe in, there is an urge to breathe out. The ingoing breath becomes outgoing. It takes a turn. That turning point is the moment of silence. At that moment, there is no breath, neither ingoing nor outgoing, just a pure gap of silence. The transition from the ingoing to the outgoing and from the outgoing to the ingoing, that gap in between, that is the point of silence. Breathe in, that's one turning point. Breathe out, another turning point. And between the two points, there is a gap of no breath. And you're breathing 21,000 times per day, so many turning points. And if you become aware of each turning point, you will have 21,000 gaps of silence every day. It is such a great thing to have. Every time you breathe in, let yourself be filled with love. Every time you breathe out, let yourself be filled with love. And go on doing this for 21,000 breaths, breathing in with love and breathing out with love. In the beginning, when you are not experienced and you have not yet become an expert, it is better to stick to the breath. Become more and more attuned to the breath so that soon your whole attention will be centered on it. Then suddenly, one day, there is a jump. You are no longer in the body. You have become conscious. That is the birth of your soul. It will take time, but how much time depends on you. If you can practice for 24 hours without any distraction, then one day is enough for you. If you cannot practice for 24 hours, don't worry. Even if it takes 5 lives or 10 lives, by and by, you will reach that goal. The only thing needed is just one thing, that you don't give up. Persist. And when I say persist, I don't mean just sitting for a few minutes in meditation every day. I mean never leaving meditation wherever you are. Even while walking in the marketplace, go on meditating. Remember your breath. Remain with the breath wherever you are. When eating food, eat consciously. Then eating becomes meditation. When talking with someone, talk consciously. Then talking becomes meditation. 
The first thing is to learn the simple art of breathing correctly. The second thing is to learn how to be silent. The third is to learn how to be still. These three things will help you tremendously. You don't need any other method of meditation. These three things are enough. Learn how to breathe correctly because correct breathing brings your whole life into harmony. It brings the inner and outer together. It makes you an integrated whole. If your breathing is wrong, you will never be able to be an integrated whole. One part will remain out of tune with another, and that creates much misery. Breathe slowly and deeply. Don't force it. Don't make any effort. Just let it happen as it happens on its own accord. When you are asleep, then there is no effort involved at all. You simply enjoy a deep breath, and then another deeper breath comes, even without your doing anything about it. Lie down on your bed and watch this happen. If you simply lie down silently and start watching your breath, soon you will see that a rhythm arises because the body has its own intelligence. It knows exactly what to do if you leave it alone. When you can feel your own breathing, when you can hear your own breathing, when you can be aware of it, then you are no longer identified with the mind. That is the beginning of the end of unconsciousness. The mind is a mechanism that helps you survive in the world. The mind is not you. But if you become identified with it, then this identification creates many problems. Your mind interferes continuously. It goes on commenting, evaluating, and judging. It is a continuous process. It never leaves you alone. You cannot find a single moment when the mind is silent and you are alone. Even in solitude, it is there, making much noise. The first problem is this. The mind has many limitations, and by becoming identified with it, you have become limited. You can't see what's beyond its borders. You can't see what's beyond its boundaries. If you are depressed, it is because your limited breath has caused depression in your system. Let the pressure go by breathing consciously. But conscious breathing can give you a glimpse of the beyond. Conscious breathing will make the mind silent and will make the mind alert but not active. In that silence, suddenly, a new dimension opens up for you. And that new dimension is your real nature. When for the first time, you enter into this new world, this new world of 5D consciousness, suddenly all your problems disappear as if they never existed at all. We love you dearly. We are here with you. We are your family of light. Aho. This is a message to humanity from Aurora Ray, Ambassador of the Galactic Federation. Happy Father's Day to all those fathers in the world. And Sat Nam. Sat Nam Ji. 13 thank yous. Honey in the heart, no evil, live long and prosper. And Nikki was her name. <laughs> Nikki. Nikki the puppy dog. <laughs> all right. Namaste, everyone. Aloha. <laughs>